I'd known since I was four that I was going to be shooting a Star Wars film, I would have planned it all my life. This film, these characters, this story I grew up with, it's a whole world I've been thinking about for quite a long time. You can feel everyone in the crew and the cast kind of stops and just takes that in and you remember, oh, we're actually in Star Wars. It's like the world's greatest toy set. It's a bit like being that kid again. <laughs> the Star Wars figures. Stormtroopers over here and then this happens, there's an explosion. It's been a lot of fun. It's the greatest job in the world. Rebellion Podcast. I'm Stuart Skinner, your host of the show, and you are listening to episode 31, 20th Century Fox. Now, before I introduce the team, I had one of the lads text me a couple of weeks back and ask if I could perhaps introduce him first, as he doesn't like to feel like an afterthought and uh, always be the last name on the list, and this was a legitimate text. So, joining me tonight is a loose completist and R5D4 focus collector. It's Richard Hutchinson. Good evening, Rich. Evening, guys. Also here, as always, is our Thai pilot focus collector and vintage Star Wars completist. It's Grant Criddle. Good evening, sir. Hello, guys. Next is our Women of the Wars collector with a growing ESB gammy crack. It's Peter Davis. Good evening, Peter Weedy. Gim crack, gim crack. <laughs> I'm trying to think of it today. I didn't think it sounded right. Well, I'm really looking forward to this recording, lads, and talking about vintage Star Wars. It's just a <laughs> really, really into it after farthest from. So first things first. Um, Oh, wait there. Uh, finally, a Luke X-Ring pilot focus collector. It is, of course, it's Jezebel. Good evening, Jez. Good evening, lads. Good evening, everyone else. Hello, Stu. <laughs> Are you all right, Petal? I'm very well, thank you. Living a dream. I can't grin wide enough. <laughs> okay. That's a bit creepy, aren't it? <laughs> <laughs> Says the man who just focuses on... <laughs> I don't know if that's a lady. I don't know nothing about my collecting habits, you... Um, episode 30 was a six and a half hour epic, which I think we debated whether it would be well received at that sort of length. But all the feedback I've personally received has been massively positive, which I'm sure Rich will go into during the feedback. Um, I can assure you that this month's podcast won't be a repeat of last month's effort. We'll be back to some normality. But we do still have a cork of an episode. So, Jez, bringing you in first... What have we got coming up in newest acquisitions this month? We've got a very special, one-of-a-kind, small-headed hand mint on card. The only one known in, ex- in existence amongst loads of other little treats. Beautiful. And Peter, what about the market segment? Ooh, well, we've got a, a bit of a chat on the Vectors auction. Uh, we've got the usual uh, Trapper Top 5. And I have a little chat with a micro-collection focus collector who and we talk prices of how to assemble a micro collection 
you might need to re-go back and do that because he bought a beautiful piece of micro collection yesterday. I know, I know how annoying, but uh, it, that is covered. It is covered, but there is obviously a sequel to that. Okay. Um, Grant, who is your guest for Beyond the Toys this month? Uh, this month, fortunately, we are going to be joined by Clint Carnes, and we're sort of touching on a sort of preliminary investigation into Canadian oddball items. So, uh, really pleased to have Clint on. It's a great interview. That's awesome. Uh, Rebel Briefings looks good as well. Rich, what have we got coming up shortly? Yeah, well, I've got a great interview with Yehuda Kleinman talking about the UP figures that he put on the SWCA blog. We've got a couple of um, chats about some of the repro items that we've seen on eBay recently. And uh, Stu, you went to the Palatoy factory tour, so I'm sure we're going to hear some good stuff about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've heard it, yeah. And I'm delighted to welcome UK collector Matt Fox to the show for this month's Focus interview. Uh, Matt gives us an extremely insightful look into the vintage UK posters. And he really did have some incredible knowledge. Grant joined me for that, and he really does know his stuff, so something to look forward to there as well. Now, Farthest From was yesterday. I'm not going to talk too much about that, because I think we can cover that in our Christmas special. So I'm guessing everyone is going to have something to mention as acquisitions. So let's go to Richard. What have you been splashing on out on? I've picked up a couple of corded items on me £50 or less um, focus that I've got going. So I've got a 45-back black Bespin Guard and I've got a 47-back at that Commander, which are both in pretty good condition. How's that run coming together? Uh, I think I'm up to about 20 now, under 50 quid. I don't know, I don't know, they're, they're just on my shelf. I'll let you know someday. I've got a loose Palatoy Land the Jabba's playset from Father's Form, which I was delighted to pick, pick up, uh, virtually complete. I've got a set of Return of the Jedi badges, a loose diecast Falcon, and a loose but all fully working, which I'm pleased about, Biker Scout pistol, Han Solo pistol, and three position laser rifle. I got a, boss, a boxed ISP-6 because Jez was kind of me, me, me. You can't have an ISP-6 for your, your end of year focus. So I've now got two Jez for a loose one and a box one to shut you up. I've got a box one man sealer's gift. Uh, I picked up a loose droids pop up R2, which are all great things, but what I, what I was bowled over by was the generosity of, um, I, I was guys named Monk Clocks, Pie Pete, and Chip to some extent, Scott, who give me an R5D4 tree decoration that he made from a, a beta figure with a Christmas jump as a sticker and a couple of reindeer um, antlers on the top and I can hang that on my Christmas tree so that was fantastic and truly appreciated. I just want to apologise to listeners. I know I just said six and a half hour epic won't happen again but, <laughs> but I think I might be wrong. I want to know where Rich, Rich puts all this stuff. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, up north you live in little houses. I mean, how on earth do you fit it all in? He's got a coal bunker, hasn't he? Cause oh he... yeah, I've got that. And, and a stables. Um, Rich, you pick up all of that up at Farthest From? Yes. Really? Yeah. Except for the two, the the two carded items, the fifty quid or less items. Uh, I've got everything else to bother from you. Wow. Well, Pete, can you match oh, him? Hello there. Um, no, I can't match that at all. Um, but I haven't bought that much. But little bits and bobs. Um, I did get a a for our part of our let's collect five items over the year piece, which makes takes up number four, which is a uh, sealed C3PO Return of Jedi sixty-five back um, from a very nice man. Uh, not too far away from me, um, called Mike Green, who is actually a listener of the show. So, hello, Mike. Yes, and indeed, I can't understand what Richard says either, because he does speak in a funny accent. But uh, that wasn't the only comment he made about the podcast. Um, so, um, I also bought a few little bits and bobs, Empire Strikes Back items. Um, I did get a lovely s- s- uh, snow speeder in a box from 
uh, Simon McCowan, which I was going to give to a friend, but I decided to keep it because it's very nice. Um, and he can buy half something else. I got some Star Wars sheet music and uh, one of those large kind of Empire Strikes Back um, like large postcard things sealed. Um, I think that's about it, really. One of those large kind of postcard things sealed. Yeah, you know. Oh, a calendar. Large postcard thing. No, no. Not as big as a calendar. Smaller. Size of a postcard? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not technically a postcard. Okay. Jez, you have been collecting again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Delighted with, uh, with a couple of bits I got it farthest from. Uh, but from Craig Stevens, Facebook group, I got some Return of the Jedi shoelaces. Or well, once probably referred to as Oddball, and now we're calling them Beyond the Toys. But I got some uh, shoelaces, which I'm happy to put in my Oddball collection. I got myself a crate dragon bone, which uh, Grant had mentioned a little while ago. Got that from Andy Golden, which is fantastic. Great price for a a portion of what was once a discarded film prop. So yeah, yeah, happy enough with that. But the big thing is an eight pack Woolies eight pack, which has been verified by several people because of all the problems and people have had several concerns. But this is a fantastic eight pack, which has got two Luke X wings in it. So I was delighted with that. It's got some really good figures in, um, but I, I bought it off Mark Hockley, who uh, who actually said that he really liked it. He didn't want to sell it, but uh, after I contacted him, he was uh, he was kind enough to um, to pass it on to me, and it's it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I love the fact it's got two Luke Exons in it. Mark Hockley must prefer you to Rich because he didn't offer Rich his uh, Lily Lady Tuscan. <laughs> well. It was it, it, the previous Farthest From. It was on sale, and I was arming and ahhing about it, and and um, and Mark was there. It was a friend of Mark's, and um, who had it for sale on on his stall. And I was arming and ahhing about it. I actually sent Mark a message a couple of weeks ago saying, "Mate, if your mate is going uh, to Farthest From, can you ask him to take that eight pack with the two Luke's?" And Mark's uh, response was, "Ah, yeah, uh, I bought that because I didn't think you wanted it in the end." Um, but as I said, he he sold it on to me, so uh, yeah, absolutely delighted. And I think he does like me more than Rich. Yeah. Is there any other um, really interesting figures in that pack? Emperor's Royal Guard, always oh. a favourite. Yeah. Lobot, self likeness. Um, you've got Reese, so uh, <laughs> self likeness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Forlong, short like you. Um, and you've got Admiral Akbar in there, and uh, Attack Commander. So. You know, a reasonable mix. Apparently, there's always you know, you, you get the uh, Admiral Akbar's and stuff. So, um, bit of Return of a Jedi, bit of Impostor Strikes Back, and bit of uh, Star Wars, um, all with weapons and figures are, are, are mint. The packaging itself looks like it's being kicked around the back of the hangar a little bit. It's um, it's pretty beat up. Um, in you know, itself. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of pinprick holes in it. Steady. Oh, be like yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm delighted with it, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one for the collection. So woohoo, I'm back. Yeah, nice pick up, mate. Congratulations, um, Grant. Uh, yeah, I've picked up uh, well, Craig Swivey, who we've had on the show, was nice enough to pick up a Sigma Boba Fett statue for us. Jez tagged us in a, an eBay auction. 
managed to pick up some British Icarus Return of the Jedi and Star Wars memo boards, sort of wipeable boards. Uh, Farmers From was also successful. I picked up a Darth Vader Clipper Mailer, but I'm a bit unsure when the release of the Clipper Mailer was, whether it was in the Star Wars Empire or Jedi line. I don't really know anything about Clipper Mailers. And um, best thing I got, you know, this month we got Clint Carnis on, and uh, we have an interview coming up later about the sort of Canadian collectibles. And he sent me in the post uh, some of the items that we actually discussed in the interview as a gift, and that included some York peanut butter cards and a factory era uh, tops card. And I just that uh, was such a nice thing, man. It was really, really, sort of really got me. Yeah, I'd just like to say, Matt Fox, you're on this month. Um, if you want to send me one of your posters, knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah, nice pickups, mate. Um, you, you, you've got your Watklin. We won't go into it too much at the moment because I know we've all got them now. Uh, we'll keep that one back for next week. But uh... Okay, yeah, that would be a good idea. I'd like to, though, if we could just find out. Maybe Rich put this in the feedback. Let's try and find a year of when those Clipper Darth Vader mailers were out. You think it's Return of the Jedi era, don't you? I, I do. For some reason, I think it's Return of the Jedi. Nice. Right. What about you, Steve? Come on, chop, chop. <laughs> Hardly, hardly anything, mate. Um, I know people's following me around trying to make me buy stuff that's harvest from, but it wasn't yeah, happening. Why didn't you buy the pinball machine, Stu? You let stuff down there. Huh? Uh, yeah. Did I have But did, did you not buy that ad out of um, Simon? No. Did you, not buy, you did you not buy that Greedo 2 pack? <laughs> yeah, that was lovely. <laughs> Snaggletooth, wasn't it? Yeah, Snaggletooth Stu, Stu, did you not buy yeah. that, um, that boxing Darth Vader from Mark Daniels and his new store? Well, I don't know what that was. Did you see that? Did you the rest of you see it? I know it was with Pete when I saw it. That um, <laughs> boxing Darth Vader doll. <laughs> it was awesome. From he, he had two of them. Had a really funny face and then like a purple and greeny kind of striped like traditional blue punch outfit. Judy, uh, punch and, traditional Punch and Judy body, I would say. That's that fairground. Yeah, fairground. Yeah, so next to nothing here, I did pick up, which I'm quite happy with, uh, a Sigma R2-D2 string holder which I haven't bought much Sigma this year so to have the land speeder and that in the last two months is nice um, sorry it's a, it's a string holder it's a string, well, it's a string well, dispenser string dispenser yeah, the, yeah. It's string dispenser yeah. you put a string in his body and then you pull the string through his eye and then it's got a little scissor holder at the edge where you can just cut it off nice. yeah so um, Joe Watt um, since I've been collecting Sigma what's that two years now hadn't seen any come up Sai then gets two and sells me one and since he sold me that we arranged that about four weeks ago. There's been two on eBay. So, there you go. Do you know what? It's a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, right, actually. I've got it. I've put it next to um, the Yoda money box, and he's as tall as that, which I thought was quite surprised that. Yeah, it is a big lump. Yeah. Yeah, happy with that. Um, I bought a Star Wars Super 8 reel, the Palatoy Talking R2-D2, and just some sticker albums. I bought a minty Return of the Jed- Jedi album. I also got the German version, which is mint. Um, some seal packets and I've also bought the counter display box which I now need to try and fill but apart from a few bits and pieces that's it oh, well, that's so when you it. said you hadn't really bought much you were stringing us along all clever <laughs> not that quick <laughs> right so opening question for this month I believe it is brought to us by Grant yes excellent right I've all asked you to get an egg Yep. Can we have a can we have a red check in please? Red one standing by. Egg five standing by. Egghead standing by. Jez, is he even here? No no idea. Ah, I'd like my uh, microphone. Yeah, I quite eagerly said egg two standing by, but my mic was on mute. Sorry about that. Egg two standing by. Wonderful, excellent. Um what we're gonna do. Excellent. Is gonna... <laughs> excellent. <laughs> lol, 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 lol. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to do a bit of a team building exercise because um, what the listeners probably don't actually notice is that this actual question, these questions are actually really hard to edit because a lot of the time you guys argue and bicker for 15 to 20 minutes and it takes up most of a Sunday in which to edit it all out. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to do uh, a bit of a team building exercise and I want you to put your egg into your fist. So hold your egg into a fist, and what I want, what we're going to do is we're going to revisit something we did last year, which was family fortunes, and I need you guys to work together as a team with an egg in your fist and try and come up with the top ten most common trilogos. Now I've gone and spoken to um, some really top-notch uh, Apex trilogo collectors and Jamie Brown, and I've managed to put, compile a list of the top ten trilogos. So, work as a team, and if you get stressed, you might end up with a bit of an eggy hand. Lads, I, I think the Emperor will be on there. I yeah. see it everywhere. Remember, this is, family, this is Family Fortunes now, so if you get three strikes, you are out. So, <laughs> work we can together. confer, yeah? Awesome. Yeah, but I will, expect in, I will expect to see that one of you rise above the others. Okay, I'm just said. eating. I'm just eating a poached egg, because I was suspicious about you. So I've bought up a regular egg and a poached egg, and I'm just enjoying that now. I thought you were just holding your head. You're squeezing a poached egg? Well, no, no, I'm holding a normal egg, but I was concerned that he was going to make us crack it over our head or what have you. I've just bought this house, and I've got a new, brand new carpet. And I'm mental if I get egg everywhere, so that's why i got a poached egg. Okay. Anyway, sorry, Grant. Sorry, Grant. Okay, that's the, let, let's see you guys work together. First answer, please. Come on, guys, it's got to be... A, a goon. Nick Toe. Exactly, it's got to be a goon. It's got yeah, to be a goon. A, that's a good shout. And Romba. Romba's everywhere on a trilogo, isn't he? Really? Really? Nick Toe. Let's go Nick Toe first. Nick Toe. Yeah, 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 we'll go Nick Toe. Nick Toe, congratulations. That is the top answer. What about... Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> what about... Uh, um, thingamajig? What's it called? The... Uh, uh, no. The... Uh, ATST driver, I see him quite a bit. Yeah, ATST driver, I would see as well probably. Any, any, anything above that? I, 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 de I definitely think we need to go for the Emperor. The Emperor will definitely be yeah, yeah. yeah, go on. Whack the Emperor up there. Emperor, Grant. Correct, that is number 10 on the list. Controversial. <laughs> oh, blimey. <laughs> um, I think Attack driver is quite popular. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the Ewoks as well. Yeah. Well, let's put one. I, th I think his ATST drive is definitely in there because I'm sure I see him a lot. But yeah. okay. ha happy to go with an Ewok though of some sort. No, no. Rich, Rich and Pete both think the ATST. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that could be bad. That could be a bad thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> ATST driver grunt. Correct. That was number six on the oh, list. Oh yeah. Three lives left. Oh, right. Rom Romba's on there. Do you reckon? Are you sure about yeah, that? Without a doubt. Is anyone yeah. else going to back Stuart up on it? So I'm, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm... he's the most common Ewok on the um, Trilogo. Yeah, guys, can I just remind you to keep that egg remaining in your fist? Oh, yeah. I'm dropping it, actually. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, just remain. make sure it's in that fist nicely clenched. <laughs> um, well, see much, Stu, if you're confident you're going to take the fall on this one. We'll go bomb back. Whoa, 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 wait a sec. <laughs> okay. Does anyone agree <laughs> with him? Yeah. I, I don't know. Rombo, Tebow, Wicket, they're all in there, aren't they? Let's face it. Jesse, you say that because you fancy Stu. Well, I'd go with Stu, but I'd be thinking of Rich. Okay. No, come on, come on, come on. 
I think it's got to be two people got to got to agree with it. I think. Okay, let's let's not go for it. I'm not saying it's but wrong. If he's on, if he's on there, Pete, if he's I on there, no his idea. eggs going on your head. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. But Lando's I'm just saying. I, I was just about to back you up there. Stewakshi. Okay, let's we'll do it. Move on back. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's Rich is backing it. you up. Good times. Two. There's two in. Final answer. Yeah. yeah. Rob. That is incorrect. Oh, you. Oh, you. This kid. You're rubbish, Rich. You backed him up. Hello. Can I just confirm that your egg is still in your fist? Yeah, I don't think yeah. they muscle. Where, where have you got this list from? <laughs> um, <laughs> friends of the show. I mean, oh, you can always pick you know it up what? with them. They don't know nothing. Should we be trusting Stu on this one? I'm good at it. I don't think there will be an Ewok in there, though, so what would be the next common Ewok? Tebow. Yeah, or Wicket. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more thinking... Mm. Or let's just say Lando Skiff. Hey. Oh, Lando, Lando Skiff, Skiff, that's a good yeah, call. Yeah, yeah, that's a great shout. Yeah, Lando Skiff, come on, let's, let's, yeah. let's do it. We're all going to agree on that one. Final yeah. answer? Yeah, cool. It's not in the list. Oh, Jess, you're rubbish. They're you're wrong. One right there. Correct. I don't know about this friends of the um, friends of the podcast business. No, I'm not sure they're not my friend. Uh, what do you th- what do you boys think about General Medine? Don't really mm. like it much. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to say no on that one. Squidhead, Squidhead's got to be. I'm also saying no. Prunefears, Reeves. <laughs> Hang on, has anyone got what trilogues have everyone got? <laughs> yeah, Prune Prunefears could be. I've only got Reeves. Reeves could be a good show as well. I've only got two trilogues. Let's look at the goons. Let's look at the goons. FX Seven. I've got one of those, mm. and that's quite easy to come by. It's a hundred and twenty pound figure though on an F- on a trilogue, isn't it? Well, it Surely the cheaper ones are the more common ones. I got it for twenty quid. <laughs> well, <laughs> at the moment, I would say Clatu Skiff, Clatu Regular Miscard, according to these friends of Grands. I reckon. Um, I reckon FX Seven is a good shout because I've got one. B Wing Pilot it must be. Ooh, B-Wing pilot. Or, yeah. or, although, are we thinking more of Power of the Force? I see that more of that on Power of the Force. So. But it's not a bad shout. Last, what about Anakin? Yeah, I'm gonna, I Anakin's that's a fair shout. Yeah, as is that shout. driver. Go with Anakin. I reckon, it's, I reckon, I reckon Anakin's a good shout. One right left. I would, I would pull it. Oh, at the moment, I would say Anakin is is up there. Right, what about Reese? Reese is quite popular. Yeah, but right. mostly on the Re- 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 Anakin or both. I think Reese Re- 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 appears more. You see him more on a. Return of Jedi card, not on a Trilogo. Oh, right. I, I, I'm still quite optimistic with Reese, and I've got my egg firmly in my grip. Imperial Dignitary, he pops up quite regularly. <laughs> oh, that's what she's. I love the fact we're working as a family. <laughs> I would want to give an answer on them. Um, what? Who's Tebow. the captain? Who's Tebow. I reckon, Tebow. I reckon Anakin is our best shout. Do you? Yeah. Oh, oh. oh. I'd have to hurry you for an answer. Please. Where did that rule come from? Oh, yeah. Uh, I reckon between Anakin and B Wing Pilot, I reckon. I reckon they're, they're our best shouts. Mate, we'll go with Anakin. We'll get Anakin out of the way. Final answer? Anakin. Yep. Anakin is number two on the list. Yes! yes well, you see, you got to trust me. I know my stuff. Can I? I haven't got an Anakin. Oh, come on, um, Jez. You scoff, but let's hear your suggestions. So far, no, I've got two. What? Hang on a second. What was number one, Grant? Mikto. Yeah. In your face, Pete. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, you know, anyone, anyone can pick up the easy one. Exactly. I would pick a 10 because I thought, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll go for the 1, 2, and 3, don't yeah. we? <laughs> exactly. Should we get any walk out of the way, then T-Wall should wolf that one. I'm going to tactically switch hands. 
Oh. You get a bit sweaty. <laughs> no, I just think my right hand is a bit stronger. My hand's the problem is, my there's, hand's... Only, there's only six figures left. Right, we've got four, haven't we, go on? Uh, mm-hmm. That is correct. You've got number one, Nicta, number two, Anakin, number six, ATST Pilot, and number ten, the Emperor. I think Beaming Pilot will be a good shout. I think I think the Ewoks are going to fill quite a bit of that. I reckon there's Wicket, Tebow, definitely both on that list. Low Grey. Or are these listeners? I'm really. I think I think I think Wicket's a better shout than the rest of them. But I think I think Beaming Pilot is 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 a top one. I reckon that's it in there somewhere. Can I hurry you for an answer, please? Tebow. Final answer. Tebow is number three. Ooh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> number, numbers four, five, seven, eight, and nine to go. Wicket is in there. That's a chance. Wicket is That's in there. Suggest there's going to be another Ewok then in there. Come on, do Wicket. Do Wicket. Wicket is quite common on there, isn't he? Come He's on. always popular. Do him. Do him. Yeah. I, do you know what? I still think. Your last life. <sighs> B-wing Just pilot. Wicket. Wicket. B-wing pilot. Wicket. I still think Reeves is in there. B-wing pilot. Wicket. I really don't think Reeves is in there. Okay. I, I can't. I can't I've remember been, seeing him. I've got him on a try logo. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to try logo. Do you, I push you for an answer, please. Should we come to B wing pilot? Or pruning face. I yeah. don't know about oh. B wing. I think you're right. I think B wing does pop up on them. How the falls more. We've got Wicked. Have another Ewok out the way. There's going to be at least one more Ewok. Wicked. And Clatter Skiffins on there. They're quite often. I'd, I'd say Wicked would be the, the next Ewok. I reckon. Right. Yeah. Or Pete's Wicked. <laughs> Are your eggs firmly in your hand? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Final answer? Maybe. Yep. Surely your final answer? Yep. Yep. Wicket is incorrect. Oh. You have failed. The answers that you were looking for at number four, Reese. Oh. Number five, number five, B-wing pilot. Yes. Number seven, low gray. Number eight, rankle keeper. Number nine, Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Mm. Well, well done. Though. You didn't argue much. Normally you stress out for ages and piss and moan and just think we, just think Jez went mad on reuse and we all went mad on B-Wing and didn't choose them but we were right we were right but we were wrong we're as well we're all winners we would have never got Vader no Vader that's just I don't know in fairness Pete me and, me and Jez I backed up Jez's reuse and you were adamant it wasn't oh, on yeah, yeah, I think it was, you've yeah. made us fail yeah, I probably have because you've got two of the three yeah. wrong uh, actually, he, was a, he he did a, quite a lot of damage to you. He, he took Reese and the B-Wing pilot away from you and said that all of the Ewoks would be there. Then there was only one more Ewok. Yeah, uh, you said that, Jez. Yeah, no, I Jez. didn't. I said Reese. Rich. You <laughs> <laughs> wanted me. I got two, I got two right. I was, I was pushing the B-Wing quite hard, but no, no. Right, lads. That's good. Rude. That's nice, Grant. Nice. Yeah. And I enjoyed a poached egg. Very nice. Well, brilliant. Let's go over to Ricardo's Rebel Briefings. Geordie talks Yuppie. Repro Poppy, Repro Sticky, Repro Warning. Vectus is put to the test. The Palatoy Factory Tour. 
Rebel base is on a moon on the far side. We are preparing to orbit the planet. Rich, Geordie talks UP. What the hell are you going on about? <laughs> well, Stu, we all noticed that the SWCA blog got an update last month. And when that normally happens, we'll go and check it out straight away and find out what it's about. And this one absolutely fascinated me, blew my mind, never heard of UP. So rather than me just talk about the kind of stuff that was put on there, let's go to the original author of the post, which was Yehuda Kleinman. Let's hear what he's got to say about it. Our guest today needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. He's a regular guest on the Kivecast, Rebel Scum 4 member and SWCA blog contributor Yehuda Kleinman. Good morning to you, Yehuda. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Well, good morning. It's great to be on. Now, Yehuda, if I've got this right, Tommy Garvey posted an update on the SWCA blog to an article that you've updated from a previous revision on a miniature toy line called Yuppie. What on earth are Yuppies? Ah, so, you know, after collecting everything else out there, you look for the uh, odd stuff out there. And Yuppie is a company out of Colombia. They're actually a snack food company. And during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, predominantly in the 80s, they would add with their food products for kids a premium, a plastic toy that would go along with them. And they cycled through many lines, and they were always licensed toys. They would contact the companies and get appropriate licenses, and they were through Hanna-Barbera and, and Marvel and DC. And they also did a short line of Star Wars figures, and uh, all of them are production and are marked LFL on the back. And they had a very short run. And after looking at them for about a decade, it seems that there are 36 of them. And what's really unique about them, other than their obscurity and probably being one of the rarest lines in vintage Star Wars, is that they were really modeled over the Kenner figures. So the UP sculptors who were working in the company to make the toys for the food products were at a point in the late 80s when these were probably produced when they were able to look at the entire Kenner line and say, instead of sculpting these from scratch from the movie, Let's look at what Kenner did and just reproduce the figures in miniature. And for the most part, for the majority of the figures, they were done that way. So what's really fun about them is that they look exactly in, all, in many cases like the Kenner three and three quarter figures down to the uh, weapons, including lightsabers and staffs on the Ewoks and uh, Admiral Akbar's weird white stick. And um, they pick figures, it seems almost randomly, without knowledge of the line, but they picked from every point throughout the entire Kenner production. So they picked figures from Star Wars, from Empire, from Jedi, from Power of the Force, and even from the droids line. And so you get this representation of the Kenner figures done in these tiny one-inch figures or one-and-a-half-inch figures that are um, replicas in many cases of the Kenner figures, non-articulated and done in a multitude of colors, including pink, white, green, blue, red, black, and gray. They even included the weapons in this oversized comical sculpt. So you'll see these unique Kenner weapons, which weren't actually seen in the movies, that were definitely Kenner weapons. And they're displayed on these UP figures in these giant molds right next to the figure itself. They're a lot of fun and, and very challenging to find because there isn't much known about them. They were first discovered by uh, Steve York more than a decade ago when he found a bunch of them. And then slowly information has trickled in over the past decade or so. So we've gotten this information. And I think that it's accurate to say we probably, in the whole set, there are 36 of them. And so if you're looking to put together a set of 36, which is uh, 
pretty monumental tasks because they're hard to find. But if, you, if you're looking for them, there's a full set of 36, and they're listed on the archive site um, with pictures of most of them. And, um, you know, you can do multiple color combinations, or you can try to go for different figures in the same color as well, different collecting possibilities with them. But it's really fun to put them next to the large Kenner figures and to see them as like a miniature version. The range of figures is absolutely astounding, and, and that's what's really fascinating me. I mean, what other timeline would think of making available peg warmers like FX7 and the Rancor Keeper and, and some of the droids lines? Yeah, you know, it's great. I mean, there's not a Luke Skywalker in there, you know, and, and yet you'll have like a, a Rebel Commander, or you'll have like, you know, four different Ewoks. And so it looks like, you know, and conjecture, of course, that the UP guys were sitting around the table saying, these are the kind of figures we were able to get a hold of. Let's sculpt these guys. So, you know, you get an Ognaught and he has his little briefcase and R2-D2 has a pop-up lightsaber. So it was clearly done when the figures were late because the ones that they were getting to sculpt after were the later versions of the figures. And then you also have George Usat and Kia Maul, which shows you that, you know, it was probably done the late 80s. And it had to have had a very short run. I contacted um, the UP company over there and tried to speak to several people. I did speak to several people over there. Uh, but nobody had any recollection of the line whatsoever, but they did recall making plastic figures like that. So it's, it's really not, even in Colombia, a well-known thing. And they are definitely a challenge to find. But what's interesting about them is because knowledge is first really getting around about them, that maybe there'll be collected, there'll be people out there in Colombia who will find them in their basements, and more may come to light. You know, there's certain figures in the set, many figures in the set that have single-digit examples of them, and hopefully, you know, with word coming out, more will come to surface, and uh, more people will be able to collect them. What do we know about the availability of the Kenna figures in Colombia? Ah, there was very little available in Colombia and in South America in, in general. I couldn't tell you for certain if they were sold there or not, you know, in terms of numbers or how they were sold. But out of Columbia, besides the UP figures that came out as, like, let's say, a direct Star Wars product produced in Columbia, there isn't much else other than maybe some paper paper goods like uh, comic books, movie posters, things like that. And I think maybe some school supplies, but I'm sure Duncan or Gus could tell you more about that. How do you think these were made, the New Huda? Would they have been made similar to the Kenner figures in that there would have been tooling and moulds and um, oh, and hard sure. copies yeah. and things made for them? Well, I don't know. You know, the usual process of these would be, again, a, an original sculpt. So they would sit with a Kenner figure and they would just have somebody sculpt one out of whatever substance they used. And, you know, again, conjecture, because we, we haven't spoken to sculptors or people who actually made these, but, you know, it would be likely wax or something like that. And then it would be, again, done in silicone, then put into a steel mold. Likely with small, unarticulated pieces like this. They may have had molds, not just for one figure, but for either the entire line or half the line or quarter of the line, so they could quickly injection mold PVC into them and make make sets of them. But again, they could have been individual molds for each figure, too. And until, or if we ever find out the details of how they were manufactured, that wouldn't be clear, but certainly it would be a similar process to uh, the way Kenner did it, because that's how most plastic figures were made back then. Mm-hmm. You know, and everything is different now with computer technology and how things are 3D printed. But yeah, this is the old school style of making things, and it would have been done in the same fashion. 
Do we know how these would have been packaged or incorporated with the yogurts that were available? I wish you could tell me. You know, <laughs> nobody's found any pro- any packaging on these, any advertising, on them. and I would love to see it. You know, I would love to see how they were. So far, we were lucky enough to have the figures and to understand the full, probably the full complement of them. But yeah, that hasn't surfaced either, and the figures weren't saved and weren't run for a long period of time. So it's even harder often to find packaging when it comes to food premiums for something that even the premium itself wasn't saved a lot on. But you never know. And, you know, once word gets out, hopefully something will show up. But yeah, no idea. There were a range of colours that you mentioned before, like the blues and the pinks, which are which are quite striking, they're quite vibrant colours. But there's a mix of duller colours as well, such as different shades of grey. Is there any significance at all to the plastic colours, or do you just think it was a case of whatever plastic they had available at the time, they just shoved in the moulds? Again, I'd have to give conjecture on it, because, you know, I don't know, but it does appear that the pink and blue figures seem to be the most common. And when you're talking about most common out of things that are, there are only a few of, you can't be really certain. But when I look at my lineup and things that I've seen, I tend to see blue and pink stick out the most. And what I think happened to me also pretends toward the possibility that whatever molds they made, they probably made multiple figures in the same mold. Otherwise, you wouldn't see so many pinks and so many blues. And I think whatever plastic, as you said, they had available at the time, they would do. But they were known for their multiple, multiple colored figures and to be able to collect them in multiple colors throughout their entire lines, like their comic lines where you have full sets of superheroes. You know, I think it's intentionally done that way, but certain colors seem to be rarer. I, I do like the way they look, though, mixed together with different colors. They, they look like candy almost themselves. They've even used the Kenner weapons. Now, you, you've said that these were licensed. Now, would these have been licensed by Kenner and authorized to use their weapons, or do you think Kenner may have been a little bit surprised of, of the tact that they took on these? That's a fair question. You know, the license by Lucasfilm, that's the only information you have. Mm. Um, whether Kenner went after them or whether Kenner would care to go after them. For such a short-lived line in the late 80s after Kenner essentially wasn't producing them anymore. You're talking about a time period where they couldn't even sell the droids and Ewoks lines in the stores and they were starting to go to discount bin. So going after a small food company over in Colombia that was throwing them in for a few weeks into their, or for however long it was, into their food products probably wouldn't have been high on their radar. But, you know, it may have also been done with Kenner's approval. Um, the thing about it is not all the figures were done exactly off Kenner's sculpts. In fact, figures that they were having difficulty with, such as R2 and R5-D4, which were round-bodied figures, apparently, however they were molding them, they weren't able to do that. So they had to be a lot more creative, making a flatter version of a round droid. And they really came out very interestingly weapons themselves and all that i don't think kenner cared too much or if they were involved whether they gave approval or not i don't think it was something they were going to go after litigiously because it wasn't something that they were going to expand on and if i've got this right did they have small peg holes in the feet you got it right um all ub figures from all lines seem to have them and I wonder if they did manufacture either a mail-away or something available where you could stand them on them. Because mm-hmm. although they are relatively pretty well balanced for small plastic figures, they would be much more stable if they were standing on little peg holes. So I bet those were there put purposely for a stand or something. But I have no evidence to back that up. Mm-hmm. But it's funny when you turn them over and you see peg holes on the bottom of them. And 
they already look like the Kenner figures. And then, you know, that's another, that's another wow. There are certain figures that stand out more because they weren't able to sculpt them so easily. Figures like the Jawa, you know, this is, they didn't sculpt the vinyl cape Jawa. Again, at the end of the line, they're sculpting a cloth cape Jawa. So they have to sculpt soft goods onto a plastic figure. So they sort of just went their own way with it, you know. And so a few of the figures in the line don't look like Kenner figures, but it's usually because of that reason. The one exception, which, uh, you know, is surprising, is the Princess Leia figure, which looks absolutely nothing like the Kenner figure. It doesn't have star buns, has long flowing hair, and you wouldn't know it was Princess Leia if it didn't fit in with the rest of the line. I, w- I was thinking that before when you said there was no Luke, and I don't believe there's a Han either. So I was wondering if there was no. a problem with them using the likenesses of the actors. Perhaps Lucasfilm may have given that kind of instruction down to them that they couldn't look too similar to the characters. But Princess Leia suggests that that wasn't perhaps an order that come from Lucasfilm. An interesting thought. You know, you do have Alec Guinness and Obi-Wan Kenobi. You do have... Yeah, I'm looking through the line here. That's an interesting thought. Maybe they didn't want likenesses of the actual characters. Mm-hmm. But there are a few of them that are actual likenesses of people. It could be that that was the thought, and they didn't want to license it further. But I don't know if they thought that deeply into it. I, the way they look like they picked figures is it looked like they went to a local store and picked up whatever was available, put out 36 figures, and said, let's sculpt these, almost with little rhyme and reason. You know, um, I wonder, though, now that you mention it, because there are less humanoid figures, again, conjecture, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. The, the kids back then wanted the the aliens and they wanted the little robots and you know they wanted oh, you know, little naughty sure. items and especially if Colombia didn't get the 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 range of Kenner figures that a lot of other countries got you can understand why they went down that route. Oh yes, no, definitely. Yeah. At the end of the day, who wants a boring little small man? That's right. And especially, I wonder how many Obi Wan Kenobi said on the shelves <laughs> from Kenner. Yeah. You know, and they always, you know, the question is always, why didn't they make a Grand Moff Tarkin? Well, you know, what 10-year-old kid wants to play with a Grand Moff Tarkin? <laughs> There's not much you can do with him other than, say, destroy that planet. <laughs> I, I, I've recently some, seen some Master of the Universe Yuppies on eBay, and, and they're not cheap, are they? Did they do other toy lines that you think that Star Wars collectors would be interested in? Yes, yeah, sure. You know, I'll tell you something. There's a lot of great, lo- not everything's a 12 back. You know, and there's a lot of this great vintage material out there that, you know, is still less known or less described. Most of it's known, but not well talked about. There's a great line out of England, you know, and everybody talks about the Helix Death Star Sharpener and all the great Helix school supplies that were made. But HCF really put out some fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. And they have a line of pencil tops that are definitely based off the Kenner line and are beautifully painted, and actually are, in a way, as interesting as the UP figures, and they don't go for a lot of money. They go for a few bucks, and it's almost like they're not appreciated. And they, they have a line of carrying Vader and, and the Royal Guard, and Han Solo Hoth, and Gamorrean Guard, and an R2-D2, and a Yoda, and they're, they're really spectacularly painted. I have a set of those as well, too, and I was thinking of writing up about those as a blog as well, because there are a lot of underappreciated great miniatures and, and other lines that were licensed that were sent out to other companies that are overlooked often. Um, and, you know, I love the Kenner stuff too more than anything else, but there's some fantastic stuff from other lines and other places, certainly around the world. 
Yeah, I think in your article you've mentioned a company called Panrico. Oh, sure. Panrico at the same time made a line. They were in Portugal and Spain, mostly out of Spain. Um, they made a line of 20 figures, and they were all based off the animated droids and Ewok series. Mm-hmm. And they're great little figures, but they're not based on the Kenner figures. They're all on their own individual sculpts in different poses. If you're a droids and Ewoks collector, they're really fun. They're rare, but they're much more common than a Yuppie figure. What's nice is because they're a round number of 20, and we already know that 20 exists, and there are five different color variants in it, it makes for a nice set of a hundred. Certain ones, particularly certain yellow and orange ones, are more difficult to come by. So to reach a goal of completing all the Panricos is hard. But to put together a set of mixed color ones, which I also think looks better, is not that daunting. Putting together a set of UPs is probably a lifetime affair. You've said these are obviously cheap plastic uh, toys and they're designed to be that way, but I think the detail and the design on them is absolutely fantastic. Um, I don't know if your shots, because um, you've got some very, very high quality shots, I don't know if it's perhaps exaggerating some of the detail, but they look really, really good. Oh, it's off my it's off my iPhone, so I'm glad you think that way. <laughs> but no, the detail is really spectacular, and they really do look that way. Actually, looking at them in person, it, they're much more interesting for many aspects, and you can turn them around and hold them. You know, I just got another interesting one. So I've been looking into these for so many years that I've run across so many other lines. And I ran across a piece, which I still haven't gotten yet. It's on its way from Colombia, which is a UP um, food premium just like these. And, you know, I didn't know what line it was from, but on the back is stamped LFL. And so it's part of the Star Wars line, I guess, or they put the wrong copyright on it. But it's a motorcycle, and it's the most bizarre little plastic pink motorcycle. It's the right size, the right shape, and it says LFL. So I wonder, after writing all that article and, and doing all my research, that it, was there a vehicle also? And I'm curious when it arrives, if I can actually put a figure on it and see if it'll fit. <laughs> Perhaps there's a mix in translation with speeder bike then somewhere. I, you know, that was my thought too. I said maybe they're trying to make a speeder bike, and they said, we're not going to sculpt that. We're just going to sculpt a motorcycle and call it a speeder bike. Which in a way makes it cooler because it's stamped LFL and it looks like a Harley. Yehuda, <laughs> I've found this truly fascinating. It's been an absolutely pleasure talking to you about that. Many thanks for your time today and all of your articles on the SWCA blog, which we've discussed some of them on the show before. Many thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, absolutely. It was great being on and uh, hope to speak to you soon. Thanks again. So, guys, I think we all agree that that was a tremendous interview with um, Yehuda, but that clearly is an interactive interview because he's pushed a lot of questions back out. For example, one of the things that we don't know anything about is how were these packaged together? Nobody's seen any packaging. Nobody's um, seen any advertising materials. I've had a spare couple of hours last weekend, and I've done some youtube colombian 1982-1983 video searches for tv adverts and every time a UP advert come on i got excited and thought come on is this is this going to have something and there was nothing there um nothing about star wars so it looks so that this was a very very short-lived promotion and we might never know the answers but hopefully somebody can come forward with some UP information and you know get in contact with yehuda and, and share everything you've got the moon with the rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes I've got a feeling that your next topic might be something to do with reproduction items. Um, Rich, repro poppy, repro sticky, repro warming.
been a while since we've actually touched on anything, Repo. And I think you and Jez both said either last month or the month before, look, we need to start talking about some of the Repo things that we're seeing quite frequently on eBay. And the first one were the Repo coin stickers. And, and Jez, you said you wanted to talk about those because they were becoming more and more frequent on eBay. So rather than just go down the whole Repo's bad route, I think this is going to be a bit about advice. So Jez, what have you got to say about these Repo coin stickers? Yeah, cheers, Rich. I mean, is it advice? Is it not? Am I actually publicising what this guy's doing? Because it's quite a difficult thing. But what came up in my eBay feed was uh, a repro uh, coin offer sticker for people to buy. Uh, quite clearly advertised as repo, quite clearly repo, but very, very good. Uh, the the quality extremely good in, in comparison to to what you see on a normal card which we've discussed in the past and these are selling for a pound i was just looking at them and just looking at how you can you can track these down and it was actually quite simple it's all in the feedback now i know um one of the things is with the feedback you can obviously see what people have been buying uh, and i was able to see the pretty much the identity and the feedback count of everyone who had bought one of these stickers so it's just one of those things i was thinking that if i was in the market and looking at buying a uh, carded figure with a coin off a sticker there could just be a chance that you whoever was selling it on ebay or what have you if it was being sold on ebay you could potentially trace it back and find that they were in fact a person who had bought one of those things very very slim chance unlikely but it was just one of those things i was looking into but the uh the quality of the actual sticker where it says coin um, it was just too vivid. It was just too black. And what I've seen on, on the other cards, they were a little bit more worn. Even the ones on the Star Wars Collector's Archives, a little bit more worn. So on a really, really good um, quality photo of this reproduction item, it was, uh, yeah, with the black font on the coin was definitely too vivid and too striking. But this guy has done so much. I had no idea that reproduction items had just gone off the way they were. Really, really, really quite terrible. The fact that he's now doing... All of the mini rigs, um, Power Droid stickers, R2-D2 stickers we've seen for ages. He's now doing more modern stuff as well. X-Wing, Y-Wing, A-Wing, various different things. What did strike me is uh, a little bit odd is the droids, ATL Interceptor. You know, we're going into some seriously non-common items. The vintage carry case. You know the vintage carry case with the all the different name tags to go into the carry case is now doing complete repro um, reproduction stickers for that now jez i think you're right there um you can't tell some of them that they look too new am i right in that a roll of these was found and some of them were cut up and ported out um are they going to be quite difficult to tell whether they've been applied after the fact well i think in about 2014 there was a roll of original ones found wasn't there and and auctioned off and then they were split up. Um, but I think they were selling for about $150. So that's not really going to be economically viable, is it, to buy one of those just to cover up a little bit of sticker damage or so. So they would have been purchased for collectors to keep as, you know, an unapplied sticker. Someone did sell on eBay recently a carefully peeled off sticker, which they had then put into a little acrylic case. And I think they sold for about £30 believe it or not. Uh, I'm not aware of, uh, of a role of these reproduction ones going. Okay, so some great advice there, Jez. But around about the same time, 
and I might be wrong here, Stu, but I think these are new, as in, you know, very recent. We started to see some reproduction, poppy catalogues um, appearing. Uh, what can you tell us about those? Well, there's not a great deal of information for these about. I did have a little browse. It was actually Matt Fox that brought it to the attention of the forum. Um, he had highlighted an eBay user who's selling repro poppy catalogues for £12.50 a pop. Right. Um, he does state in his advert that they are reproductions and he's he's claiming that to buy one catalog loose is a hundred pounds which i don't know whether that's that's true now i don't know too much you know i haven't bought any poppy stuff for a while so i'm not sure whether that's whether that's a fact or not but uh, and but he's, they state them high quality to me the image looks very slightly blurred i try to study the pictures as much as i could on ebay there's no as far as i can tell no reproduction mark or anything so i don't know how long this is going to be before they're passed into poppy boxes and being sold um but at the moment no one's got one to hand to be able to compare so it's a bit of a dark area but they are out there i hadn't heard of these being produced until that fred not even just poppy ones other catalogs that came in the toys yeah the um, area 51 catalogs did the power of the force right catalogs and they did the uh the pally toy death star catalog interestingly the poppy ones i saw for sale and i was just about to buy them all uh, without even reading the description thinking wow that's really cheap um, why not just mark these stickers and these catalogs with repro stuff i mean the area 51 uh, catalogs have a stamp on the back that says that it's uh, reproduction so why not just put like a little if you if you put these things into things like photoshop you can just put a little r on there i don't get it whether it's um atl interceptor uh, sticker sheets or uh, free sticker offer if you're going to make these why not just mark them it's interesting you're you saying that Grant. obviously we went on the palatoy factory tour which we're coming up to shortly while we were there there was an, an action man event going on and we had an hour or so before the tour so i had a little wander around to look at it because you know we all had action man action man is rife with reproduction and everyone's content with it but everything there was box flats for literally all the different dolls you could think of but all of them are massively marked reproduction box. So perhaps it's a bit more accepted because it is so highlighted in there. seems that Star Wars, it only seems this dubious stuff is uh, going on. Rich, I just want to go back to this complete loser, though, who's selling some stuff on eBay because it does grit me a little bit. Um, He seems to have stopped selling at the moment. Future Print Design 2015 is his eBay account um, from Taunton in Somerset. And he puts in his in his sales posts, I've been Star Wars fan and collector for most of my life and a printer for many years. If you're a fan, you shouldn't be putting this stuff out there. He's talking about restoration projects. He's talking about various different bits and pieces. Oh, yeah, this is my project. This can be your project. And he's going on and on. Mate, you're not a fan. You, he's reproducing Ralph McQuarrie prints. So he's now selling reproduction Ralph McQuarrie prints. I think there's enough Ralph McQuarrie prints out there which aren't that expensive. He's doing free uh, FET coin offers. He is doing so much, but as I said at the moment, he's just gone off. But Future Print Design 2015, you're not a Star Wars fan. You're just a... Star approaching. Estimated time to firing range, 15 minutes. Okay, so on to the next on your list, Rich. Vectors is put to the test. Um, Intriguing title. Well, as we know, there's been a big Vectus auction again recently, and the shall we just say it hasn't went as smoothly as what Vectus had hoped. If you read the complaints, there was a lot of people talking about the fact that they bid, and then 
it cut out or they didn't know they'd actually won the auction and people who had been thought they'd won the auction they didn't so there was quite a lot of um, anger there because you could you would if you put a lot aside of quite a lot of money and you thought you won the auction you hadn't then people pissed off and, and we all know their technology is really poor at vectors the fact that they're selling items which aren't being checked properly by not not checked properly as in their reproduction items and they're just being you know put out there the fact that they're annoying collectors by sort of not declaring that stuff might or might not be dubious they are well out of their depth they are, but you have to remember they are also an auction auction house. Someone comes along, they want to sell a lot of stuff, they put it on. They don't even have to do any research, really. I mean, the you know, auction house. No, 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 not, not just the, not just the uh, reproduction stuff or any of that kind of stuff. The fact that they're an auction house that can't take bids properly. Yeah, that that is incredibly normal. poor. I think Re- really poor because they are you know auctions now are mostly done online, and they do use invaluable. But they're using their own website as well. And Valuable seems to work okay with people bidding on there. So I don't know how that links up. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Because it they, seems to have two places. How could... I mean, they're hurting their own profit. I mean, just from a business idea, it's like... I, no chance. No chance. Yeah. Like, this would be... Uh, they, they would not get any money from Trump on Dragon's Den or whatever. <laughs> Interesting. But what I'm struggling with is how they can have two places to go and bid. They must be interacting with each other all the same thing because you can go and bid live on Invaluable, I believe, and you can bid live on their website, which is kind of strange, doesn't work very well. So I'm not quite sure how that's working together, and that's that's why I kind of want a bit of clarity because if you've got two places bidding in, you know, if if one thing just chops because because of a connection issue, then you're going to lose bids, or you're going to have someone bidding, you know, more for an item. And someone might say, actually, I want to bid a thousand on that, and the person wins with three hundred because there was a glitch it's, in the system. I mean, that can't do anyone any any good, so I don't understand how they haven't sorted that out. So, you know, I put that to them and go about technology because, you know, they, they did say... I think you... Do you remember? It must have been over a year ago when Cathy did come on and we talked about technology. And she said, you know, blah, 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 they're, they're currently looking into a new system and stuff. And that hasn't that literally hasn't happened. So whether they meant they were going to go with Invaluable and use them, but uh, just seems really odd. Like you say, they must have been making cash out of that Frank Beach's auction. Must have been making th- tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds out of the last year, out of uh, especially Star Wars based stuff. Yeah, I mean, and inve- inve- invest it into having the yeah. world's greatest auction site. Well, yeah, I mean, a website. I mean, it wouldn't cost a fraction of that. I mean, you could probably get a really good one built for twenty to thirty thousand pounds, I'd imagine, and that would pay itself back very quickly. You know, put your premium up for for six months, you get it back. Just, insane. Yeah, it is. It is insane. It's it's really weird how you'd have thought with all the technology out there, and I said Invaluable has a perfectly good website for that sort of stuff that they're not using, and people are going onto the Vector site and getting pissed off with it. But uh, I think the most interesting one is the one that Rich kind of uncovered this whole thing with. Is it the footers, Rich, and some of the Marcano cards that were yeah. dubious? Yeah, it's the footers, and it wasn't me. It was Stefan Forecourt had spotted um, some something that didn't seem quite right. So it's the resealed Marcano's. Some of them now have footers that weren't there when they were owned by other people in the past. I, I've linked to the website on the, on the show notes of my thing, and it seems to not go to the place I linked to. So whether they've removed some of the stuff, I don't know. It's a bit, a bit weird. What do Aston's use? Um, Aston's also they use um, uh, saleroom.com. Right, and does that work for them? Uh, yeah, but they also have a very bad track record in just putting, like I said, some auction houses will just put stuff up there and they won't care. You know, if they sell this stuff and someone's got a problem with it, they'll deal with it there and then. But yeah, they obviously want to sell stuff to people because they make more money out of it. They don't want to do it. 
but if they don't, you know, I mean, why why should auction house who sells mostly like you know, antique stuff who might suddenly once or twice every year get some Star Wars things in to employ a specialist or get someone in, it might not be worth it. They might think, well, we're only going to make you know a couple of hundred pounds out of that. It might cost us fifty quid to get someone in to look at this stuff. So, you know, what what's the point? And they and they do the uh, solder scene, which is a kind of like their their get out clause, which is it's up to you to come to look at the items and bid on them as you see fit. That's what they that's what auctions call solder scene. You know, if you if if you don't make the effort to come and look at it, then it's tough. But obviously with internet auctions now, that happens probably less and less because people will phone up and say, hey, what does it look like? You know, and they say, well, it looks really good. Mm. <laughs> and then you have to go got, by the pictures. But they've got people who verify their stuff. They've got Star Wars collectors who verify their stuff. They have, but what happens if the Star Wars collector doesn't know about that stuff, or isn't available that day, or doesn't give the right advice? I mean, it's not it's not a hundred percent method, is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, earlier on you said that there were buyers who were annoyed because they had put the bid on, which should have been a winning bid, then wasn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a buyer individually, I feel sorry for you. What about the sellers? What oh, about yeah. the sellers who've got loads of stuff to sell? I'd be furious. Yeah, I'd but be like, well, you're not getting. 20% or whatever it is you're going to charge me. Exactly, but both sides can lose out there. I mean, the technology is letting everybody down because that item might go for much lower than that. I mean, I think we saw somebody bid a good amount and they were, I can't remember if they were usurped or just didn't go through and they were quite upset that they thought they'd won the auction. I mean, I think, I think in fact they were apologised to by Vector, so at least they did deal with it. But I think it's, it happened more than once. And I think that's got to be sorted out because, I mean, it will just turn people away or, you know, annoy people, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's that's not the only auction house in the world that struggles with this sort of thing. I mean, you know, remember auction houses have only been going online recently. You know, the last few years, let's say the last five years, they've really embraced it. I mean, auctions I've been to, I've always gone to the auction if I really want the stuff. And I'm talking about non-Star Wars items because I can go and look at it and actually pick it up, touch it, and go, okay, yeah, I'm happy with that damage or happy with that condition. Um. I think if I was going to spend several thousands of pounds, I would go to the auction and have a look at it. Okay, the Palatoy Factory Tour. Well, this was organised by Lawrence Dyer, and it was something that he sounded out... How long ago was it now, would you say? About three months? Maybe a touch yeah, more? Yeah. Yeah? And, you know, there was quite a lot of interest in this you know, going to the site of the Palatoy Factory, and initially we weren't sure exactly what it was, and, and then he said, oh, well... I've got Bob Breakin to come down to give a talk and to do a tour, and there was a lot of excitement built up. And unfortunately, I couldn't make it um, because Father's Farm was a following weekend. But um, Stu, I think you took one for the team, as did Pete. And well, over to you guys. What did, what did you see when you got there? I'll just, just just give you a quick overview of the day because we do talk about this in a, a brief interview we've got coming up. Basically, we we arrived at the Palatoy Factory. Uh, what it was the Palatoy Factory? And there was an action man convention going on and Bob Breakin and two other members of former members of staff were there and they walked us around around the factory. And now it wasn't an exclusive tour. There was people on from the action man convention on it as well. So there's probably, I would say, 30, 35 people doing that tour. And we then uh, got into our cars and we drove down to Baker Street, which was the site of the Palatoy factory workers shop. So it was a shop just designated for anyone who worked for Palatoy. Then we headed over to the goods warehouse, which Lawrence's granddad uh, designed, as we discussed in his interview back 18 months ago. Uh, Pete joined us for that. And amazingly, the warehouse was actually quite interesting to look around, wasn't it, Pete? I think 
you'd agree it was it was more interesting than I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, it was because you were. I think I was saying during the interview as well that in, in, in our piece that um, because you are you always hear about Palatoy and factories and this stuff was produced you know in the UK and, uh, and 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 packaged and boxed up that you you got that sense perspective when you entered the, the especially the warehouse that how much stuff was going out and how big Star Wars well we know how big it is but you know you actually saw it physically you're thinking this thing was probably filled full of toys. So uh, you got you get perspective of of how enormous the, the hobby is, you know. And as you always say, there's loads of Star Wars stuff out there. It's not it's not particularly rare as such, and uh, yeah. and it was proof of that. Yeah, and it was a good day. We at the end of the day, we all went back to a bar, had something to eat and a few drinks, and uh, just talked Star Wars. But we did have a did catch up with both uh, Lawrence Dyer, who was the organizer for the day, and Simon McCohen, who was also on the tour, and me and Pete had a little bit of a chat. So over to that. Right, joining me and Pete this evening is Lawrence Dyer. Good evening, Lawrence. Good evening. And Simon McCohen. Evening, chaps. On the 3rd of December, us four plus four other lovely gents all did the Palatoy tour, which you had arranged, Lawrence. Could you give us a brief overview of what the tour was? Yeah, the the tour was a a tour of the, what I'd call the three main warehouses in, in Colville and Ashby, starting at the main production plant in Colville. Um, then briefly on to Baker Street site, which was the mainline train warehouse and staff shop, and then on to the finished goods warehouse in Ashby. The tour really sort of read from an evening or an afternoon on a Saturday that I had with Frank Muse here, where we went out to the sites, and unfortunately a lot of them weren't open, and there was an action man AM Con 16 at Colville, being run at Colville on the 3rd of December, so that just you know the brain worked and i use that as a platform really to take yourselves and some of the collectors around the warehouses we go back to the start we started off at the palatoy factory in colville and we were lucky enough to be shown around by bob breakin bob was chief designer for palatoy or former chief designer and and bob mainly worked with action man but he was there from 1968 until until the mid 80s yeah bob was able to effectively give a quite a large crowd of us a, a walk around telling us what happened in what building when where how they moved through time from what building and and you know the different departments and, and different production it was also there with john holmes and john holmes was the production manager so he was able to tell us about the processes of, of the production and the different event lines of the americans coming in and, and increasing production with you know moving on to conveyors of 40 meters long from from smaller conveyors and where the various different things happened in, in the different buildings I'd just like to say a massive thank you for hooking me up with Bob Breakin. He has agreed now to come onto the show to do an interview. He had a part to play in the old Palatoy Death Star, so joy to get him on, yeah. Si, you're obviously on that tour with us. What was the most surprising thing for you that you saw? I was sort of surprised how unremarkable and small and nondescript the buildings were. And when you think about the quantity of toys that went through there, an ant's nest of activity uh, back in the day there was that one warehouse towards one end or, or factory unit where bob says oh they put together these dolls and those dolls and oh yeah star wars was in there as well that one warehouse alone or, or, or factory unit alone i would have thought was too small to assemble the star wars stuff that went through there but it was surprising how small scale it all was Lawrence, we then moved on to Baker Street. Could you explain what Baker Street is to the listeners? Yeah, well, Baker Street was, for me, more the the site of the staff shop, but 
to be fair, that was only a small part of Baker Street. Baker Street's a, a warehouse that sort of stuffed away. And when, when I initially started researching it a year, year and a half ago or something, anything I saw suggested it had been knocked down, bulldozed and was ready for housing. But it's in quite a strange little location, actually. Um, everything around there's run down. There's a few other buildings of significance and quite a, a large void area which has been knocked down which used to be michael greaves which was a, a needle makers so yes the baker street's not really known about again quite a quirky little building obviously i've, ne- I've never had access inside never been able to make contact with the owners yeah so that's that was baker street that, that's where for me the staff shop but more more importantly i suppose for palatal it was their main line train distribution warehouse well, i quite enjoyed just walking around there it's just just that kind of feeling of what it would have been like back in the old days i know you enjoyed that site don't didn't you si oh it was great it was just such a sense of history as lauren says the uh, factory next to it was just a pile of rubble and there was uh, a, a fantastic looking bakery that had been burnt down basically and then you had this little rundown derelict warehouse to the staff shop at the back it was sort of quite melancholy because it was it was decaying and and you know again you imagine the activity from back there in the day and you see it now but it, it was nice to be able to wander around it undisturbed yeah it was good definitely size and spoons is highlight of the day we, we went off to lount tip <laughs> <laughs> Pete, yeah you missed you missed a highlight here. we basically drove into the local recycling unit and then drove back out it was brilliant but <laughs> lawrence you had to explain to the man the garbage man what we were doing there didn't you yeah, well, I just told him we were driving through and it was an area of significance and he just looked at me a little bit odd. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah that, that, I mean, to be fair, the, the relevance... That, I mean, there was a... The last time I'd visited it, when me and Frank went around the area, there was um, there was some gates open. You could you could walk up towards the back end of, obviously, where the old dumping ground was for, for landfill, really. So I just wanted to show where the area was in comparison to Ashby. So you, so you understood the full, I suppose, production process and distribution network. So you could see, effectively, old toy lines were bombing or not selling, and they needed that space in the warehouse because Colville was just a constant churn out in a, a production line. Space was vital in, in Ashby if it was telling they needed to down it so yeah and then it went down half a mile down the road to, to Lount. and then we moved on to the goods warehouse in ashby de la zouche lawrence we had you back on i think it was november last year on episode 19 we discussed it quite in quite a great depth that your granddad had kind of designed and built the goods warehouse and we were fortunate enough for us all to go in and see this building. Uh, again, through my research, I've seen a lot of stuff that people haven't. So that's, I mean, that's, I suppose, where this is all bred from, just sharing the knowledge of, of the whole infrastructure of Palatoy. We were met by one of their employees who, to be fair, are very humble. He was He's the manager for the company who owns Howard Tenens, their northern warehouses, and drove down from Wigan. I assumed he was going to get a local employee to unlock when we got on site, obviously walked around the building. We looked at the fire system, in a sense, or the pit at the back. And then we got access into the building. And the first area we went into was the low rise. But again, I've not got it fully documented. I've just been talking to someone the last week who we used to work there. And the low rise for me is where all the action happened. Yeah, that's where the shipping labels would be applied for and, and everything was stacked and, and loaded and, and off they went. So I'd imagine two-thirds of the staff would have been operating from that section, I'd have thought. And then we went through into, into the main warehouse itself, which is quite vast. Uh, you, you, you say quite vast it was it was huge in there wasn't it and if you were thinking of that you was once stacked top to bottom with star wars toys and tiny tears action man pete could, could you describe the actual size of that place it was so big you could probably get me and simon standing on each other's heads and almost touch the ceiling it was that much Stu, it was that tall no it was phenomenal it was 
I don't know, it must have been seven or eight shelves or things high. It just went on forever. I've, I've never seen it like it. I've never seen a, a factory kind of kind of that big for what might have had toys in it. It's absolutely ridiculous size. I mean, you, you could probably get a good couple of football pitches in there and a, probably a few stands in there. I mean, it, was, it was enormous. And, and as you said, to visualise that stat with, you know, mini rigs or, or carded figures or boxes of Star Wars stuff, I mean, just goes to show how ridiculous the size of Star Wars, you know, toys is. I think that was the main thing. I think was visualising what that would have been like as it was just coming in and being churned back out. Falcons and the 30 backs <laughs> sitting it, on those shelves. It had been trucks of stuff just coming in and then going out again with just filled up with, you know, stuff that we, we see every day on Facebook forums and that sort of thing. Just phenomenal amounts of, of stuff. And you think, you know, it's, it was a daily operation. It wasn't like it was there sitting around for two or three <laughs> months. It had been there going into these shops that we uh, we all loved as kids. Ridiculous. What one nice little touch that day was, Lawrence, you took us around the, the warehouse and gave us some information and you knew. What was quite a nice touch, which I'm sure Cy will agree on, was that you bought a shipping box with you that you'd owned. I think it was a mini rig shipping box. And you put it in the middle of the floor in this warehouse just to see the size of this box compared to the room. That was an interesting little experiment. As Pete says, just to, just to comprehend how many of those you could have fit in there. The scale of it, if you said this was the main distribution for, for toys in the country now... You, you would have believed it. But in the 70s, and only 40% of the toy market, it was just, it was phenomenal. And to see the, the tiny little mini-rig box dwarfed, and that, that was in the low-rise part of the building. Yeah, that was a nice little touch. Good thinking there, Lawrence. Outside the box, quite literally. <laughs> During that walk, I, I did say to the bloke who'd driven down from Wigan, I said, have you ever had Star Wars <laughs> geeks come to look around the warehouse? And he was like, no, never in my life <laughs> have I had this kind of request. So it was a bit new for him. But he was a bit of a Star Wars fan himself, wasn't he? He was uh, trying to tell me that he kind of understood it. Yeah, I think he, he, he was saying he understood it. I think there's something dormant inside him that the Force can be awakened there, I believe. Lawrence, you then took us into like a little side room and showed us had like the blueprints, articles from certain I can't think what the magazine, what the newspaper type thing was called now. Palitalk. 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 Palitalk, that was it. Palitalk nineteen seventy nine, which was the newsletter. So that that was um on in the nineteen seventy May nineteen seventy nine, warehouse was featured in there. You've obviously got the blueprints from your granddad's designs. Walking round it, did you notice much change or was it quite similar to what you'd initially seen? You know, well, from, from they're starting to slowly start to to develop the site to make it more bespoke for their needs so they put a few last year put a few new bays in the back so they've, they've started to make some amendments as a whole the, the warehouse is is pretty much as it was but i think over the next year or two they're going to start modifying it and i know you all saw the fire hydrant as such i think they're, they're going to remove that chop that out and various other things so I think everybody wanted to take the fire hydrant home with them, didn't they? <laughs> a lot of talk about that at one point. And Pete, I think you were walking around a factory going, oh, yeah, that sign's original. I'd love to own that. Well, yeah, because it had some of the old signs. I mean, not the old signs, but I imagine signs from a various eras because i mean things like no smoking signs i mean you you wouldn't have a no smoking sign in a factory for for quite a while because you just accept now that any kind of production or or warehousing you know smoking is you know out the building around the corner in a little shed i mean just to have it in a factory these days would, would be surprising but um you know 25 30 years ago smoking was was an issue i mean i've seen many factories i've been in in the past now i'm an old man where uh, people were like operating printing machines having a having a cigarette on the side you know just not seen as a, a big issue back then so to see those signs still up and they were some of them pretty old i, I imagine we, we could have uh, <coughs> taken a few <laughs> 
Lawrence, something I did want to bring up with you, and you, you did panic me a couple of times with this item while you were carrying it around the factory, <laughs> was when I had you on the podcast, you said to me that your holy grail was a bottle of champagne, which was handed out to people that were involved in the job. Is that correct? For building it? Yeah, it was, um, again, George, when I initially met Bob, um, when I was researching the, the initial thread that I, I put up, posted up on the forum, Bob had told me about you know the opening i had a document i gave you all a copy of and um with all the statistics and that was from the launch party of, of the warehouse from from the first of august 1975 and bob had told me about a, a bottle of champagne that was given out palatoy champagne so yes and you know he mentioned that it was a fool not to have you know even just kept the bottle well i suppose you do what you do in life don't you and you don't think you know this might be worth something in 40 years or well, you might not back then we might now but wrote it in the article and my uncle viewed it and reminisced seeing it referred to it as a bottle of cognac and my granddad still had it and he'd asked my granddad what it was and he told him that it was from the palatoy factory so i obviously couldn't ask my granddad because he passed a few years ago and then my other uncle who is the, the current architect um out of the blue sent me a message a couple of months ago telling me that he'd found this bottle and passed it on to me delighted to, to get a 41 year old bottle of champagne probably the only existing bottle unopened which was presented or given to the architect of their warehouse and that's all stated on the label isn't it as well yes yeah yeah so we believe this is the only bottle left in existence well i would assume so yeah i mean who who else would keep a bottle i'm so glad you managed to find your holy grail item you know because it's kind of like really was a holy grail item where you didn't know it existed yeah yeah so i was delighted when i got it over the moon it was not much makes my jaw jaw drop in this day and age but when i received that email i was um overwhelmed please please just leave it on a shelf because you were throwing it around like tom cruise at cocktail (laughs) and i was thinking what's he doing <laughs> and then you gave it to Sai, who who looked like he was looking after it too much, because that's normally when you drop them. But Sai's so tall, you know, you don't, don't give it to the tall guy, give it to the short yeah. guy. You should give it to Stu, because then it's got le- you know less distance to fall. I mean, it's about three you know meters to fall from Sai's hands. Out of the tall Sai, what was your highlight of the day? It surprised me, but it was the finished goods warehouse at Ashby, because I did think uh, it's going to be a warehouse. The, the, you know what's to see but when you went in there it was the last thing so you sort of got into the mindset through the day that nothing was the same anymore and that that the site in Colville the factories there were now some frankly run down business centre the uh, mainline train distribution point was derelict and soon to be demolished so it was um it was, it was all pretty grim but then you turn up there and the site that's been there the, the building that's been there for over 40 years is as relevant in industry today as it was then it's still there it's still being used the guy that was t- taking us around was talking about the modernizations that it's going to go through and yet at the time you were just very aware that the history was still around you like uh, Lawrence says the the fire hydrants and the the reservoir at the back the sprinkler system was still in place, all these things that you'd heard about. And as Pete says, the, the no smoking signs and, and what have you. At the back of the warehouse, the, the guy wasn't aware. There was one roller shutter that was just phenomenally tall. And that's coming from someone who's phenomenally tall. It, it just didn't make any sense at all. It was about twice the height of an Arctic lorry. You thought, what what on earth would go through there? And then Lawrence mentioned, what, what were those... Um, 
pallet trucks called Lawrence? The uh... oh, it was the Maestro tr- trucks. Yeah, I mean I, I'd seen that before, and, and it, it is a, a weird odd sized building, and I never really thought, thought about it then until I think it was Pete had suggested what an odd sort of little room, and there was a gantry at the top, and you know what? The more I think about it now, putting things into to logic, that must have been been the service centre sort of mechanic section for for the Maestro trucks, because I mean they stretched up forty three feet high. And obviously they're machines, so they, they must have been needed some sort of servicing and engine overhaul. So, so yeah, it was a, a funny little building. Well, I must admit, my day out, Lawrence, I, I really, really enjoyed it from the start to the finish. I kind of felt like started at the Colville, and every every place we went on took it up a notch. You know, I loved the tour of Colville, and then we kind of went to Baker Street, which I found really interesting, and then finishing that goods warehouse was just kind of like the crescendo. So it really, really was a great day. And obviously, well, a few of us went to. Uh, had a couple of beers in the evening, chatted a bit more Star Wars, got a bit tipsy, and then me and Simon obviously ended up in a, a hotel room together watching a, a programme about genital warts. So, <laughs> Lawrence, thank you ever so much for organising it. I'm sure the lads that aren't on here as well, there was also um, James Martin, Frank Muse, Paul Smith, and Andy Norton. I think that's the lot, wasn't it? I think it was, yeah. yeah. Are, we not, sure gonna, they... are we not even going to talk about the landfill mystery? Just... No, no, no specifics, just about the whole thing, just for like, like the fun of it to wind people up a bit. General. That soil sampling and when we found those heads, <laughs> yeah, the non-sonic welded pieces. I wasn't bothered about those, it was more the shipping case of Yak Face baggies. I mean, I know the box was obviously... <laughs> what made me laugh was when we found that 30-back box of FX7s and uh, <laughs> sized to depreciate in value massively. Oh, well, that's, that's gone, mate. You get rid of it because there was like 50 in that box. That's right, I saw it, the writing was on the wall. <laughs> well, gents, thank you ever so much for your time this evening. We really do appreciate it and look forward to the next one, Lawrence. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you, mate. Well, that was absolutely fascinating, Stu. For those who didn't make it this time round, are there any plans to do a follow-up? Well, it's 40 years next year, isn't it, for Star Wars? And Lawrence has an inkling that Palatoy may well do something like they were doing for the Action Man. The Action Man site, is where it was, was quite small. Yeah, yeah, I went to the... Um, afterwards, I just had a quick yeah. um, look around. Yeah, it was, it was, a, okay. it was so quite a, a memory the, thing. The area was about half the size of... The Farbus from Hall. Yeah, easily. And then a couple of side rooms off and some talks. Now, Lawrence seems to think they may go down the road of Star Wars. I don't think a unit that size would cope with a Star Wars event. But then saying that actually, it wasn't advertised anywhere, that Action Man event. I mean, there wasn't even a but, sign on the door, was there, or anything? Just... No, no. So, Lawrence seems to think there is a chance, but I wouldn't hold your breath.
Ready? Be with us. Get to PG-13. Get your tickets now. I got my seats last night online. Midnight show, 12 a.m. Hopes are gonna be high as a TIE fighter.
Right, this month I want to welcome to the Vintage Rebellion, Matt Fox, a UK collector, and I think it's safe to say, Matt, quite a vast collector. Welcome to the Vintage Rebellion. Hello, Stu. Hello, Grant. Hello, all you lovely listeners at home. And hello, Matt of the future, who's going to be listening to this as well, because I love this podcast. You're certainly a staple each month when it comes out. It sort of uh, makes my day when this podcast arrives. No, thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Before we get too much into your collecting, Matt, back last Christmas at the end of 2015, you had an exhibition in Canterbury at the Beanie. Uh, May the toys be with you? Yes. Can you explain? We had you on at the time, but can you just explain what that exhibition was? Well, we put on a uh, exhibition of vintage Star Wars toys and posters at my um, local museum, the the Beanie, interestingly named, and uh, it did really well. We had over 2,500 uh, visitors on the first day, and then it went on to be the um, actually the best attended exhibition that they've ever had and um you know they've had mayonnaise and uh they've had the Eni blyton collection and all, all, of, all of these kind of big legitimate things so i think it's quite funny that we can go in there with a with star wars and actually sort of claim the most attended exhibition but um it was a mixture of uh, vintage star wars toys and posters and and a bit of a sort of a fun dress up area as well uh, for kids and um yeah it was a nice free exhibition for local people and people that are not quite so local to uh, to come along to. I must admit, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually popped in four times over this stay. <laughs> so uh, there was so much to look in there. You had, like you just said, you had posters. You had the complete loose set with a variant of each figure. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we had a, a whole set of Lucy's and each loose figure was sort of paired up with a variant twin. So it was a chance to sort of uh, go along and play and spot the difference and um, a chance to see some of these unusual um, foreign variants in the flesh. Final Cape Jar was in there, Burgundy, Bib, all those kind of things, wasn't it? it was yeah, awful. it's one of my one of my collecting goals early on was um I, I collected um a, a loose set and then I collected a second loose set and uh, the idea was that these would be for my two uh, kids once they're older. What what am I going to go for next? So I thought I've got to go for a variant. I've got to match each uh, each figure's got to have the variant with it and um just try and get the most interesting variant to, to pair up with each figure they actually look great when you display them like that with this sort of big long line of uh, a luke up there with a the glass light bib in his brown and then bib in his red and uh um, the Takara C-3PO alongside a, a normal C-3PO and um and you know and even if you don't know anything about Star Wars which um you know, quite frankly, probably most of the visitors of the exhibition wouldn't have known um, exactly what they were looking at with the variants. They could still see um, that the figures were different. Also in there, you had the early bird set was there, wasn't it? Uh, I saw a Luke with a DT Sabre. One unit which was kind of like what could have been kind of range, wasn't there? A kind of like a custom range. We'd had figures that should have been made, maybe. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, I was fascinated when I found out about the um, Kenner's unproduced toys. Uh, at the tail end of the toy line, um, Kenner made a uh, binder presentation to, to Lucasfilm and said, this is how we want to continue things. And uh, they had some good ideas, um, such as Gra- Grand Moff Tarkin. They had um, the Banther, the TIE Bomber, um, the Tandem X-Wing, and um, Imperial Outpost, and several other um, toys that they would have actually um, produced if Lucasfilm had sort of... Uh, given it the uh, the stamp of approval but um sadly at that point in history the toys were already being discounted and um interested waned too far uh, without a film to back them up he-man and transformers and these, these other toys were uh, sort of muscling in on the shelves and um in the end they decided they to call it a day but i went back and i i found what i could find out about each of these items um in some cases, they had descriptions. In some cases, they had sketches. In some cases, they did actually have kit-bashed models. I, I tried to produce them, to or to reproduce them, um, just as one-offs, uh, for a bit of fun, you know, to show what could have been. You know, here's what you could have won. A panther. Oh, damn. 
<laughs> I love the banter when I saw that. that yeah, that. yeah, it's great, isn't it? it? Stood out to me, yeah. Wonderful item. And obviously, you just mentioned Tarkin there as well. You also had uh, the Grand Moff's slippers that he filmed in, didn't you, on display and that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Peter Cushing uh, was actually a local resident. He uh, he didn't live too far from me in Canterbury. Um, he was often seen in Whitstable. Yes, we managed to have his uh, his slippers loaned. Um, on set, uh, he had to wear the sort of the Nazi jackboots as Tarkin. He apparently had very large feet, and uh, after a a day of this, he um, went up to Lucas and said, you know, dear boy, um, my my feet are killing me. Do you think you could kindly shoot me from the waist up? And um, I think Lucas just shyly shyly obliged, and um, he he wore slippers for all of his scenes. There are some uh, sort of behind-the-scenes shots that show him uh, standing there next to Vader and Princess Lear, and uh, there he is in his slippers. (laughs) So this exhibition now, all all these items, they've they've gone up north, haven't they? You've gone to the atkinson in southport that's right yeah we're up on merseyside now so um curation from the atkinson came along and saw the exhibition at the beanie and um asked if uh, he could have it up there next so um we've taken it up there and um the really nice thing apart from being able to sort of share it with people in a whole new area of the country is that they've actually got a lot more space there we, we've managed to almost sort of double the amount of stuff we can show there in terms of posters and in terms of display cabinets They've got a really big green screen set up there with a projector um, that um, kids can get dressed up in and they can sort of see themselves on Tatooine or on the Death Star. They've done some really cool stuff, actually. They've got a full-size X-wing down in the foyer. They've got a, um, a screen that kids can press pictures of characters, and when you press the character, it makes a noise um, like the character does. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a fun trip out, and um, if anyone is listening and they are anywhere near Southport, go and have a look. Check it out. Yeah, I would really, really highly recommend it. It's uh, if you're within an hour, an hour and a half travelling, it's it's it really is worth it, isn't it? Now it opened on November the nineteenth. Mm-hmm, that's right. And it's running through to March the fifth, so it's staying there quite a period, three and a half months. So plenty of opportunities to go and see it. Yes, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Go, go and give it a go if you're in the area. Anything else in the offering that you could be taking it elsewhere afterwards? I think there may be. I think it may <laughs> go on from there. Um, yeah, we've got uh, we've got some plans to have it in Scotland. It's uh, it's a chance for the uh, for the Scottish collectors to go and um, uh, check it out as well. I mean, why not? You know, I, I collected these toys really for the reason of um, being able to share them. And um, you know, we're we're all collectors and we all have displays. And you know, what, what is a display in your home except a mini museum? You know, we've all got these kind of mini museum setups. But you know, I love I love museums. So this is. A chance to uh, have it in a, a grander scale you know and um and, and show it off in a, in a museum environment and um, it still blows my mind when i sort of walk past old masters and um, ancient greek sculptures and then into the next room there's uh there's some palatoy and some kenner toys <laughs> fantastic <laughs> Also, your, your logo is done by previous guest of ours, Mark Daniels, I believe. Yeah, Mark Daniels is a bit of a superstar, Sublevel Studios. He did the um, he did the logo for May the Toys Be With You. And I've got a whole bunch of stuff, actually, from different contributors. We've got an excerpt from Plastic Galaxy, which has kindly been um, sort of allowed to, to show there, um, from Brian Stillman. Chris Pasateri, he did um, some of the custom Kylo Ren and BB-8 on vintage cards. Uh, John Paul Ragusa. Uh, he did the Imperial Gunnery life-size Rebel Blaster that we've got there. Ryan Shaw, he made some incredible customs for the Slave Lear and for the for the Gargan figure. And Ian Sanderson, who helped contribute uh, some of the sort of acrylic casing that we've got in there. And probably a few other people I've forgotten as well. With regards to all these toys being out on display, do you have these displayed at home? Have you got a massive holes all in your collection? I don't actually have anything at all displayed at home, Stu, and that's why it's so nice to see it all out there, um, you know, 
in these cabinets with beautiful lighting and um, you know all sitting there you know glistening <laughs> under the music because I just don't have anything out at home I've got a couple of young children so that would be a little bit dangerous from that point of view and um, you know I've just also accumulated a bit too much I'd have to take over a whole room of the house it's not going to happen sadly now Matt I want to take you back early years when you saw Star Wars what it meant to you as a child and why it stayed with you well it was it was actually um awesome seeing Star Wars for the first time I was five years old and it was the first film I ever saw at the cinema so Star Wars and cinema going um they kind of both hit me on the same day at the same moment and um they sort of fused together you know and for me now Star Wars really is cinema and they you know that that environment of going in there and sitting down in the dark room and then pow Star Wars just assaults you um right in your face the actual words as well I remember thinking you know Star Wars it's a strange juxtaposition of two words that don't quite rhyme but somehow they sort of sit together and the fact that they had that huge logo filling the screen uh, and, and then fading away and um into the into the crawl which uh, I, I believe the crawl was sort of ripped off from one of the Flash Gordon movies at the time you know you didn't know about that so I I absolutely I, I loved Star Wars I saw it three times um, as a kid when it was on and then you know got the toys and the toys were the only way that you could recreate the movie again didn't have the home video to do so I think I had pretty much all the toys from the the, the original toy line maybe barring um, a couple of the places I'm not sure I had the droid factory or the um, the land of the Jawas um, but I think I had all the I think I had every figure and and most of the um, you know the plastic toys and then Empire Strikes Back came out and it's like wow They've actually improved on the first film and uh, saw Empire Strikes Back multiple times as well. And um, I'm not someone who actually goes in for multiple viewings of any other film except for except for these ones. So I'm, I'm not sure how many times I've seen um, the, the whole original trilogy now. You know, it, it influenced my sort of early my early years views. I wanted to be a filmmaker. You know, I used to recruit all the uh, the kids from my road and my friends and make sort of cheapo zombie flicks, action movies. Uh, with a video camera and um, you know edited it together and uh, you know I, I wanted to be a film director. I never actually made a science fiction one. That that was that was a big influence on me. And then a, a bit later, once I came out of university, I didn't really know how to become a filmmaker. I ended up becoming a cinema manager for a few years. It, you know, it's a strange tangential thing. Obviously, being a cinema manager is never actually going to make you a filmmaker. But I, I just wanted to be sort of close to that that environment. And um, I, again, I think that gave me a certain passion for for the movie posters and uh, and sort of cin- cinema memorabilia as well. So yeah, there's a, there's a sort of a love of Star Wars and a love of cinema that um, that mixed together into a heady brew. With the toys, with the collecting, was there a point where, was there an age you got to, like, you know, a lot of people say they're about 13, 14, getting into girls and stuff, where they kind of cut off from the toys? I got to, um, I got to The Return of the Jedi. It wasn't that I cut off, cut off from the toys, it's actually, sadly it wasn't girls that got me, it was Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which I started playing that instead, and um, it was the ZX Spectrum and uh, the home home microsystems that sort of came out in the mid-80s. I got very into uh, into video games, computer games, I, I never actually had any of the Power of the Force line, uh, n- none of those figures, I sort of bailed out before them and, and, and gone over to, uh, to ZX Spectrum, to Dungeons and Dragons. Actually, I'll tell you what, the... Um, the computer games, they, they kept my love of Star Wars going because the 90s we had uh, Dark Forces, which was a really great first person shooter. And um, we had a game called X-Wing. Um, I don't know if any of the uh, listeners would have played X-Wing or the uh, or TIE Fighter, the sequel, but they were fantastic games. They, they, they really sort of um, put you in the role of a, a part of the rebellion and you had to sort of fly different military missions. And the whole thing was very military based and you had a, you know, it wasn't really story based. It's just you got a tactical briefing. You had a job to do. You had to go out and protect this supply ship or whatever. That, that, that 
that was a, a way that I stayed in touch with Star Wars was um was through uh, video games. Wonderful. So what brought you back to the toys then? And when was this? Well, the special editions came out and um, I was actually working in the cinema when the special editions came out. I saw them a few times at the cinema I was working at. Sometime between that and um, the Phantom Menace, I, uh, I fished out all my toys because luckily, uh, unlike a lot of people, um, mine had just been sort of stashed away in a cardboard box up in the loft. So I, um, I, I went and brought them all back down again cleaned them all up and uh, you know I just got that hit in the face like um, when they opened the briefcase in Pulp Fiction bosh you know that golden nostalgia glow from this this box of old toys yeah I cleaned them up and uh, and you know I, I realised that I had you know seven or eight stormtroopers and uh, a couple of rebel soldiers and whatnot plenty i didn't have you know there were were quite a few uh few holes in the collection i put a little uh like want to buy ad down in the uh local news agent and uh i didn't get anywhere with that uh i was hoping to at least get a few gamma and guards or something and obviously there there wasn't the ebay there wasn't the internet at that time but um there was a little shop uh, in catering called modeler's loft chap there had a cabinet that he sold star wars figures from so um i I sort of went in there and and bought a whole bunch off him sadly later found out a lot of them had the repro weapons which wasn't great It, it was great i actually managed to sort of fill the, uh, fill the holes in the collection at least with the figures you've spent quite a few years buying collections haven't you because before I was involved with the podcast and before I was back collecting I decided when I had my son to put together a bit of a beta run so he could play with them and I actually met you didn't I I came round and purchased a few bits and pieces off you yeah when I used to come into your house, you used to have buckets of like loose figures and stuff. I still have to, actually. I've got plenty. If you want to come back over, um, <laughs> I'm just a business. <laughs> I, I, I saw you. I saw you right out. <laughs> yeah, that's how I kind of started collecting again. But oh, was, that, was it my fault? Blimey. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think I just came across you on eBay and bought a few bits and pieces off you, and was like, came into your house and you sold me a few more bits and pieces, and it was just like, and don't forget, started that, buying that, for that, myself that, as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I will tell you what I did. My my modus operandi was to uh, to buy up big loose collections um on ebay i'd go on ebay and i'd look for stuff that was a rubbish photograph and they were pretty easy to find uh stuff ended at a bad time of day i put a bid on it i put cheeky bids on everything it, it didn't really matter whether it was it was four figures and they looked like beaters or whether it, it was it was 60 figures and a whole bunch of sort of uh, mini rigs and stuff i put bids on everything i lowballed so many bids you, you don't win eight of them but the, the the two out of ten that you do win and you get a really good buy I did that and I ended up having sort of cardboard boxes delivered almost every other day. I accumulated lots and lots of Lucy's. I'd actually sit there in front of the TV and I have um, movies I'd already seen and I'd play them through with the uh, director's commentary. So I didn't actually have to look up. I could just listen to the director's commentary, you know, James Cameron talking about aliens or, uh, you know, Ridley Scott, whoever it was. And I'd sit there with a little scrubbing brush, bowl of warm water, and and I'd clean them. Cleaning a figure actually transforms it in in many cases. Got a whole bunch of uh, nice, clean, loose figures. I'd lay them all out and I'd pick the, the, the very nice minty, mintiest ones and those are the ones I, I would keep and, and the rest I would sell. Let's move on to the posters because this is where we want to go mainly on this show today with this interview. Now, you have quite an impressive run of all of the UK-based posters, I want to say. Yeah. Before we go through them, could you give us an overview of posting collecting generally? In Britain, we like to do things a little bit differently. We would probably say we do it the correct way and everyone else does it the wrong way, like driving on the left-hand side of the road. Um, we do that with posters. Posters too. Um, in Britain, our posters are, are quads. A quad poster is a poster that's presented in the horizontal, the landscape format, 40 inches across, 30 inches high. Um, now, in every other country of the world, posters are presented in the um, portrait format, uh, vertically. Basically, all the um, all, all, all the poster cabinets, all the cases in, in the cinemas in in the UK were, were that shape. So that's why we've got these these landscape shaped posters. And um, it actually makes our posters quite different and uh, stand out. So um, 
British club posters are actually quite desirable from an international perspective because oftentimes they'd have to change the artwork or tweak it around a little bit to make it fit the landscape format. Um, our, our club posters are quite special, really, in this country. The other thing to know about posters is, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but you have a, an advanced poster and then you have a theatrical poster. So um, if you're collecting uh, the Star Wars movies, there's generally going to be two posters per film. You'll have, you'll have an advanced and that gets sent out to the cinemas ahead of the movie, in some cases several months ahead of the movie. And then you have the actual theatrical poster, and the theatrical poster is a poster that is while the movie is actually running. And, and that's really the, the, the difference. But there are there are a few variants, and uh, we'll have a look at them as we go through. Linen-backed posters, is that a good idea? Yes, definitely. I um, On vintage posters, not on modern posters, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. But um, uh, on, on vintage posters, they weren't printed to last. They were printed as disposable things to be chucked away the actual image quality it, it can de- deteriorate quite quickly through the acid that's in in the, in the painting so um when they're linen back they're treated with um with, with sort of an acid free dip which which nullifies the acid element but in between the linen and the actual poster itself they have um, acid tissue paper as well which which nullifies it too and then the poster is stretched out tight and fitted to the linen and that also removes the fold lines because um through the 70s through the 80s posters weren't sent in tubes to cinemas they were sent in envelopes so so they were folded up as a matter of course um in fact you know you, you can occasionally find rolled, rolled ones but uh they're pretty rare. I would say linen backing is definitely worth doing from a conservation point of view. I would want my posters to be be there in 500 years time. What a you know what a great thought that would be if they if they out, outlived me um, and someone else had this uh, this collection of, of posters. And um, if you if you do want them to endure across the decades and even across the centuries, then um, uh, linen backing is uh, important for that. Right. Is there, is there any concerns from doing it? Like, does it uh, alter the colours, or do you have any bubbling issues or anything like that with the with the posters? The uh, the one concern concern is if you do it badly i do all my linen backing through um poster mountain in the u.s and they really are the uh, the best in the business you you really can't go wrong with them i have bought linen back posters that have been linen backed uh, by someone else i wasn't happy with it at all i actually had to send it to poster mountain they had to <laughs> they had to remove the old linen backing it, it is a reversible process and then they had to re-linen back it um uh, correctly the other nice thing about linen backing is it gives the poster a border most wear on a poster will happen around the edges as you can imagine being yeah. quite thin paper so um having this sort of linen border around it as well uh, really protects all the edging on it and the and the linen back in itself does that can that poster still be rolled or does it have to remain flat then oh well once you've actually linen backed it yes you can indeed roll it yes um right. i mean in an ideal world you you keep uh, posters stored flat you know if you want a linen uh, if you have a linen back poster you can roll it up loosely in, in, a, in a wide tube and um, you know and that's fine you can't be too fussy about these things Another quick question. Obviously, Matt, I've been thinking about this because I've got a few poster bits and bobs and I've had a few questions running around in my head recently. Things like glass, like putting your poster, does it, do you ever have the poster actually touching the glass? Because I'd always be, I'm concerned that uh, like moist air is always attracted to cold surfaces. So glass, you know, you could get mold and stuff on the glass and then you'd have your paper touching it. Is this something to be worried about? That's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I know there are various sort of different types of glass you can get. And, uh, you know, you can take it to the nth degree, get glass that's really sort of, you know, museum glass and uh, and whatnot it's called. And the truth is all glass will protect uh, against the vast majority of UV. Just by putting it behind glass, you are, are really protecting the poster already. You know, I, if there is some sort of particular condensation issues, then um, it might be a bit of a worry. But ha- have the glass right up against it. That, that's that's not a problem. And I mean, you know, you, you can see that in any museum, you'll, you'll see that there's there's priceless centuries old paintings and, and they will be touching the glass so um, that's right. not a 
not an issue. Oh, okay, that's, that's good to know, because uh, i going around in circles here trying to put little bits of paper and pamphlets and all that kind of stuff and trying to display them, but uh, I'm concerned about things like condensation and stuff. Well, you know what I mean? Sometimes people can get a little bit, they can take it a little bit far and um, may, maybe a bit further than you need to. Um, you, you can get people that, that worry a bit more about things. I, I'm, I'm not too much of a worrier. You know, don't don't just take my opinion for it. If you know, have have a look at other opinions as well. No, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Should we move on to the first of the posters? Can we start with the Hildebrandt? Yep. So you've got this one titled Star Wars 1977 UK Quad, and the artist is the brothers Hildebrandt. Yeah, this was um this was the very first thing I saw of Star Wars, and not really knowing much else about the movie at the time, I actually still have the memory of this. To describe the Hildebrand, you have the muscly hero holding the lightsaber above his head. At his feet, there's a rather sexy Princess Leia, I might add. Quite leggy, quite busty, uh, rather more so than Carrie Fisher. And then behind uh, Luke, there's there's X-Wings going up like a flock of birds up towards this uh, metal planet, the Death Star. And then there's um, looming behind them all, this samurai glistening black robot. What was it all? You know, it, it really did promise a lot. Back in the 70s, back in the 80s, and actually back in, you know, even further back, uh, poster artists um, would quite often write checks that they couldn't cash. The, 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 the poster art looked incredible. It looked like it was going to be so action-packed, and you actually saw the movie, and it was really kind of hokey. There's reason to think that, that they might have done that with Star Wars as well, because the, uh, the Hildebrand is such a spectacular image. But, um, you know, luckily for Star Wars, as we all know, um, it, it, it turned out to be able to back it up, what it was presenting there. It's a fantastic image, and uh, it's, it's become an iconic one, obviously, also with, with our um, with our hobby, having the, uh, the, the, the symbol of, of Luke and Lear on the cards as well. Uh, Matt, I, you know, I, I know this poster from seeing the old sort of television uh, documentaries about, you know, people queuing up for Star Wars in the UK. But I've just gone on to cinemamasterpieces.com and they have this British uh, quad for sale. Any ideas on how much they've got it for sale for? This is in C9 plus condition. Probably between seven thousand and ten thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah, they got it at $15,000. $15,000, okay. Holy They're smoke. Pushing it a little bit there, but um, the thing is that the Hildebrand, it wasn't released in America. Hildebrand uh, was asked to repaint it. They didn't actually get it out there in time to be a theatrical poster. They used it on T-shirts in America, and they used it as a commercial poster, but it was only in the UK that we actually had it as a cinema-issued poster, and we had it a, a, as a quad. So it went to the West End cinemas in England, and some of you listeners may remember that back in them old days, films used to go to the West End first. Oftentimes, it was actually quite a long time before the film was issued around the rest of the country, you know, as opposed to today when the, you know, the film comes out and it's everywhere all on the same day. If you wanted to see Star Wars, you had to go to um, one of the two West End cinemas that were playing it. The Hildebrand was, was there for the, for the West End run, and, um, and then it was replaced, actually, quite early on by um, Chantrell's painting. So the number of Hildebrands that have survived of these quads is actually very low. A, it's a beautiful image, and B, it's it, it's um, it's very scarce. So that's that's why they're asking fifteen thousand for it. So, so the Americans had the Tom Young poster for the the Star Wars style A poster, and we had that's the Hildebrand. What, that's right. And the, the Tom Young one is often mistakenly called the Hildebrand because it is essentially it's the same image. It's it's Luke holding the um, the lightsaber above his head with um, with sort of layer uh, below his feet a little bit. We we got the actual Hildebrand version of it, and and, and they got Tom Young's uh, version. The other thing to say about uh, Hildebrand is the Hildebrand wasn't one guy. Hildebrand's is uh, two guys. It's um, twin brothers, but they uh, they painted as one. They actually painted the Star Wars poster in only 36 hours, while one brother painted, the other brother would sleep, and then 
they'd get up and vice versa. They managed to meet the tight deadline by finishing off in 36 hours. They actually took it to 20th Century Fox and they, they painted in C-3PO and R2-D2 while they were there in the office showing it to the Fox executives. That is inc- I did not know any of this. This is great no, information. Great the rather sad thing about the Hildebrandt poster was that um, Gary Kurtz and Fox decided that it wasn't actually doing its job. A movie poster, its primary function is to advertise the movie. So it's a piece of advertising that they're creating. That's why perhaps um, Ralph McQuarrie, who did so much of the conceptual art for Star Wars, wasn't employed as the poster artist. His sphere was uh, design and concept work, and the role of a poster artist is to advertise. So they felt that the Hildebrandt, while atmospheric, was beautiful, it, it wasn't actually selling the uh, the movie properly. So um, they decided to pull it. They commissioned um, Chapman Beauvais to have another go at it. Two artists at Chapman Beauvais, Tom Beauvais and Tom Chantrell, two Toms, they both painted new treatments for the Star Wars quad. They showed them to 20th Century Fox and Tom Chantrell's painting was chosen and uh, Tom Beauvais put his one away in a drawer and just just took it home. Uh, It wasn't needed. Tom Chantrell's painting for Star Wars is possibly the most famous movie poster of all time now, I would suggest. Mm. It's the image that has Luke pointing his gun directly at the viewer and um, laser blasts going off in different directions and everything's sort of bursting out from that, that one point of, of, the, of the, the screen. And um, it, it works beautifully as, as, as a quad. And um, I don't think it's any um, diss on Tom Beauvais. His wasn't chosen. Tom Beauvais is a chap that I've got to know since we've managed to get his original artwork that he painted and um, we've got that in the exhibition uh, May the Toys Be With You up at the Atkinson as well so the Tom Chantrell one that's, that's became known as the Star Wars Star C poster is that correct? yeah it's also been you know nicknamed the Dirty Dozen movie poster because um, the composition was sort of ripped off slightly from uh, the previous movie poster called for the movie The Dirty Dozen Chantrell it should be said is um, possibly the most prolific poster artist um, to have ever lived he's done 700 movies um, in, in his long career he could actually you know almost knock out a movie poster a day you know when he was going for it he managed to get his wife Shirley to pose wearing a sort of a a, a draped dress and she posed as Princess Leia so he could get the folds on the on the drapes nicely when he actually took it took it in to show 20th Century Fox um, Tom Beauvais saw what he'd done and uh, you know he, he said you know right there you could see that Chantrell had actually taken a lot of time over this one this one had been particularly um, important to him and you know Tom Beauvais saw where they're, they're never going to pick mine now that I've seen this one and it, it is incredible I mean along with probably the Jaws movie poster it's probably the most famous movie poster there is yeah the, the um, I'm quite interested in this uh, Tom Beauvais uh, poster because I've never actually seen that before I recognise some of the uh, imagery from it like it uh, stills from the, the film have been taken of Luke and probably Leia yes um, well the the design brief that they gave them to replace Hildebrand was um, they need to show the actors uh, Hildebrand didn't show the actors it just had a sort of a, a muscly representation of Luke and Leia um, so they needed to show the actors and they needed to show um, action. That's what uh, Tom Bovases does. Is it puts Luke and Leah front and centre um, with a really stunning likeness of Mark Hamill's face. Tom Bovase used glow colours on the lightsaber. The lightsaber is this rich um, sort of yellowy green again, just like the Kenner designers that, that they gave. They gave him a yellow lightsaber, and I asked Tom Bovase, you know, what? Why did you give him a yellow one? And um, he said, oh, I, I don't know. They were given black and white stills, and he just guessed it was yellow. I think. Um, so the mystery, the mystery of the yellow yellow lightsaber continues. <laughs> uh, and then 
and they he, he also used Dayglow orange paint um you know on, on the on the Star Wars words to make it's an image that really pops out and, and looks fantastic and um and I should say um although Tom Bovey's missed out on Star Wars he did actually do posters for Fantastic Voyage Butch Cassidy Blade Runner Zombie Flesh Eaters uh, Mad Max and he worked with Stanley Kubrick on a lot of his um uh, posters as well and became his in-house artist so um he, he he's he's had a very good career the green lightsaber is a bit of foreshadowing as well for uh, Return of the Jedi yeah that's oh. right I God knows why they got the lightsaber color wrong so often but uh, yeah there you go <laughs> is this uh, is this poster actually available at all is it has it ever been issued or released well what we've done um Tom Bavay's his family are actually involved in the print industry and they printed off a uh, limited number of Jitley prints um they've done a limited run of 295 signed numbered um by Tom himself and um they're being sold so um if anybody wants to actually buy a copy of this um they're being sold in the genuine quad size the painting itself is actually slightly smaller than a quad they've been reproduced in these really beautifully done jiclays and uh, if you want to buy one of those um they're 195 pounds but well worth it in a, you know a fantastic investment piece because um once they're all gone then they're all gone i, I he'd actually ask this matt because i want to purchase one before everyone else does but <laughs> where, where, would, where would people be able to purchase it if you uh, if you do a google search for star wars tom Bovey's, uh, you can get in there or, or you know or just drop me um drop me a message on facebook or on the forums i I think most of uh, most of the listeners there kind of know where to find me. Stu, can I borrow 195 pounds, please? <laughs> <laughs> it is a lovely image, isn't it? And um, before we move on to um to the next movie, um the other thing to talk about with the uh, with the Star Wars line is um Chantrell's poster was modified in March. Star Wars did rather well at the Oscars. It won seven Academy Awards and um, they, they wanted this to be reflected on the, on the movie poster so uh, they changed Chantrell's there's a patch of black underneath the title and they, they added in there uh, the seven Academy Awards and the success that they have with that so we have our first variant poster and um, it means that the, uh, the the one the pre-Oscars the one without the Oscars info is uh, is the rarer version and the more desirable version and that one usually sells for around £1,200 the one with the Oscars is, is a little bit more common and probably not quite so nice an image actually with the extra writing on it uh, and that usually goes for around sort of four to five hundred pounds. Ah, okay, that that makes perfect sense. And how how common are these to actually pick up, Matt? I mean, where would where would you find? Uh, I mean, these Star Wars posters now, a lot of them are getting close to forty years old. Where where would you usually purchase these posters? And are you ever concerned about reproductions? Well, like toy collecting, um, poster collecting is actually, you know, it's its own thing, and it's been going on for a long time. So there, there are a, a lot of poster dealers around that will will sell stuff through. Facebook has got its own groups uh, for poster selling. There's actually a Star Wars poster group on Facebook, which is a really nice group to join. And eBay as well, of course, is is another good source to get posters from. You don't need to be very worried also about um, about fakes for for the British quads. You do need to be a bit worried if you're buying American uh, one sheets. There are quite a few fakes that have, uh, have come through from certain American ones. The the only poster that has been faked um, in in Britain is the poster for the um, triple bill, and uh, and there are there are some fakes of of that about, but um, they're quite easy to spot actually once once you sort of have them in hand. So um, you don't need to be worried too much about forgeries uh, with our posters. Before we move on to Empire Strikes Back. Which one do you prefer, Hildebrandt, Beauvais, or um, Chantrell? That's a great question, Stu. They're, they're all three of them got their, their sort of strengths and, and you know, and, and very little weaknesses. 
They're, they're all three of them great images. I'm going to say that I actually prefer the Brothers Hildeman painting. It, it, it's so moody, it's so atmospheric. They actually did a lot of painting for Tolkien. They, they, they did a lot of the Middle Earth paintings before that. And you can see it really brings out the fantasy. Star Wars isn't science fiction. Star Wars is space fantasy. And that sort of, you know, that the, the myth, the Arthurian, the um, the ancient, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The Hildebrand brings that, that sort of magic, the mysticism of Star Wars out more than the other, more than the other two. So, yeah, I like that. One. Grant, what's your favourite out of three? I was just thinking, Steve, that's the hardest question anyone's ever asked me. Um, <laughs> it is really difficult. I think I'm going to have to go with the uh, the, the, the Chantrello. I think it's just got everything happening in it. It's so so beautiful, so vibrant, and uh, so so exciting. And I think it's it's what I remember that ITV used to use between the advert breaks when they used to show Star Wars on television. I think it was the Chantrell imagery that I remember on it. Yeah. If you guys yeah. can, if you guys can remember that, can you remember like every Christmas they would play Star Wars? And you'd have like uh, every 15, 20 minutes there'd be an advert break, and they would always show like a, an image from the film, and it'd usually be the, uh, the Chantrell poster. And now you see it on every T-shirt, every lunchbox. Um, you know, my kids have got uh, Star Wars T-shirts that they bought recently. They've got the Chantrell image on. He sold the uh, the image rights. I think he sold the original poster to um, to Gary Kurtz, I believe, for um, four thousand pounds after painting it. And he was overjoyed. He, he was over the moon. It was a huge payday. But I mean, imagine what the image rights to that uh, are actually worth. And it's been reproduced that many times. Um, incredible. I know you can see um, it's in my local Asda and my local Primark. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. It's like Star Wars is everywhere. Like it's uh, really cool. A really cool. What was the other uh, poster you sent us, which sort of like had? Um, it's actually appeared on Star Wars Forum UK. Uh, someone turned up on the forum the other day and stated that they had a few posters. Really unusual. Adventure, uh, villains, heroes, excitement. Yes. Now this is a, uh, a display company called Marla Haley and Marla. Haley produced display materials exclusively for the Odeon cinema chain and what they produced for Star Wars was a, um, a, a set of six posters that would that would work together on a display board um, they had a display board which was a triptych so it had um, a, a centerpiece where two quads would go one above the other and on the, on the outside of the triptych, on the folding pieces, um, they had double crowns. Double crowns are vertical posters, but they're only half the size of a quad. So instead of being um, 40 by 30, they are 20 by 30. The double crowns and, 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 and the top quads sort of are, are very primitive. They show a nice pre-Photoshop design ethic, if you like, where, whereby actually, you know, they, they would take photos and they would cut them out and add the text and then sort of uh, reprint it so they're quite na- they're quite naive and, and they're very rare very rare indeed and um, there aren't many full sets of of the uh, of Marla Haley pictures around and um yeah it's quite nice seeing some on the forum and um, I- I'm-, I'm trying to buy them as we speak <laughs> yeah the uh, the gentleman who actually found them I asked him if he could send some images and he sent loads of soft porn 70s uh, cinema posters <laughs> and I was like no I-, I was just interested in the Star Wars not, not the rest of the lot. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I've asked him for a price, and I keep saying, you know, tell me, tell me what you what you want for them. He won't give me a price. He's no, what, what do you offer? What do you offer? And I say, like, I don't know. I don't do business that way. Just tell me how much they cost. I, I don't want to be, you know, if you make an offer to someone, you're always going to make a low offer. You know, that's just the way it goes. I'd much rather a seller is just straightforward and say, this is what I need to make. 
this is the price. I can buy them or I, or I, or I can walk away. Uh, I hope you get them, Matt. Uh, <laughs> Cheers. Really, really nice pieces. Uh, really unusual as well. That was the first time I've ever come across these. How do you actually uh, find out all this sort of information? How do you investigate movie posters, especially UK ones? Is there, is there a lot of easily accessible uh, literature or research done on it? One of the things I really have enjoyed about Star Wars collecting is actually the research. And, uh, you know, that goes for the figures in particular, finding out, uh, you know, about the variants and um, the different packaging and, and what went in the box and all of these things. I, I, I love that aspect. I'm, I'm an author of a couple of reference books as well so i i, I get into research i, I do enjoy it and um, there, there's research online if, if, if you dig for it um and you also mentioned the uh, star wars poster book by uh, san sweet and pete vilmer that's a, that's a great source as well and conversations you know let, let's not sort of forget that you can actually talk to other poster collectors and you can have conversations and you can glean knowledge that you didn't know about but on, online's a nice way to start and hopefully um you know what, what I'm saying here might might be new knowledge for some some listeners as well, and uh, uh, you know I'm hoping I might create a few fellow poster collectors uh, from this and get some people interested in it. <laughs> what, what what do you think, Steve? Are you starting to collect posters now? Because I know I am. Well, yeah, well this is a problem with doing a podcast, isn't it? You, know, <laughs> you start so many other lines, but yeah, I tell you what, it's just just full of information, which is brilliant. Shall we uh, go on to the Empire Strikes Back? The Empire Strikes Back. You um, have got here the. 1980 UK quad in the style of Roger Castell. Yeah, uh, Roger Castell Empire Strikes Back image. Uh, this is the advanced poster. is just fantastic. It's nicknamed the Gone with the Wind poster yeah. um, because it's got a very romantic centre pairing. It's got Leah swooning backwards while Harrison Ford sort of leans forward and it's got Luke on the Tauntaun um, got Cloud City in the, and in the background it's got uh, got Darth Vader um, it's possibly my favourite one of all the Star Wars posters um, the Gone with the Wind poster by Roger Castell painted the uh, the US one sheet sadly we didn't get Roger Castell's version in the UK I mentioned earlier that quads are a different shape to the American one sheets the painting actually had to be repainted uh, to fit the horizontal format of the quad. It was repainted to sort of copy Roger Castell. It's not actually in Roger Castell's own hand. The detailing is not quite as uh, precise and, and elegant as Roger Castell's. But that said, it's, it's still a, a lovely painting and a very, very rare painting. Again, this was only issued to the West End cinemas. It's an absolute devil to find. It's the one poster I've got in my collection that I'm sad about, not entirely happy with. I'll, I'll tell you a little story, actually. I, I knew a chap that was selling one of these. It was it was in great condition. It was rolled. Um, it was full size. And um, I spent a long time negotiating with him. And, and in the end, we agreed a price, £2,400, a lot of money. I went and I, I got the money out of a, out of the bank. I had it in cash. I, I, I drove to go and see him. And it was, it was uh, you know, two and a half hour drive. And when I arrived, he said, sorry, I've had cold feet. He said, I'm not going to sell it to you. I, I, I know it's worth more than that. I'm going to keep hold of it. It's still to this day, just think about it, it hurts. He said, look, I'll, I'll show you the poster. I'll show you that I've got it. And I said, I, I don't even want to see it. <laughs> Rub it in, I yeah. I don't even want to see it. But I thought, I'm okay, because... I knew that two weeks from them, that poster was going to be on sale again. Another one was going to be on sale in the prop stores sale in London um, at the BFI cinema. So I thought, right, I bet I can go to that auction. I might get it for even less than 2400 and I'll be happy. You know, I will have actually saved some money. So I went along to the BFI London IMAX and, um, you know, there was the poster. You know, again, this one was actually a really nice one, a really great condition. I sat I sat there for four hours waiting for it to start. I didn't realise that, um, that they were going for Star Wars, but alphabetically. So it was waited till we got to S. And then the Star Wars things came on. So it's a long wait, but this poster came up. Here we go. The bidding started. I, I, sh- I shot my hand up, you know, went went in there, 1,500 quid, you know, bosh. Next bid went on. I went up to 2,000 because I knew with, with the extra 
Um, it was going to cost me around 2,400 there. So I went 2,000. That was going to be my limit. And then Bosch just kept going, kept going, kept going. <laughs> it, it went up to about 4K and, and it slipped by my hands. So um, I, I, guess the guy that didn't, I guess the guy that didn't sell it to me for 2,400 was proved right in a way because uh, it, it is worth more than that. But um, it, it meant I didn't get one. I've ended up, I have bought one, but the one that I've got is, is trimmed. So it's no longer quite 30 by 40. It's a little bit trimmed down. So... A little bit of the image is gone, so it's it's imperfect. This Empire Strikes Back, gone with the wind post. It's, it's the one thing in my collection that um that you know I, I feel is not quite right. That was a <laughs> that was a pretty tense story then, Matt. I was hoping you were going to win that poster. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say. You, <laughs> I thought you say when you were going to drive to pick the poster up, like you got two and a two and a half grand in cash, stopped at a service station and kicked the envelope or something, have money out, <laughs> got there and didn't have the money. That would have. <laughs> I, I, I wanted. I didn't want the money on the way. But I wanted the poster on the way back. You know, I. I I should have just actually just like chucked the money on his couch and said I'm having that here you go well, you made a deal with me mate but um, yeah sadly not he he, uh, he got cold feet on the deal it's really bizarre that they repainted another artist's uh, painting they replicated it to make it landscape that's I've never heard of that before. That's really strange. Mm, they actually did so on, on the Hildebrandt as well because the Hildebrandt was painted in, in America. So when it came over to the Quad, a, uh, an unknown artist added some extra bits of uh, Tatooine onto the uh, onto the left-hand side of it, some uh, some moisture evaporators and uh, a bit of extra landscape to to make it fit. And a um, little bit of a factoid about Star Wars. Did you know that the um, the name Tatooine is never actually spoken in Star Wars? It is in The Phantom Menace though, isn't it? Yeah, it's in, in, the, in the original. It's, it's, um, it's not mentioned by name. Ah. Also, he Ewoks. Ewoks are never mentioned by name in Star Wars either. Okay, Matt, here's one for Ewoks. If, have you noticed if you take the word Wookiee and take the E from Wookiee and put it at the front, you get Ewok? I think that was just George Lucas being really lazy because it was originally meant to be the uh, Wookiees, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they, they they never say the word Ewok in the, in the movies. We, we just know that from the uh, from the toys. From the toys, yeah. Uh, and I guess the end credits. I don't know if they're in the end credits. Maybe they are. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted, one thing I wanted to ask you is, what you know, I love these vintage posters. I think they're they're, they're amazing. Um, what do you think of the new posters, the sort of more modern posters compared to, you know, even if we just stick to Star Wars, what do you think of sort of like the Drew Struzan modern posters and the Force Awakens posters and Rogue One in comparison to say the uh, you know the Roger Castell and the Hildebrandt kind of styles? Well, the poster industry changed completely at the end of the 80s thanks to Photoshop. And, and the Mac. Basically, if a studio wanted to change a poster around a little bit, you know, say well, we want to make Han Solo a little bit bigger, or we want to move R2D2 a couple of inches to the right, or we want to alter this one for foreign markets, the artist would have to repaint the whole paint picture. So you can see why Photoshop was appealing, because it means that you can just move uh, move the pieces around. But it does mean that um, we we don't get these beautiful painted pictures anymore, except for um, George Lucas, who who has actually persisted to a certain degree with the painted pictures. He did so with the special editions. The special edition ones I rather like because it gave Drew Struzan a chance to paint three paintings that kind of match up thematically with each other. They, they work as a set. In fact, there's a fourth quad as well for the special edition, which is sort of an ingot. Uh, so there's sort of like this strange embossed ingot. I'm not quite sure what they were thinking with that. But um, uh, so there, there's four pictures for the, for the special edition. I, I think they're, they're very nice. And then um, with the prequel trilogy, again, Drew Struzan painted three very similar paintings for Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Getting a little bit too similar for my liking, actually, to, to the compositions of the special edition and the composition of the three theatrical posters for the prequels was basically, you know, let's have a let's have a black canvas. 
let's have a single point and then let's have everything sort of bursting from that one point, you know, sort of coming out of the screen. So th- I think the compositions were got a bit too samey and the uh, the advanced posters for the uh, prequels, I didn't really like too much either. They were photos. Uh, you might remember uh, Phantom Menace had a photo of Jake Lloyd casting a shadow of Darth Vader in Tatooine. Attack of the Clones had... Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman standing back to back on their advance poster and Revenge of the Sith had um, again Hayden Christensen with it with a sort of a cloak and the cloak was forming Darth Vader's head they, they're sort of good and bad you know I like I like, I like the Drew Struzan work but I, I didn't really like the advance posters for the prequels very much well, what did you think of the Force Awakens uh, poster the Force Awakens advance post was quite simple. It was just the words, um, you know, the Force Awakens against the, uh, a blank starry background, um, you know, which served the purpose well enough. Then the actual theatrical poster was, again, it was similar. It was sort of, you know, let, let's take a single point on the canvas and have everything bursting out from it. It, it. it looked a bit like a painting, but it was it was a Photoshop. I quite like it. I really enjoyed the movie itself. So um, I, I've got more positive feelings towards The Force Awakens than I have um, Attack of the Clones, for example, which, which I think personally is the worst of the Star Wars films. Yeah. Uh, and again, we've got Rogue One now, and, and, and the, the, the Rogue One posters aren't, they're not great. Let's be honest, they're, they're, they're again, they're quite, they're quite sort of heavily Photoshopped. There is one modern poster that I do really like, and um, that's the IMAX poster for The Force Awakens. Yeah, um, beautiful. The IMAX poster is a big, beautiful image. It's, it's it's about three times the size of a quad, and it's just the um the sun, the big golden sunset on um on Jakku and uh, Ray and BB-8 uh, walking towards it, with their backs to, to the viewer and ac- across the sand dune. And it's just a really elegant, powerful, lovely image that one, and, and very very rare and hard to get hold of as well. <laughs> we don't have too many IMAX cinemas in the UK, and that that was not an easy poster to get. Right, I'm going to interrupt you two from the modern rebellion and bring you back to the vintage rebellion <laughs> <laughs> oh, i forgot where we were what were we just talking about before okay, you so we're back, back in back empire to, back to the back to the empire strikes back <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, let's move on to the quad and the double crown set yes that's right so um marla haley again did a set for the empire strikes back uh, again it, it was very much a pre-photoshop kind of uh, retro styled um uh, set of posters and um, a, a, and they're a lot of fun the main poster for the empire strikes back the the theatrical was painted by tom jung so tom jung came back again after doing the poster for uh, for Star Wars, the American one sheet for Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back is great. It's got a huge image of Darth Vader towering over everybody else, everybody else below him. Fleet of TIE bombers flying past in there as well. And then stormtroopers charging towards the viewer. And it's, it's, it's a really nice image that just sort of says it all about the Empire that um, they are going to mess you up in this movie. They're taking control. Yeah, I, lo- I love the Empire Strikes Back post. And again, there's two variants here. The, the variants on this one are a little bit too anoraki for me to w- be worried about. But there's there's a variant that has the, uh, a white text in the Empire Strikes Back. And there's a variant that has sort of a darker uh, text in there as well. And then after the Empire Strikes Back, we actually um, we had a great release in the UK um, of Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back um, double bill. They showed both the films together um, in 1982. I have fond memories of actually going to see this with my dad, and I remember sort of sitting through both films and then wanting to do it again. Am I right in thinking that this poster was used again for the triple bill, the Return of the Jedi to it? They used it on a similar style for, for the triple bill. The double bill had, had an interesting element as well. Um, the double bill came with a golden quad which advertised, see the trailer for the third part of the saga revenge of the jedi it's the only um bit of revenge of the jedi um that we got in the uk obviously um there, there was a there was a bit more revenge content released in america we we got this golden quad that advertised the uh, trailer for revenge of the jedi and that, and that trailer has been unearthed quite recently and um a, a copy 
is being sort of stowed away by um, our friend Stephen Danley. That they've uh, they've done a bit of a preservation on it. That's a, that's a nice little tie-in as well. But following the double bill in '82, we then had the Return of the Jedi coming to the cinema in 1983, and the advance poster that was issued to cinemas was quite striking, quite avant-garde actually. It was a deep blood red quad. Uh, this one, Vader's head large, and then uh, sort of in the centre of Vader's head, you had um, uh, the silhouettes of Luke and Vader clashing with their lightsabers, and that was it. It's, it's, it's the simplest, sparsest of the um, of the UK posters, and, and, and a really effective one by Drew Struzan. This is the first time we get a Drew Struzan poster, isn't it? Yes, uh, in the UK at least. He did paint um, a painting called The Circus, uh, painting for Star Wars in, in the States. In the UK, this uh, the Return of the Jedi Advance was the first one we got. And um, We actually had another advance poster in the UK, which was um, by a chap called Tim Reamer. This image is something that uh, you may well be familiar with. It's just Luke's hands holding the lightsaber um, and, and, and nothing more than that. Just just a pair of hands, lightsaber. Yeah. I was going to say, if you if you look closely in the background, you can see the uh, the moon of Endor and then a, the little Death Star there as well, if you you do have to get quite close up to the image but the Death Star is pictured in the UK now with the 3D Blu-ray release of The Force Awakens they've got very similar to this to the Tim Rina Return of the Jedi poster with the blue lightsaber except it's in a forest with you know snow falling down yes I did it's, it's too similar not to be a homage isn't it yeah, it's got to yes, be it's got to be, you know, it's got the striking blue as well, like the blue that they used in the, in the, in the text. Uh, sorry, Stu, I know this is, we're going into modern again, but it does relate to the Return of the Jedi poster. <laughs> and, and then that brings us to the actual um, theatrical version of Return of the Jedi. The Return of the Jedi theatrical in the UK was painted by an artist called Josh Kirby. Josh Kirby is a uh, uh, Liverpudlian artist. It's particularly nice for me because I've currently got the exhibition showing up there in Southport on Merseyside. I managed to acquire a very rare banner-sized poster that was attached to uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, the banner is actually um, a, th- a three-sheet. It's um, nearly three metres, um, in fact, it's just slightly over three metres wide. A very rare survivor. I don't think there can be more than uh, a couple of these in existence. And um, we've got this up on the wall. In fact, it dominates the whole wall. Uh, it's that big within the Atkinson. And uh, and it's fantastic being able to hang it up there um, and sort of bring it home to Merseyside. Wow. So, that, so this... The Josh Kirby one is a is a British poster only. Yes, yeah, and it, and it's 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 a great image. Um, Josh Kirby actually did two posters here, um, two very similar ones. So it's a bit of a game of spot the difference. The first poster, um, it was felt he'd overloaded it a bit too much. You know, there's everything in there. It's it's a montage poster. You've got uh, Luke with his lightsaber holding on to Slave Lear in the foreground. You've got the Gamorrean guards. You've got Boba Fett firing. You've got skiffs exploding. You've got Bib Fortuna up in the top right of the picture. You've got the Emperor's Royal Guards coming in. There's a speeder bike flying right at you there's there's r2 and c3po there's a lot in this poster it was decided to tone it down a little bit so um josh kirby had to repaint it and then um, change some of the elements around to make it a little bit sparser and also to uh, to make it a bit more blue because um fox had decided or sorry lucasfilm had decided that uh, the color scheme for return of the jedi posters were going to be uh, sort of on a, on a blue theme uh, which, which one do you prefer out the two i prefer the first one actually the busy one yeah yeah i, I <laughs> agree it yourself? really sums up return of the jedi i mean return of the jedi is a um it, it is a bit of a crazy film they you know they, they just sort of chuck chuck everything in the kitchen sink at it um it, there's all there's almost a bit too much going on i you know i, I love return of the jedi it's, it's part of the star wars trilogy for me and um i, I know some people were you know, see, see it as the weaker entry but you know i think i think they're they're all three of them are uh are strong and, and great movies in different ways 
I think we we can sort of finish up our little run through of the vintage posters with the triple bill in 1983. Us Brits were lucky enough to have a triple bill showing. In fact, it was the uh, it was the first triple bill showing anywhere in the world. All three films together. The poster that they made to uh, commemorate this is sort of a, a a montage that picks bits from Tom Chantrell's, bits from Tom Jung's, and bits from Josh Kirby's, and sort of composites them all together with lots of elements going in there and in big gold text along the top. A once in a lifetime spectacular. Yeah, I've never actually noticed that that it's a mixture of like you've got the original Return of the Jedi. Which poster is that? The the, the original theatrical poster mixed with the Josh Kirby poster. And then you've got the, obviously the other artists that made um, the Tom Chantrell and Tom Young Empire and Star Wars posters as well. I never noticed there was that many different artists in one. Yeah, they they've they they put them all together to, uh, in in the final for, for for the triple bill. How 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 rare is the return of the Jedi posters in comparison to say like the Star Wars and Empire ones? Because obviously the film was extremely successful. It was a lot more marketing going on. Uh, at the time of Return of the Jedi? They're, they're, they're comparable to Empire Strikes Back, I'd say. You've got to remember that there used to be a lot more cinemas back in the 70s and 80s than there are today. Cinema going changed an awful lot. Again, um, at, at the tail end of the 80s, we had post-war peak of 4,700 cinemas in the UK. Today, there are just 770 cinemas in the UK. All of those cinemas that were the traditional sort of high street art deco style cinemas, they were sort of surpassed at the uh, mid-80s to the end of the 80s by, uh, by the multiplayer out of town cinemas had lots of screens and uh, you know fast food restaurants in there as well sadly these high street cinemas were faced with a choice of kind of you know refurbishing themselves to make themselves a bit smarter because they were starting to get a bit mothered or, or actually closing down and, and and most of them closed down so we actually have quite a lot of cinema posters from this era because there were more cinemas did the uk have any things like uh, in germany and i see in the us as well they had sort of like still posters and still cards like lobby cards oh yes yeah there's um you know there, there were lobby cards produced uh, for the films i'm not an expert on, on lobby cards but it's one of those things where i think maybe i might start to collect them you know it's it's a, it's a logical step yes indeed so um that 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 could be sort of you know somewhere that i sort of like start moving towards next is to get some lobby cards. I, I tell you what, I have bought some extra uh, bits of paraphernalia from cinemas. There's, there was a nice sort of a, a Dolby stereo sign that was sort of on clear acrylic that was going to hang in a cinema, which I, I've got in the exhibition. I also managed to get a actual uh, uh, cinema board. This is this is the board that would have those little white letters in where saying what was on today and uh, you know the U certificate, the A certificate, the double A and the X. And I, I've got one of those in the exhibition as well. So I'm sort of on the lookout for old, old bits of cinema paraphernalia. Um, that would have been around at the same time as the Star Wars films. If anyone's got anything they can help me out with, then, um, you know, do think of me. <laughs> I've noticed a lot recently as well that people seem to be very interested in collecting the uh, sort of ticket stubs for Star Wars. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind actually um, having having a few ticket stubs as well. Uh, again, it's something that you can you can frame up, you know, fairly small, and but they they go well. And um, you know, what what I'd say also about the posters and about lobby cards is that they they go well with the vintage toy collection. You know, if you you want to have something that that's going to complement your vintage toy collection, then you know, get a lovely framed chanterelle or, or or a framed Empire Strikes Back poster um up there with it, and you know that, that they work well in harmony. Are all these posters, the ones we've discussed tonight, on show at the exhibition? 
Yes, they asked you. Yeah, every one of them. And they're all yours personally. Yes, they are. Yeah, oh, except for except for one, the um one of the Marla Haley ones for the Empire Strikes Back that's been loaned by a lovely chap called Simon has uh, has allowed us to to put that poster out there. It's a hell of a collection, isn't it? When you look at what you've shown us tonight. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> you old <Yeah>. flatterer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's got me going. I never, I never really realised till tonight how much I need a Hildebrandt uh, landscape uh, British pod poster. <laughs> Stick it on the credit card, mate. Worry about it later. Yeah, yeah. What's the rarest of all those posters? If Grant was going to go and buy the set? Well, uh, the the Hildebrandt would probably be up there. The the banner poster. Uh, for Return of the Jedi um, by Josh Kirby is very rare. I was lucky. This is one of my most recent acquisitions. Um, I, I, I bought this from pretty recently from a small provincial auction house. They had mislisted it as a as a quad. You know, I saw the photo and I thought, oh, that quad looks a bit strange. You know, so I had a close look and, and I soon realised what it was. Uh, but I was very, very fortunate to actually bid, bid on it and get it for a quad price. I, I paid, I think, £350 for it. And I would say if that was actually going to auction now, there'd be an estimate of 6000 Wow. Not a, not a bad buy, that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, not so. Hey. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been a, a great education with the posters. I'm sure Grant would agree. It's been quite fascinating stuff. One question we always ask our uh, interview guests before they go, if we were relocating to a new planet, space was limited on the craft, you can only take one piece of anything you own. What are you taking with you? Oh, that's a great question, isn't it? That's like um, Desert Island Discs. What do I take? <laughs> Could I take the soundtrack? Would that be allowed? Or is that... Oh, that's no, quite yeah. within... That's a good, a great that's choice, a good answer. I take the soundtrack because, you know, that, that music is so stirring for the soul. And, um, you know, that conjures it all back up. So I, I can hear the music and... Uh, uh, and the rest of it comes as images in my mind. Not, not a Roger Castell Empire Strikes Back quad poster, then? Well, you know, what would I do with it? I'd have a, I'd have a few looks at it. I, th- I think the soundtrack would be better for me, because, um, you know, m- m- music is magic, isn't it? Well, Matt, thank you ever so much for your time tonight. It's been a, a real education. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I've really, really enjoyed this. It's been really, uh, really interesting, and you've opened up a can of worms now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I hope the exhibition goes really well. Thanks very much, Stu. And, and, and again, thanks so much to you guys and, and your fellow compadres for doing the Vintage Rebellion. I'm, I think I speak to for everyone when I say that, you know, it really is a great service for us, uh, particularly us British collectors. We've got a big international audience as well now, and uh, we really appreciate the time and effort, uh, the amazing hours you put into this. It really is appreciated. So thank you. Yep, you're happy when we shove a six and a half hour podcast onto your phone, do yeah? Brilliant. Just, just don't do the Christmas panto again. You know, apart from that... <laughs> All good. Well, Matt, thank you ever so much again. Uh, We really do appreciate it. Right, over to you then, Jezebel. Commence primary ignition. Hello, what happened here? Ah, good. New acquisition. Right, lads. New acquisitions for the end of the year. Well, we're going to go straight to Star Wars Forum UK, as we as we tend to always start. And Stuart, first of all, I'm going to come to you, because you pointed out something which was posted on Friday, November the 11th, I think it was, on page 2016. And do you mind telling us all what was so special, what caught your eye? Well, this was picked up by uh, an old friend of ours, uh, Ben Coomber. He has splashed his cash on a Lily Leddy Imperial Commander. It's a 30-back, so it's the El Regresso card. Now, I'm not going to go too much into Lily Leddy. 
we covered everything with Ozio and Marco last month. So if you want to learn about the Lily Leddy line, go back, listen to episode 30. But Ben, we've known Ben two, three years now, and his goal was always to pick up a mock of every figure on a card. And I think we, I think a lot of us start like that, don't we? I think I, me and Pete at the moment are, are doing the similar sort of thing. And like he said, he was collecting, learning, getting a bit more knowledge about the uh, about the items. And he said, luckily, he's managed to pick up along the line a, a few more interesting different pieces like foreign mocks and some unusual combos and whatnot and then he said that he suddenly hit like a brick wall in the form of yak face he didn't want to spend a great deal of money he hates the figure and he came up with there was a sun damaged one 500 pound went from way above that what he was willing to pay for it he then was at echo live saw another one for 600 pounds um, but the bottom of the bubble was cracked sold instantly it was not in good enough shape for him but way over what he was willing to what he was willing to spend on it so he sat down, re-evaluated his collection, and then this particular mock came up. Now, obviously, Lily Leddy is going to demand a sort of reasonable price. So he sold a great deal of his cards to fund it, and he's decided now to just get a really nice example of each card back. So a 12-back, 20-back, you know, 30-back, blah, blah, blah and then pick up some foreign variants. But what I like most about this was he, he's paid a great, great big fee for it, and we always talk about the postage system, things getting damaged. Now, Ben, on, I think it was mid midweek sometime, he flew out from Gatwick to Amsterdam, spent three, four hours with the seller, and then flew back in the evening. 70 quid, done deal. So a great way of doing it. He said he has a great chat, went and looked at this bloke's collection, and is a, is a happy camper. Now, we were due to record this podcast last Monday, and for various reasons, it didn't get done. So we were a week late on it. But Ben had it at Farthest From with him over the weekend. I don't know if any of you boys saw it. Oh, yes. But it is a real, real minter of a of an example of a Lily Leddy. It's in stunning, stunning condition. So I'm sure he's absolutely thrilled to add such a such a piece. Stu, Did I, any of you boys look at it? Yeah, Stu, I, I thought he was very brave to bring it with him. I mean... I mean, when, when when he got it out, I was like, "Oh my goodness!" He's he, he was in his little bag in a in an acrylic case, obviously. But thinking, I think I left it at home. I mean, the pictures do it justice. But when you see it in the in, in his hand in that case, oh my goodness! Everyone's just like, "Oh, that's the best thing I've ever seen." It was beautiful, wasn't it? But well, he handed it to me. He handed it to me in the pub. <laughs> I was I was a good five pints in, so you know, not intentionally, but could have easily had an accident. Well, yeah, going over to. Uh, a foreign country to pick it up and then lugging it round in a satchel is an interesting concept. But it is, but it, but it wasn't. It wasn't a. Ma- I mean, it's not a huge expense to go and get some, uh, you know, a, a very, very good figure. I mean, it's not like you're going over to get a, you know, a Nikto mock or something. You're going over there to get something that you're probably not going to get a chance to get anywhere. I mean, it's it's so nice. So, I mean, at least it wasn't travelling to Mexico to pick it up. <laughs> at least it was only only Amsterdam. Well, to be honest, with you it, it was a seventy pound flight. Yeah. You know, return. Exactly. Not bad, and. Obviously, I'm, I'm not going to reveal it on here, but he told me what he's paid for it. Yeah. But, you know, it's a hefty sum, so... Well, yeah, but it was, it was worth, piece, it's worth doing. It's a piece of mind, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that would have cost a lot to send if you wanted it protected and guaranteed to get there. You know, I mean, you'd have to send it in a proper, you know, mailing box kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, but also, he, he got to meet someone maybe make a new friend, so good times. i tell you what I did notice on it. Well, I've never really studied the back of the cards, the line art. Yeah. But, um... Yeah. It's a be- it's a beautiful card back, but I love when you look at it. Like the images have have all been drawn with like um, squid heads cape is proper flowing. It's got 
although it's a still, it's got like a load of movement in the picture and Vader's got his arm in the air. I never really noticed that, never really studied them long enough, but those little pictures are um, a diamond on the back. Love them. I do love them, but I always find it that sort of disappointment when you turn that beautiful card over and then it's like a you know monochrome view on the back when you've had this wonderful colour and you know the crazy X on the front. You go, oh, this is amazing. And then you turn it over and so, say, oh, it's drawings. Oh, but it's so different to any other card back. It's cr- oh, no, no. You know, absolutely, I know the beauty of it. It's just, it's just that sort of surprise of, oh, oh. Well, I did love what he said about the fact this uh, chap is Dylan, who he, who he bought it from. Uh, and he said uh, Dylan loved to talk about Star Wars and specialises in Clipper, and he's really broadened his knowledge of Dutch collectibles. So, yeah, for, for the price of the flight, for the hassle, it wasn't long at all. He got there and back quicker than Rich took to travel down to Fordingbridge this oh, last yeah. weekend. And right. when you consider he was able to do the transaction and then in hand he was able to do um, friends and family on PayPal on his phone. So no fees to worry about it. Everyone's happy. And yeah. I just I was just delighted for him when I saw the photographs of how happy they both looked as they did a sort of gripping grin sort of smile for the camera. And uh, it just sounded like a great experience. To be honest with you also he when he was out there uh, Ben's got a bit of a, a speeder bike focus going. And while he was there, he also picked up a, a Lily Leddy speeder bike box as well, which I don't believe had been prearranged. So it was a bit of a bit of an extra little bonus. So happy days. It's it's really weird that just that card back has turned an Imperial commander who's just a bit of a bit of a non-character, really. You know, it's not one which I ever ended up getting in the end. But it's, it's nothing which is really flick my switch but you look at it with as you say with the with the crazy x with the the logo and everything and it just looks so much cooler it's just really really up the stock i did notice that the um the background uh, under the bubble the you know you get different colors don't you on on the card is typically a sort of yellowy orange but on this particular one it's it's really dark it's much darker orange and uh I just noticed that earlier on, instead of it being a sort of a, a lighty, yellowy orange, it's much darker, much deeper. And it really, really sets it off. And I think it really complements the, the colour of the figure really well. Is that just me or have you guys seen this? No, it does look nice. I agree with you. I agree. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm encouraging everyone to go and check this out because it really is cool. It's a lovely tale. And as I said, Ben looks really, really happy and very smart as well. He he certainly dressed up for the occasion, didn't he? Yeah, some of the other guys were telling me about it. They say it's, it's quite famous. Check it out. Star Wars Forum UK. You don't need to be a member to, to have a little look at it. But it's a cracking little story, a cracking tale on page 2016. So, move to page 2019. Now, Richard, I look at everyone's stuff on new acquisitions, and it was actually your fan club badges, which first of all made me think, the fan club, oh, I reminisce. I didn't join it, but I knew friends who, who were a member of the uh, United Kingdom Star Wars fan club. And then it just dovetailed really nicely with Son of Django posted on page 2024, a load of fan club stuff, memorabilia and, and whatnot. And I just want to have a little bit of discussion about the Star Wars UK fan club. Any of you guys join it? Yes. Pete, tell me all about it. And then, Richard, tell us about your badges. Well, I, I, all I can remember in why I joined it was, I, I'm assuming I must have seen it in the Star Wars com- or Return of Jedi comics at the time, you know, join the fan club, and I would have harangued my mom to to join it for a 45th birthday or something, because I think I was in it for about two years before 
kind of like losing interest in Star Wars and stuff. But you basically you know, join it, you get your Bantha tracks, and you'd have access to a variety of merchandise that would come via a place. I think it was in Malden down in Essex. And uh, um, every every month you would get your Bantha tracks in a little envelope, and it had a, like a the racetrack and a Star Wars sort of in in pen lining. And when that that little envelope popped through your door. You know, and you saw it lying there. I mean, it was just like the oh my goodness. You know, remember pre-internet, pre-computer, there wasn't a lot of information coming out regularly for people like me in the middle of nowhere. Um, so when when that Star Wars, you know, the contact with the world of Star Wars came through the door, it was just you know, utter joy. I can still remember the sensation now of hearing that thing come through and your mom going, Peter, Star Wars things here, and uh, and and it was it was it was it was amazing. But um, I I don't remember these badges. That's all I want to know. All, I, I can remember getting stuff like patches and um, other badges, but not these ones. So where were they, Rich? Well, I don't know if I want to cut this because the badges aren't part of that Star Wars fan club. They're American. Pete, was your mum always constipated? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rich, Rich um, but you couldn't join the American one. You can only join, uh, uh, eventually, the UK one and that thing. So the fan club is all part of the same thing. Yeah, so that's why you've not seen the badges because the badges were the badges I've got are states only. Oh, well, bad, bad times. I, I forgot to mention that in my acquisitions, actually. You saying that Santa Django picked up a load. Yeah, it did. Just last week, actually, I picked up seven copies of, seven packages of Bamper tracks with some application forms to join and that kind of business. £1.80 off eBay for a great big wad of stuff That's all crazy. on Bamper tracks. That's crazy. Yeah. Completely slipped my fill, mind. Fill it in, Stu. Yes, in an envelope. Yeah, I wonder if you can still apply. I wonder what happened. <laughs> but, well, it would be interesting to see what happened. I would, I would love to see the way Mills Fierce tried to deliver it. That's nothing. Outcasting. Don't worry about it. But, um, yeah, Jez, I, you know when I saw this picture, um, because obviously there isn't a link between the fan club badges and, and this item that you've now posted as two, because um, they're two completely different fan clubs. Hmm. But when I looked at this, it reminded me of the scrapbook that Ben and I picked up. Mm-hmm. The same kind of, you know, the old worn paper and the, t- the typewriter font and that. Um, but there's there's some fantastic things in this, and it, all of this comes from the fan club. Or I think I think there's possibly some you know bits of paper that may come from somewhere else in there. Um, some cool items, you know. It's this this needs photographed and put on the SWCA. Yeah, Rich. I mean, I mean, a lot of stuff that came in the American fan club, you could get, you could buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was lots and lots of badges, lots of stuff. So I would I would imagine that I, I need to check my little my little pamphlets. But I reckon you could probably have bought these in. I don't think many people did, because it was always quite expensive for stuff like that. But eventually, I mean, I, I think I sh- shared with Stu and the other guys the other day, and we were, we were having a conversation about something else. I think I shared a, a picture of a um, a list of stuff you could buy, and it was all sorts of stuff on there, from best bin jackets to everything. So I would imagine everything was available, even though it maybe not wasn't a freebie. You could probably buy it. But, uh, but even even reading the paperwork on there, for example, he, he took a good photograph of the Empire Strikes Back and Return the Jedi double bill. And in there were things such as, you know, um, hurry, choose the number of seats that you want. You are getting an exclusive advanced, you know, chance of purchasing your tickets, which, you know, probably wasn't even true. You probably got to the front of the queue um, a bit quicker. In fact, actually, there was a triple bill on this one that I'm looking at. Wednesday, June the 1st, 1983, Star Wars 7 o'clock, Empire 9.15, and Return the Jedi for 11.40. You know, that, that, that would have been fantastic as a kid going to see that triple bill. Yeah, some of the other guys were telling me about it. They say it's, it's quite famous. Do you know what? I've just got the Bamper Track stuff out. It's amazing. It's 
Beautiful things, Joe. Beautiful things. There's a little, there's a quiz, quiz question sheet in here. Just brilliant. I was just having a look online about this because I remember it as a kid, and I was wondering why <laughs> I never. Out when you were a kid, don't, don't kid anybody, Jez. <laughs> and I remember, you know, I was just thinking, why, why didn't I join it? Why didn't I join it? And uh, I knew some of my friends had done, but I was just looking at. I've seen an advert. An exciting offer for Earthlings. Hey, kids, be the first on your planet to join the most exciting fan club in the history of the galaxy. The official Star Wars fan club. It goes on to say about how it's headquartered on the fourth moon of Yavin. And you you must join it. And it's the only fan club that's really out of this world. £2.95 membership fee. Now, this might have been why I didn't join. Because I... Yep. I think I used to get 25p a week pocket money. Is that it? I mean, that, that, was, yeah, that was a yeah. lot of money. Yeah, 25p. 95. That's, yeah. That's... What, what year was that, Jez? 1978. Okay, because the one I've got in front of me at the moment is 1983. Yeah, that's the one right. that was advertised Five. on Return Jedi magazines all the time. I don't think... £5.95 think... here. Yeah, well, see, probably even more. See, I wouldn't so, have wanted to join it in 1978. It would have been closer to about 83. You were, you were 83 back then, were you? Um, Jez, how how would you find out about the fan club back in 78 then? How, how would uh, somebody like me, although admittedly I was one at the time, but how would somebody who was, you know, six or seven find out about the Star Wars fan club? Was it only in the Marvel comics or something like that? It, was, like, it was in the Marvel comics. And nothing else, just Marvel. Well, what what else uh, would people have had access to? But then uh, you, you there's, there's a there's a lot of Marvel comics on this. It's probably in the um, a newspaper would, would have been a hell of an advert, advertising campaign because it'd have been, yeah, you're not hitting your target or audience, are you? I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, a lot of stuff used to be advertising comics. Think of all those toys. Remember we had the the whole sea monkeys thing years ago. All those things, that all their business was done via via comics. Or well, majority of us was done by comics, mm-hmm. so it was a huge audience. Because you know, these days you wouldn't do it because there's not the, as audience as, as there was. But then, what else did you have? You had comics for kids. That's the only way you could talk to kids. There wasn't the internet or anything like that. So I was when I was having a little look on the internet earlier on. One of the first hits of, of the search I put in took me actually to a, a Vector sale in 2014, which was a complete pack, welcome pack. Um, Star Wars fan club and it just had everything listed there what you get and some of it was water damage actually um, same incredibly rare generally excellent near mint uh, the welcome letter the various different things the advert then goes on to say exactly what it is you get when you join oh I was so envious of Simon Hillier there's quite a few there was, there's been quite a few lots fan club lots on vectors I haven't gone for that much you know I haven't gone for ridiculous amounts of money um, but normally normally the money is when you know, it's the first the first editions of the Bantha tracks, you know, when it's like issues one to like five, I think. Mm. But you can still pick, you can still pick them up, you know, earlier ones. I think there's one on eBay for about three or four quid now. I think about number five or six. Five three to upper bay door. Five three to upper bay door. So they're not ridiculously expensive because they were literally only about a sheet and a half. I mean, the, the later Bantha tracks are really nice. They're like you know printed sort of two or three color jobs, but the early ones are just like bits of paper with a bit of information on it. I love some of the stuff you get there. You get a little wallet size Luke X um, to, to put in your wallet or purse. But it was the, uh, looks like it's about a, I don't know, 10 by 8, quite a big picture. One of the classic ones, sort of print you probably get at a celebration, which is Chewie 
Han aiming his blaster, Luke looking all hard aiming his weapon, and Leah looking like she's scared out of her skin hugging Chewbacca, um, which is quite an iconic picture, really, but it really makes Leah out to be a bit of a wuss, um, which obviously isn't really in the spirit of the movie, so I, I, I don't know why they chose that one. But Grant, I mean, you, you would be one of the people who I would naturally think being a, a Beyond the Toys collector would have a lot of this stuff. Does this stuff float your boat or is this not really your cup of tea? Yeah, it, it does. But I know I've got a few bits and bobs, some from America, some from Britain. But I'm finding it actually a bit tricky to match up uh, what was released and where. Like you could have different offers, different stickers, different patches and different badges and stuff so it's not a priority at the moment i do have like a little box of this stuff but um i think some of them had uh postcards or photos as well so it's, it's a bit difficult to sort of research it all but definitely a project for the future uh-huh i'm i may be incorrect here but i think when they changed the name from star wars uh star wars fan club to bantha tracks that was actually is a competition i'm sure i've read somewhere that there was a competition to choose the name and there were a few different ones come in, which were, were, were great ideas. But Bantha Tracks, I believe, was chosen by a kid. Cool. So there you go. That's good to involve the right. fans. Seems as a fan club. Good times. Good on you, Rich, for your badges, which obviously I've learned weren't in the UK. But then again, I wouldn't have known that because I was too poor to have a membership myself. And then uh, Son of Django with your collection of stuff. Yes, everyone join the Star Wars fan club. Love it. One day I might start my own fan club. Right, moving on. I am sold. I'm sold on Bamford Tracks. I've just opened up one and there's a whole double page spread all about Leah Thompson and she is a real passion of mine. Yeah, some of the other guys were telling me about it. They say it's, it's quite... <laughs> oh. oh. Do you know what? She's in, there. she's in my top three. Yeah? Yeah, she's in my top three as well. Uh, such good taste, haven't we, Grant? Never heard of her. Don't worry, mate. You, that, that film will soon be at your local cinema. Or him. Yeah. Was she the chicken Back to the Future? She's in Back to the Future. Yeah. She was his mum, Rich, when he goes back. <laughs> yeah, she's in my top three. She was his mum. <laughs> well, she, yeah, but she's raw. She was spitting Back to the Future. Don't tell me you've never pulled I, your I especially liked her when she was uh, Biff's wife. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like the one who was missing. <laughs> oh, God, no. Have you ever watched Back to the Future, Rich? Because I know you've never seen a Bond film. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I think, I've seen all three of them, but I couldn't tell you anything other than the first one. What? She also got off with a duck in Howard the Duck. Got all sexy time, and that's what really sold me on it. Oh, she yeah. was a See, Rich, Rich would like that. A bit of duck love. <laughs> Guys, uh, getting back on target again. Uh, <laughs> the, the Star Wars fan club. Do you think now, with the uh, growing popularity again of Star Wars, do you think something like a Star Wars fan club could ever exist again? Or well, are kids nowadays just into apps and, and everything else? Well, they, 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 they tried it in the late 90s with the release of The Phantom Menace. I think it was called The Emporium or The Imperial Emporium, something like that. And that lasted uh, for a while. But uh, not so much information. That's kind of like as I was getting out of it. Jez, I think it could exist again in a format where exclusives are the key, you know, of collecting exclusives, because that seems to be... If you think how mad it goes at place like Star Wars Celebration, uh, yeah. when, when there's an exclusive line, if you had things that either gave you access to, to things at events, or you actually got like a, an exclusive figure every you know year or whatever, I think it could exist in, in a format. Because I think, I think you've got, the, you've got the, the audience again. You've got the right audience. You've got the dad and lad mentality 
coming back. So can we maybe from a 40th anniversary celebration thing? I know we had our fanzine, but instead of a fanzine, maybe just maybe, <laughs> and then I could be a member of it for the first time ever. Could we do a special Star Wars fan club thing for next year? Yeah, can we call it Bantha Poodoo? <laughs> Bantha Slacks? Bantha Twats. Rich. And on that note, Bantha Bass. excited then. Shall we, uh, should we move on? Yeah. This is some five minutes is. That's de- definitely yeah. give me an idea though, Jez. That was, uh, that, that's a good call. That's giving me an yeah, idea I'd for something. love to do that. Moving on to page 2022. Pete. You've pointed out Spoons' unproduced micro-collection figure, but you've done something kind of special, haven't you? Well, it's not that special, but I, uh, I caught it with Spoons, and uh, Spoons, tell us all about your micro-collection figures you picked up. Well, I've bought two unproduced micro Star Wars micro-collection items um, from uh, a quick furl on eBay one evening, and uh, I saw them both there and couldn't resist. Because you, ha- you have got a bit of a... A bit of a micro collection fetish going on, haven't you? I've fetish. I think that's probably pushing it. I've, I've been <laughs> the last ten years. I've been uh, slowly, slowly collecting uh, the the box sets, and I've got got most of them. Still, some way to go. And I've got a few of the unpainted um, the figures, the little little metal figures. There's there's quite a lot of them around unpainted. They sort of mass produce these things. A lot of them didn't get painted for whatever reason, and they're out there for you and I to buy. Um, but what I stumbled across on eBay uh, the other week was a gold stormtrooper from the um, the Death Star escape set and an unproduced Chewbacca from the uh, the Bespin torture set, which was which was never made. Okay. So so why was the stormtrooper gold? Any idea? Any reason? Uh, well, a test is probably uh, is is the best. Answer. I mean, I, when I when I bought it, I had a quick look on the uh, Star Wars Collectors Archive, and and they say they don't know why it's gold on, <laughs> on there. <laughs> it just seems a strange colour to go for a, a test. I mean, you think you know, just use. I mean, like I said, having worked in kind of plasticky things and production, you're thinking gold would always have a, you know, a, a, any gold effect would have a bit of a premium on it. I would have thought that just you know white grey. Well, this this was this was early on, and if if. You know, this is from the, the one of the Death Star sets. So, one of the earlier sets in the line. Uh, I mean, they're all, all released at the Empire Strikes Back stage, and it could well be that they're just testing out for uh, casting C-3PO for one of one of the later sets. Uh, so just you know, shooting off a load of figures in in gold because the C-3PO is, is yeah. cast in gold as well. So it could just be a test. Could just be fun, you know. Someone, someone. <laughs> Or they were trying to pass it off as a gold nugget, of course. That could always be a, a reason. There's, so, a, there's a, a sort of a brass, a sort of bronzy coloured one as well, um, which, I, which I've not seen for sale. But I've not seen, I mean, one of these gold ones, I'd, um, you know, I, was, I was well aware of them and collected the line for a while, but I'd never seen one for sale. I've not particularly been actively looking or asking around. Um, so, it was, yeah, it was a bit of a shock seeing it, seeing it on eBay and, and relatively reasonably priced as well. What was the price you paid for them? The Stormtrooper was just under 60 quid with postage, and the Chewbacca was a real bargain 
at about £30 with posters. Now, the, the Chewbacca was a figure that was only released for the torture set, which was never on sale. So uh, again, they, they produced a lot of these and the, the line was cancelled. So they never actually made it to the shops. Uh, but he's just another unpainted figure in that sense. But clearly there's no no premium attached to him. He's meant to have a little C-3PO that, that sits in a bag on his back. You, you can buy that as well. But but I thought, yeah, for that, that Stormtrooper at, at £60, I suspect if I was in uh, lived in America, I could have probably picked it up a bit cheaper. But that's that's incredible price, really, for a pre-production, non-produced kind of item. That's that's amazing. I mean, if you imagine that a three and three quarter inch figure was was cast in non-production colours off the production line for whatever reason, you know, what would what would that fetch? The, uh, hundreds <laughs> at least. <wouldn't> hundreds, <laughs> absolutely hundreds. Oh my goodness! Well, that that was an absolute bargain. Well done. Five one seven to scanner control. 517 to scanner control. Nice one. Nice one, Spoons. Thanks for doing that, Pete. And it's definitely not a fetish. So, moving on. And that's it for Star Wars Forum UK at the moment. Then I went over to the Imperial Gunnery Forum. And my, oh my. Guys, not really got a great deal on this, but it's insane. You must take a look. It's on the latest purchases, volume 12, page 1 of the Imperial Gunnery. R2 to tour with a crazy post, including pretty much a naked Leah kissing 3PO. Have you guys all seen this? I did send you all a link. Yep. Rich? Yep. What are we looking at here, mate? Well, you've pretty much described the cover there. Um, So obviously what was fascinating about it was, you know what was that newspaper or magazine what what were they and i think if i've got things right they were a monthly french comic kind of magazine that focused on you know the unusual things but they tried to be serious as well so i think they had a slogan of the newspaper one reads on the couch while while munching chocolate that that was their strap line which isn't really that catchy um but it was a, it was a humorous crossover between newspaper and comics and uh you know it, it sounds like quite a quirky little magazine and i believe the ceased actually in february 86 so it wouldn't have been much longer after this photograph was taken that that actually disappeared you know we butcher every language don't we we're awful but um charlie menswell issue 19 1983 and it says charlie mentor was a french adult comic book published between 69 and as you say 86 with links to its current relative charlie hebdo which has been in the news uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. So there are links still to that, but it's, um, yeah, definitely an adult comic book. But we're looking here at Death Star in the background. Some TIE fighters coming out of it, very much a a Star Wars sort of iconic image. And then a 3PO getting snogged by, well, what appears to be a completely naked Leah. Um... And and it looks like there are sparks and all sorts of stuff coming out of 3PO's neck. It's um yeah it's kind of borderline porno soft uh, semi erotic. It was just one of those things where I said right gonna have to have a look at this and and I knew Pete would have something to say. Well of course she's uh, she's also wearing her Endor hair or an Endor hair variant, so uh, that's that adds a bit more to the picture. Um, so maybe the Ewoks nicked her clothes. But um, it, it's kind of like um, 
a foreshadowing of that Amy Schumer cover of GQ. Remember when she uh, she was sitting in bed with um, C-3PO and R2-D2? So maybe maybe some women do have this this uh, slight fantasy about droids. I'm not quite so sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can put various different connotations in with the. Uh, uh, the cards and and uh, you know the card with the three PO with his extra schlong, um, but but all sorts of stuff. It, it's uh, yeah, a little bit erotic, a little bit of boob there. No nips, don't worry. Um, but is it, uh, is it really erotic though? She's not really snogging. She's kind of like, you know, it was, it's almost like a peck. Well, I'm seeing pretty much half a cleavage and a naked arm and stuff and an exposed neck, which is always quite nice when a lady's got her hair up. Um, <laughs> Just, um, just, just calm down. Yeah, yeah. just calm down. Now. No, 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 I'm just saying. You know, it's, it's just, it's just quite nice. Um, here we go. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure I, I can picture C3PO saying, "I never knew I had it in me." That he says in, uh, in the Ewok village. So there we go. You must take a look. The Imperial Gunnery Forum. Go and check it out. It's just the weirdest picture, and um, I've never ever seen that before. Just, um, just Jess, but just take two minutes now just to calm down. You, you sound a bit, you know, you sound a bit excitable. Okay. I've composed myself. So, over to Facebook. We went over to the 12-back group. Or well, when I say we, Richard, you checked out on the 12-back group. Peter Morsey uh, put up a cracking post uh, tell us all about it. Well, yeah, Jez, um, there was a post of four Takara carded figures, and these were the seven-inch or eight-inch um, figures. They seem to be referred to both. Um, there's no good asking you guys about seven and eight inches because those figures are beyond yours. But I was wondering, <laughs> is, is there a definitive, are these seven-inch or are they eight-inch? I, I don't know because... I would, always, I would always go with what the Japanese said, and what I can find is that most of the Japanese sites refer to them as 8-inch, and it's the Americans and the other sites that refer to them as 7-inch, so I don't know. And I don't know if you noticed, there was also a Polish um, Luke X-Wing pilot um, that had been graded in the shot as well, Jez. Um, so I looked at them and I thought, wow, you know, they really are nice, they're great, those figures. And we've seen a few of them come up for sale at Vectis recently, but it was the comments that made me stop and go back and relook at them. Because in the comments, one guy had put, and I'm just going to read his comment out at the moment, so I've got it. It was um, it was from David DeMarcus, and he wrote, Awesome, love the story behind the Stoom Trooper printed on some of the cards. And I thought, Storm, Stoom Trooper, what's that? So I, I looked at the, the Storm Trooper card, and obviously it's got Stoom Trooper written on it. So I thought, oh, well, you know, they're referring them to Stoom Troopers. I wonder if that's some get a copyright issue or, you know, something else. And then I noticed that the... The Chewback has also got Stormtrooper written on it, and the C-3PO has also got Stormtrooper written on it, but the Darth Vader hadn't. And I thought, yeah. what, what's going on here? You know, I, I I wasn't aware of this, so I did a little bit of research on Rebel Scum, and it, it, it appears as though that there was a printing error on the first release of some of the carded items. So obviously what we've got here is we've got a, a printing error on the Chewback, I've got a printing error on the C-3PO, but not on the Vader. Um, so I just thought that was absolutely fanta- fantastic, and it, it was it wasn't the whole card back because um, it has two back having C three P O not no date those correct faces and things on there, but it's just the, the wrong graphic on it, and that fascinated me. And I thought it was wonderful, it was great to see, and these are in cracking condition, and I love that three P O with the glowing red eyes, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, looking at them and looking at the pictures now, 
loving the uh, the artwork as well. I mean, the Chewbacca is that classic sort of Chewbacca shooting pose, which we've seen in so many different things, as is C-3PO next to his trusty sidekick R2. But it's the um, Stormtroopers together there in a formation, which is a sort of formation you typically see UK garrison boys, you know, doing out, outside a convention or what have you. Haven't seen that on a car back. And the Vader, I mean, that's a really sort of striking pose. But what sort of numbers have we been talking about getting released with these uh, Stoom Trooper errors? Do you know? Nobody, nobody knows. What do you mean nobody knows? Well, uh, you said... Deck officer! Deck officer! Excuse me, sir. Might I... Interrupt? Nobody knows. The, the, the error was found very quickly. Um, that, that That's quite apparent. The second release came out quite quickly, but nobody knows ex- the exact numbers. There's a lot of research to be done on that still. But, yeah, that is fascinating. It's a great post and a great spot. And... And uh, yeah, so David DeMarcher. So if he hadn't put that comment, you wouldn't have noticed that. Not nope, probably not. Not. Nope. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we're gonna have to definitely give that a bump. Five three to upper bay door. Five three to upper bay door. Yeah, it's cracking. I love it. I really, really love it. That's a great spot, Rich. And thanks, David DeMarcher, there for uh, for posting that. Uh, and the man in the first place, Peter Morsey. Nice one. I'm just glad there's not a Luke X-wing one because I haven't got to worry about that in my focus. So, uh, yeah, great stuff. And moving on, we're going to go back to Star Wars Forum UK because this was posted uh, quite recently on page 2029. Ross Barr has posted something which is which is just fantastic, and as far as I'm aware, it's a one-of-a-kind. But without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Grant because uh, Grant's going to tell us all about this cracking post. Yeah, this is a fantastic piece that Ross has posted. Um, obviously got a lot of people uh, commenting on it after he posted it. It's a small head hand Solo on a 12-back card with a 32-back sticker on it. Um, Ross actually states in it that there are four large large head hand Solos that have been found with that combination, but only this, this one example of the hand Solo with the small head the back of the card is a, is a standard 12-back, which contains the 12 figures as normal, but there's a sticker, which is about a third of the way... Well, it's, it's the bottom third of the card. Normally, the way you'd find the land speed of the X-Wing and the TIE Fighter. The sticker contains a collect-all 32 action figures, or states that the, to collect all 32 action figures, and it has taken images then from the 21-back characters, as well as the 11 Empire Strikes Back first release of characters, which you know also includes the Yoda. So I did a little bit of research on it, and um, I went on to chrisforsett12back.com, and he actually states in it that he thinks that the there was a lot of um, 12-back cards left over, and instead of just getting rid of them, they applied this sticker to them. Now, these are extremely uh, difficult to find. Um, I also found an old post on Rebel Scum from Mark Yeo uh, from the 10th of July 2014, and he goes into fantastic detail on 12-backs. It's called A Guide to Star Wars 12-Back Variations. It's phenomenal guide uh in this guide he discusses things like footers uh skew numbers bubbles variations in the figures so that basically everything you'd ever need to know about you know the the 12 back figures um he says that there are nine confirmed 32 backs in the figure range and these all appeared on the 12d uh, star wars card he then rates them in order of rarity and in order uh death squad commander was the number one rarest followed by c3po ben kenobi then we have Ross's hand solo, Darth Vader, Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. 
He also states that the Sand People and Jawa have not actually turned up, but there are rumours of a uh, of a Stormtrooper on a 32 back. But it's, these are incredibly difficult, incredibly hard cards to find, and it's a bit bizarre to call a Star Wars card a 32 back when they all kind of ended before that. But uh, it's an amazing find. Just getting a a 12 back small headed hand, I think, is a great thing. But this is this is the the step beyond. That's some excellent uh, digging. And uh, do you want to just name the um, those sites you were checking out again, mate? Yeah, it's uh, Chris Fawcett's 12back.com. Um, we should probably post up the Rebel Scum uh, page as well because it's uh, it's done by Mark Yeo and it's absolutely phenomenal. The amount of depth he goes into the different types of bubbles and w- what figures they're found on, the skew numbers, the footers, every detail that you'd ever need. And it was posted on the 10th of July 2014 and it's called A Guide to Star Wars 12-Back Variations. Maybe it'd be worth bumping it. Nice one. Obviously, we've seen transition cards or cards which have been referred to as transition before, uh, which have had stickers applied. Have these been given any other name apart from just a, a Star Wars 32 back or, or what? It's really weird. I mean, I breezed through the uh, Kellerman book and I couldn't really find any reference to it. And there they had the Empire Strikes Back 32 backs, but um, I didn't even see it on the pages that referred to the different sticker variations on the 12 and the 20 backs. So... As far as I know, it's a Star Wars 32 bag. I guess that's what I would call it. But it's an yeah. insane good find. It's, it's absolutely cracking. So, um, yeah, delighted. It's naturally, you know, for, for a focus collector to have something like that posted in there, um, <laughs> just be your absolute pride and joy. So congratulations, Ross. It's an epic post. Check it out. If you've never seen a 32 bag before, Star Wars card, or, or in fact, if you've, what well, you would have never have seen a small-headed hand before on a 32-pack Star Wars card. Check it out, Star Wars Forum UK, page 2029. Epic post. Guys, there's just one thing which uh, which I hadn't told you about, but I had a Facebook message come to me the other day from a guy called Scott Terry. He just said, a while back, a really good friend of mine was able to acquire a vintage lot of figures, 21 figures in all, for $400. Not a bad deal, but there were two. That's right two vinyl cape jowers in that collection and in very good condition the seller was just looking to get rid of the collection because they were her ex-husband's toys and she just wanted to make some quick cash she was completely unaware about the vinyl cape jowers there in the collection and i was like wow okay send me these and obviously the first question you ask is are these genuine you know what's going on here and uh, him and his friend have split up the collection he took one vinyl Cape Jarrah, the other one took the other. They are mint. And looking at the close-up photos, um, they're completely legit. They're completely, completely as they should be. He was even um, messaging Ross Barr beforehand, because I think they live relatively close. And, um, yeah, he's absolutely over the moon. He said it was his girlfriend who's the one who did the legwork on this because of her flea market page on Facebook. Someone in her area is the one who originally wanted to sell this lot. And he said he's got to admit it's one of the happiest days of his of his life, besides meeting her, of course. Um, so yeah, goes on to show us a lot of pictures. But imagine that. What's four hundred dollars now? About four hundred quid at our exchange rate, I think. But um, what is it? About three hundred pound? No, it's a little bit more. It's probably about three twenty, I'd say. Man. So I've got to give a shout out to the Philadelphia Collectors uh, Facebook group. Um, these guys have been there and shown off and uh, Ross was uh, kind enough to give him some advice uh, about the approach and sale and stuff but two vinyl cape jowers I mean I, d- I, d- I don't know what to think about that 
I mean, obviously, what, what's happened is there's been a marriage breakup at one point, and and some guy had that in his collection, and now his ex Doris has just flogged it off for four hundred dollars. Thoughts? <laughs> Women are evil. <laughs> Cold-blooded reptiles. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like the, the the scenario we all talk about, isn't it? You know, what would happen if you died, or something happened to you? What would what would happen to your collections? But yeah, I mean, there we go. I mean, yeah, don't really want to think about it from that point of view, but I'm just saying, ooh, Scott Terry, you are one lucky some guy. Yeah, two. Oh, so they've gone, they've gone half, 160 quid each then. And uh, they've got some really, really class figures. So, um, yeah, Scott, thanks for telling me about that. And, um, yeah, my word, there are some lucky people out there. Stay lucky, everyone. Si l'Empire dispose d'une telle puissance de feu, quelle chance nous reste-t-il Il nous reste l'espoir. L'espoir est la base de la rébellion. s'attendent pas à nous voir. Vivez pleinement ce moment. La force est puissante. Dix hommes leur paraîtront une centaine. On saisira la première occasion. Et la suivante. Vous êtes des rebelles, non Sauve la rébellion Sauve notre rêve Welcome to this month's now titled Beyond the Toy section. This month we will be looking at vintage Canadian collectibles and who better to guide us through the world of vintage styles in Canada than Commander Clint himself, Clint Carnis. Clint, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Grant, and thanks for having me on. Uh, Clint, I know you mostly as one of the biggest contributors to the Imperial Gunnery Forum and I believe you're one of the collectors that set up the new Tantiv 11 uh, community forum, is that correct? Yes, it is. The uh, we we thought we'd uh, try something new and different, and and uh, the uh, rebellion uh, crew that that originally had the idea, they needed someone for oddballs and and Canadian collectibles, and they asked, and I said, sure. Amazing. I mean, and how, <laughs> Tantiv, uh, Tantiv Eleven is now coming up to its first year. How do you how do you find the first year has gone? It's been a little bit rough. We've had uh, issues with some of the mods as far as health-wise and personal issues and stuff like that, but uh, we've been chugging along. Um, I think like any forum, it's it's we, we've, we're noticing that the um, uh, membership is down and we're not getting as much traffic, but we need to just continue on and keep creating uh, interesting uh, threads and topics and it should just keep going nicely absolutely i think it's always nice to have the forums there because they can you know it's a lot easier to put down investigations or you know concrete uh analysis of vintage styles collecting i know that tig was famous for it for its you know its massive 
uh, reproduction weapons library and stuff like that. Hopefully the forms can still go strong. You actually just mentioned Oddball, and I've actually changed the name of the section of the section that we're recording from Oddball to Beyond the Toys. I was wondering, what do you think of the term Oddball? I think it's just stuff that was not. Uh, it's it's not figures and it's not ships and it's not playsets. So everything else I think is encompassed under that Oddball section. Yeah, I was wondering, because to me it sounds like a, a, a term that was probably given by someone who doesn't collect this stuff. You know, Oddball to me sounds maybe a little, a little negative in its connotations and it doesn't sort of celebrate what these items are. So I was wondering if there's any way we could ever get away from the term Oddball. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't mind it. Just because when, we, when you say Oddball, there, you know what we're talking about. Like there's that certain range of of uh star wars um collectibles that fall under that connotation yeah so well uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens um uh, hopefully generate some conversation about it because i'm not sure where the term come from i sort of when i re-entered the star wars community it was already there so yes yeah, it's, it's same with me so i i i just kind of that's stuff that is still relatively cheap and easy to collect so it's and and there's always seems to be a, a good bit of it around. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. Um, one of the other reasons I know you is because of uh, your customization of action figures. Is that correct? Yes, yes. <laughs> At Star Wars Celebration London this year, I believe I've got one of your customs, and it was like an R2 unit from the very beginning of A New Hope. It's one of yes. the ones that uh, when the Rebel Fleet Troopers surrender, there's an R2 unit, it's green with a really awesome looking head was that you that was me yeah yeah i won one of those from the tantive 11 guys at star Wars celebration that's an amazing figure i've gotten in more and more into creating customs just because a lot of the stuff is being uh, a lot of the collectibles are overpriced so then and and i'm not the most wealthy person in the world so to pay 40 or 50 dollars for a figure is just outrageous to me at, at the moment so i'm delving into customs more and more and creating stuff that the original kenner line never created uh, well i think if that r2 it's a shame that that r2 unit wasn't made because if it had if it had made it people would be saying oh what an amazing sculpt that is that's a great that's a great figure and um i've never been interested in customization myself until i received that figure and I was like, wow, well, look, look at the possibilities of this. So, I mean, if you wouldn't mind, maybe down the road sometime, we could bring you back on again and talk about customization. Because I think, you know, seeing some of these figures just gets the imagination going. And it, what could it, it does. Be? And the issue um, I'm finding right now is even beater figures, like uh, lower grade figures that collectors wouldn't normally collect, even they're being priced out of the market where normally I would have picked them up for one or two dollars a piece now they're ten fifteen dollars a piece so now lately and and the r4 m9 droid which you got at celebration I actually created all those parts uh, by molding them oh really so it's not from r2 bodies or anything it, it was originally an r2 body and the legs and all the parts I just created a, a silicone mold and and used a two-part resin and created the parts. Wow, it's amazing. I'm, I'll definitely uh, publish a photograph of that on our social media because it's in my in my cabinet now on its own with all my other sort of fan stuff. And it looks it looks fantastic. I love it. Nice. I mean, I made the probably 
put maybe three or four hours into each figure, but it don't, the parts only cost me a, like a dollar and a half to, to create it. I'll tell you what, in the, in the future, in a couple of months' time, it'd be great to have you back on. Maybe we could talk about the processes and uh, sort of ideas of customization and, you know, investigate that a little bit further. Sure. Um, moving on to Canadian Star Wars vintage collectibles. Um, I think one of the first things that people or collectors notice is the dual language, the bilingual language of uh, the Canadian collectibles. Just for anyone who isn't 100% sure or just to cover the ground, why is uh, Canadian collectibles, uh, the vast majority of them, bilingual? The in uh, I did have to look this up. In 19, late 1969, it was uh, the government enacted uh, the bilingual English-French. They just enacted it that everything in Canada had to have English and French on it in late 1969. Um, and then by early 1970, it was in it was uh, passed through Parliament and uh, made into a law. So then in early 1970, everything had to have both languages on the packaging. And, and is this because of the sort of colonial history there? It is, and plus uh, our province of Quebec is is mainly French. Um, to some extent, uh, New Brunswick and the province of, I think, Manitoba or Saskatchewan, I think there's parts of those provinces that speak French as well. So there is quite a, a French population within Canada. Right, um, okay. But so if I split the geography, I've always considered or thought of as the further west in Canada, you go the more English it is, and the further east you go, the more French it is. Would I be correct in thinking that? Yes, yeah, that's that's a pretty fair assumption. And and names like um, Calgary or Saskatchewan, are they Native American names, or is is that come into it at all, or is those sort of French? I think English? Saskatchewan is. I'm not sure about Calgary. Um, right. When I was actually researching a bit about Canada, I realised that it's got a current currently it's got a population of 36 million. Um, yes. It's one of the biggest countries in the world, but has one of the smallest densities of uh, in regards to population. Now, in terms of the U.S., which currently has 324 million, or the U.K. that has 65 million, I, you know, I would expect the ratio of vintage Star Wars that was available at the time to be a lot less, and also for what survived uh, to be a lot less as well. Would I? Do you reckon that'd be a, a correct decision to make? Yeah, I've read numbers. It's like 10%, um, 10 of whatever was produced in the U.S. It was available to Canada. Wow. Okay, so it's quite a sizable. Yeah. Uh, quite a sizable difference. Now, I do know. I, I have heard rumors that uh, our population estimate in the next 20 years is supposed to go up to 50 million people. Wow. Okay. So we're we're apparently one of the fastest growing countries in the world. Do you think that's uh, mass migration from the Americans post-Trump? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know yet. No, we have a we have a lot of of uh, immigrants from from uh, all over the world. Right, amazing. Okay, um, the the U.S. market was obviously the most dominant market in terms of making and releasing uh, vintage Star Wars collectibles. Uh, companies such as Kenner, Random House, uh, would they have sort of like a base of operations then in Canada that separate itself from its U.S. base? They did. Uh, it was Irwin Toys. It was one of the oldest and largest toy companies in Canada. And Kenner apparently approached Irwin Toys uh, to, and they formed a partnership. And that's how Kenner Canada came about. 
in uh, and I think they had a they definitely had an office in Toronto, 43 Hannah Avenue in Toronto is the famous Canadian address that's on most of the Kenner Canada packaging. Uh, right. Uh, okay. So so Kenner Canada didn't exist before Star Wars. No. No, it was it was a partnership formed with Irwin Toys, and uh, and yeah, that's pretty much how it came about. I guess there was probably some discussion. Kenner was probably surprised with how fast the toys were selling, so they probably scrambled about to find some foreign licensing and found Irwin Toys. So, um, because of the need as well for. Uh, Canadian collectibles to, to have that bilingual diversification within, you know, the products that were being released. Did they have any support from sort of like Meccano or the or any of the French companies? Do you know anything about that? I think a lot of the Canadian stuff was was first. I I don't think we, I think the Meccano stuff came after Kenner Canada, and Kenner Canada supplied a lot of the logos, the French um, logos to Meccano and for their packaging as well. All oh, right, okay. Because the U.S. stock as well would be so dominant, and you have you know a huge section of of the Canadian population would speak uh, English, would a lot of uh, American stock also come over from companies that are you know sort of mainly U.S. based? I would, yeah, because we're so close to the border. Like even even where I am here in in Ontario, it's only a two-hour drive to Buffalo or Niagara Falls or uh, maybe about three hours to Detroit. So there was a lot of cross-border shopping going on. Um, and then, so then we would get a lot of American stuff at Christmas time for for presents and stuff like that. So Yeah, I was, I was trying to research, you know, a lot of the stuff that would have been popular at the time, sort of like t-shirts and curtains and stuff like that but I couldn't find anything by uh, with the uh, French language on it I could only find American stuff so I was wondering whether they would just ship that stuff across or yeah I think they did uh, I don't remember seeing anything with any of those um, curtains or bedspreads or anything like that with with uh, Kenner Canada on it one of the things I did notice that we're obviously going to be bilingual is a lot of things like the books and the poster magazines and the comics in regards to that, would that be from French publishers, do you think? Or do you think that would be from publishers in Canada, you know, companies like Random House? and? You know what? I have come across very few books, um, coloring books or anything. Well, the coloring books, it's mostly just the uh, covers that have the English, and, English on one side, French on the other. Um, I have come across lately some comic books that are strictly French only. All right. And pretty much all the other comic books that I've come across are are English only, and probably a lot of them are produced in the U.S. and shipped up to here. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So you know they would just change the covers then on some things. Yeah, like they especially co- um, comic books. I I just purchased one, and I didn't even know it existed. It was uh, one of those oversized super comics uh and it was strictly it was printed in the province of quebec for the french population and i didn't know they existed and then once i i looked it up i realized that they actually have a short run of french only comics that were produced in quebec uh like normal the normal size comic books and they were produced 
again, were strictly for the French uh, population. Wow, that's that's really interesting that uh, Marvel had that. The uh, supersized comics I know came out in '77, one of the first things that came out. So perhaps some of the most earliest stuff did have that sort of uh, French Canadian text to it. Right. I do have some of the the um, oversized ones. Now I've never come across with any of them with with French text unless they're unless they were produced in Quebec. Right. Okay. Well, amazing. Um, one of the interesting things when you were sending me notes the other day was about the coloring books, the Kenner coloring books. Um, which I know I had the Empire. I've got personally, I've got the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi ones, including a bilingual Canadian Return of the Jedi one. What you told us about the the Star Wars coloring books I found was really interesting. Could you give an insight to the listeners of what's different with the Star Wars ones? Well, I think what happened was uh, Kenner Canada got some early... Um, uh, they wanted to put something out that was cheap and quick to produce, and they produced four comic or coloring books uh, with the Star Wars logo on them, and um, they were strictly Canadian only. I'm not sure why the U.S. didn't pick them up or, or produce them, um, I was trying to look that up here real quick in my uh, one book, but I do know there's there is uh, they they must have got some of the early prototype figures pictures of them because right. there there are pictures um, of I'm just trying to find it here um, there was a there was an early picture of the R5 droid with the round head and it looks exactly like the prototypes that pop up every once in a while on uh, you see pictures of them. I think it's the German. Is it the German Parker Mills? Yeah. Uh, there's a catalog with some of those early prototypes. Um, there was. Uh, it almost looks like an early uh, picture of the blue snaggletooth in here. Yeah. Right. So the the actual the coloring books that Kenner produced on the Star Wars line, and that they sort of mirrored the toys rather than the films. They did, and well, I, I think they mirrored the films too very much um that there's a lot of scenes right from the movie in them right okay uh, but they also they they probably saw clips of the film and and they got pictures of the toys at the same time so that it's kind of a mashup of of some of the most uh interesting toys especially the prototypes yeah, the, the Death Star droid one, I mean, you're showing a picture of them to us now. The Death Star droid one is the prototype, 100%. Yeah, it's got that bug head, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's a, It was the some of the earliest prototype, and Kenner Canada must have got pictures of it, and that's how they uh, produced the coloring book. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll have to go check the Empire and Jedi ones now to see... Uh... See what they've got in them. I just naturally assumed that they were uh, still uh, coloring in pictures up from the film. Um, the the Empire and Jedi Jedi ones are pretty much identical. I think they're identical to the U.S. ones, other than the cover, with one side being English, one side being French. But the the Star Wars ones were only available in from Canada, Canada. Yes. Wow, that that is amazing. That's also probably why I can't find them. You see them pop up on on the the uh, eBay and and some of the local uh, classified ads every once in a while, but they do they do come around every once in a while, but they're not that easy to find either. 
Well, I know now that you've said that there's pictures of Star Wars prototypes in there, no doubt many collectors are going to be <laughs> searching for these now just to <laughs> yes. check them out. They've now become a rare item. Um, and one of the interesting, well, one of my favourite uh, promotions that happened from, in Canada was the Coca-Cola promotions. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and how it, it's a, it was a lot different to the Coca-Cola promotion that happened in the States? Uh, I'm not sure if it is that much different than the ones that happened in the States. It, it's basically this, where you, you would go into the convenience store or the grocery market and buy up the bottles of, uh, back then it was glass bottles, not uh, aluminum cans. And, uh, underneath the, the bottle cap was, uh, there was a plastic liner and in, and you would, under each liner was a different uh, figure like Ben Kenobi or or Darth Vader, Han Solo or Chewbacca, and you would match the the lid liners and you would receive money back. Right. Oh, okay. I didn't know the the United States had the the cap the bottle caps as well. I think they did. I'm, I'm, I've seen pictures. I I don't have one at the moment, but I'm pretty sure they did as well. And again, the the cap liners for here had both English and French on them. Were probably the ones in the U.S. It's right. just English. Yeah, for some reason I only thought the uh, the bottle caps were for the Japanese market. So it's quite quite exciting to see that there's uh, the Canadian ones as well. The uh, the what interests me as well is is this the same Coca-Cola promotion that they had in the states where you could get those the posters as well? You had like the Grandma Tarkin poster and the Heroes poster and things like that. I know that there was an American yeah, promotion. I don't. I think that was just an American promotion. I, I haven't come across any of that yet. And did they do the uh, the beakers as well that you had in the states? Uh, not that I know of. The the piece that you've got there actually the 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 store sign. I've I've got one of those myself. And what interests me about the the sort of promotional stuff is it's using the the Kenner toys to promote it. Yeah, I mean it's got a picture of the X wing on it and and. It actually did come in two different sizes. I, I recently picked up the smaller version. Right, that's not the one that, I've got. Yeah, there's not really any promotion for the toys on it. It's just it's it's just play Star Wars and match the match the cap liners for the cash prizes. Uh, was the uh, the Coca Cola promotion was that at fast food restaurants or was it purely from buying bottles of Coke? I think it was just. At the convenience stores and grocery markets and and anywhere where they sold bottles of Coca-Cola and and they would put uh, those signs up probably underneath the underneath the um, cash register or on the wall beside the the uh, coolers where they had the products stored for for them to walk in and grab. Ah right okay. There was um I think that's one of the most unique things that we find about collecting. Uh, memorabilia from other countries is that you're guaranteed to have diversity when it comes to sort of like the food and beverage collectibles. Canada's no different to that, as well as the Coca-Cola one. I know you got the Topps candy heads, which were the same as the States, but you yes. also had um, quite an extensive uh, cereal range as well. Yeah, it was basically the same cereals that were available in the U.S., but for whatever reason, the Kellogg cereal up here in Canada, they would put prizes in the at the bottom of the cereal. I, I'm I actually kind of surprised that the U.S. didn't have them as well. So is this the General Mills 
standard cereal, or is this the C3PO's Kellogg's? No, it was this. It was the General Mills. Um, let me just see if I can find find that picture. I think I did send you that advertisement. Uh, it was the General Mills cereal, Golden Grahams, Lucky Charms, Count Chocula, Honey Nut Cheerios, Cocoa Puffs Cheerios, Frankenberry, and Tricks. That's usually where where we would find those uh, cereal foldouts. Right, and the, and the, the cereal foldouts are sort of like what they like mini booklets. They are. They're they're not very big. They're maybe I'd say maybe thirty centimeters by twenty centimeters. Okay, and uh, are they difficult to come across at all? Uh not really. I, they they do pop up every once in a while. Some of them are harder to find than others. Um, I had. Pretty much, I had probably half a collection from when I was a kid, and I kept them. I, I I vividly remember digging to the bottom of the cereal boxes and finding them. Wow, amazing! And do you know these booklets? Were they throughout the the range of the films, or were they released under sort of one film? Uh, they were all released in '83, but they did have a pamphlet for Star Wars, one for Empire, and then the the other. Um, Six were for the Return of the Jedi film. Ah, right, okay. I'll, I'll have to keep an eye out for those. And the Kellogg C-3PO's, does that have anything to do with this product range, or is that like a separate... I think that was a totally separate one. They, it was, uh, I think that might have been Kellogg's that produced those. Right. Um, and I do, about a year ago, I was up at the, at my, uh, parents' farm, and I found my little, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, scrapbook? Or... Scrapbook. And I actually found one of the C-3PO heads that I cut out from this C-3PO cereal box. So Amazing. Yeah, it was it was quite a find. And it was definitely brought back a lot of memories going flipping through all the stuff that I had cut out and, and uh, drew pictures in my little scrapbook. And it was it was quite amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, stuff like that, you can't put a price tag on it, can you? Like your own personal <laughs> child no. scrapbook. That's so cool to find that. I wish I, I wish I could find some of my drawings that I did when I was a child, but uh, I think they're all well, long gone. Back, it brought back so much, so many memories, and you remember, oh yeah, I did, you did draw that, or you did cut that out, and I remember so vividly uh, when you when you did it, and it, it certainly is amazing. Yeah, really cool. So many other things that you sent me, um, and I kicked myself for doing this. The uh, York peanut butter promotion. Now, for it must have been in my watching list for about a, an entire year, a couple of years ago. Was the the whole set of York lids, the the cards, the circle round yep. cards, and they were only ten pound, and they were always in my watch list. I never bought them, and now I can't find them. What is the York uh, peanut butter promotion? It was a, it's now a defunct peanut butter brand here in Canada. I don't know if it was available right across the country or not. Um, but York peanut butter, I think was out of Toronto. Uh, let me just see here if I can see it. Uh, yeah, there were, there was a uh, post. It, what it was, was it was a lid liner inside the lid and you would pop it out and it was a, it was a, Scene from, I, I think it was Empire Strikes Back, if I remember. They were all from Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And there were six of them. And you collect all six scenes. And then there was a poster offer 
where you could send in for a, uh, I'm just reading the back of it here, uh, Darth Vader action poster, 16 by 20 inch, and it was $2 payable to Star Wars poster offer. And then you, uh, sent in the proof of purchase, uh, one of the liners or labels from York peanut butter, and, uh, probably six to eight weeks later, you got your box poster in the mail. Wow, and that's interesting. I've never never seen the poster. Do you know what it looks like? I don't. I don't have a picture of it. Um, I'm not sure if I can pull up Scott. I don't know if Scott Bradley has a picture of it on his website. Um, his is probably one of the best websites for for Canadian collectibles out there. He's done a fabulous job of uh, uh, researching and and putting up stuff on his website. And the, the the actual it's quite hard to explain. These sort of are these cards or lids that went they, on the They are cards. They're they're a paper card, and they're probably about uh, I'd say about thirty centimeters in diameter. And uh, yeah, it's just a paper card, and it was it was inside the plastic lid, and generally the peanut butter jar itself would have a foil. Uh, seal on it so it would be between the lid and the seal so then it wouldn't get covered in peanut butter right got you and does the the jars themselves do they carry any sort of uh star wars logos or anything like that to say that it's it's star wars collectible because i've only seen the circular cards i don't remember and i can't remember seeing a picture of the of the container itself it's it's been too many years and i do i did find one of the the discs in my in my scrapbook so i definitely we definitely bought york peanut butter when i was a kid <laughs> but i honestly i cannot remember if, what the what the container looked like yeah it's I, I totally regret it was there was six cards for sale for 10 pounds and i i didn't buy them for ages and ages and then one day they, someone had purchased them and i haven't seen a set since so. yeah they do they do come up every once in a while they're not Probably about four or five years ago, I saw you would see a lot more of them. Right. But just like everything else in the last two years, it's getting harder and harder to, to find this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, talking about trading cards, uh, Tops obviously did the majority of the vintage trading cards. We had Kathy Kendrick on a few months ago discussing sort of like the varieties of trading cards, and we touched very briefly on OPG. Who did the yeah. trading cards for uh, Canada and France, I believe. That was a, a fantastic interview. I remember listening to that one. And I used Kathy's website for years and years when I when I first started uh, trying to complete my sets. Because, again, I kept everything that I – all the trading cards that I had from a kid, as a kid, and uh, they were never a complete set. So I, I used Kathy's website and, and was able to track down a lot of the – the missing cards that I had. So what was uh, unique? Because in the UK, we, uh, if I just to give you sort of an example of what it was like in the UK, we only had for Star Wars, we only had the uh, we had a blue set and a red set, and it was sort of like a mix of the first few sets that came out in the states. And then obviously in the states you had the what was it, the blue, the red, the green, the yellow, the orange. What was it like in Canada? So in so I did a little bit of research on this before before <laughs> beforehand. Um, so OPG has been around since the early 1900s. Um, wow. They were 
they were a chewing gum company. And in 1958, they entered in an agreement with Tops. So then, so Tops and OPG have been working together since 1958. And, uh, so when the first, uh, set of cards came out, again, 1977, it's after the, the Bilingualism Act, uh, where we needed the English and French on them. So OPG had to produce the cards with uh, English and French on them. And we actually did, there was some differences between the first uh, series in the U.S. and the series in Canada. Um, we only got three series versus the five in the U.S. The blue and the red series were pretty much identical other than the English uh, and French on the, on the front of the cards. The back of the cards are identical. Now, there was a, a interesting uh, combination of, I think it's our orange set here in Canada, is a combination of, I can't remember if it's the third and fourth series from the U.S. Like, uh, I'm just trying to think what colors they would be in the U.S. Yellow was three, wasn't it? Uh, green was four and orange was five in the U.S. Right. So we, our series three is a combination of, the tops set three and four. We never did get the series five, which is, I think, the U.S. series five was the orange set yeah. in the U.S. And so we, we missed out on one of the series. And our series three, the orange series, is a double oversized set. So there was a hundred and Instead of the 66 cards or 88 cards, I think later on, um, there's 132 cards in the uh, Canadian Orange series. Right, okay, so they, they mixed them up and made a big they, set of cards. It, it, and it's it's probably the hardest, I find it's the hardest set to, to collect because it is an oversized set. Right, okay, got you. Did you have the, uh, the famous Goldenrod C-3PO card? We did. Um, now I can't remember. I think, I think we had the corrected version. Right. I don't okay. think we got the X-rated version. <laughs> but you, you did, um, I mean, when you contacted me a couple of weeks ago, you did show us that there was another factory fault on the, uh, on the cards. Yes, there, there's a little known error card in, in the third series, the orange third series, and it's labeled Ken Kenobi. Ken Kenobi. <laughs> and, and did they ever try and correct that, or not that I know? Of. There's there's not a lot of people that know about that card, right? And even amongst card collectors, it's it's not a well known error card. I, I'm not even sure if Kathy has it listed on on her website as an error card. Yeah, I've certainly never heard of it till you till you showed us an image of it. So yeah, it's just quite a. We'll have to post that up on our Facebook page to get people to to check it out. And, and it's not a rare card to find. Like, like I said, it, I, I probably have half a dozen of them right. kicking around here somewhere. <laughs> it's always good to find that new stuff, though. It's, you know, exciting. Um, did Canada have sort of like the, I know in, uh, in the States and in the UK and in France, they had, you know, sticker albums and stuff. Was there any Canadian sticker albums out there? I don't know if we had any sticker albums we we did definitely got stickers with our trading cards um and we got stickers in in some of the serials honest honestly i i don't remember what we had for stickers i know we had a 
I think there was a, a totally different, uh, like the puffy stickers yeah. set. I think there was a set unique to Canada here, but uh, I don't remember any sort of sticker albums or anything like that. Yeah, it just seems that when I was uh, researching Canadian collectibles, there seems to be large gaps in the market of stuff that you would find lots of examples of in different con- in other countries. And I'm wondering whether, you know, things like stationery, whether Canada just had sort of Stuart Hall drawing board, butterfly originals, Adam Joseph stuff, and that was just brought over from the States rather than just making unique, you know, French collectibles. I know the uh, some of the Adam Joseph stuff. I have some of the uh, piggy banks. Right. And it's packaged, it's been repackaged in in Canadian packaging with the Irwin logo on the side of it. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. Wow. Okay. American companies in sort of uh, Canadian packaging. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, it's exactly the same piggy bank or or whatever product it was, and it has Adam Joseph stamped on the bottom of the piggy bank, just like U.S. stuff. But it's again, it's in just in Canadian packaging. I like um, and same with, same with the like the butterfly uh, stationery. I have it's exactly the same as the U.S. stuff, but it's in Canadian packaging. Right. Okay. Interesting. I, yeah, I didn't see any of those. If you have any images images of those, I'd you know be grateful to to check them out. Maybe put them on our uh, social media. One of the biggest companies to produce merchandise for Canada was obviously Kenner Canada. Now, you know, if we if we steer clear of the the figures, which is an interesting subject in itself, a vast subject. Uh, Kenner Canada also produced some items that were unique to Canada and also covered a lot of the U.S. range in sort of bilingual text as well. Other examples that you can think of where there are sort of U.S. and Canadian versions, things like the board games, it seemed like they covered a lot of that kind of stuff. You know what? The board games was an interesting one. Um, when we were setting up the forum... Uh, James, uh, down in Oklahoma, uh, our chicken shack, I'm not sure if you know James at all. He had, uh, one of the, uh, Escape from Death, I think it was the Death Star, uh, board game. And the U.S. ones are actually made here in Canada. Wow. Oh, okay. So it was Parker Brothers had a, a plant in, uh, what is now part of Northern Toronto. Um, it was a little suburb called Concord, and that's where their plant was. And it is actually, the U.S. one says made in Canada. The Canadian one has made in Concord. Right. All oh, right. Okay. That's interesting. So uh, Parker was based in Canada. Yes. I, I think, I don't know if they were based in Canada, but they definitely had a, an office here. What interests me as well is the uh, the variety in the jigsaws as well by Parker. And there seems to be a lot of uh, Canadian jigsaws out there, as well as the U.S. Am I right in saying that they are different in terms of their packaging, in terms of things like color? It seems like the American ones were black and the Canadian ones are blue and pink. Or, or, uh, or have I got that wrong? Uh, no, I think it. I think again the puzzle itself was identical. It, again, it's just the packaging. I think was different bilingual. Um, possibly the color. I have seen the U.S. black ones. Um, I do have, I think I have two of the Canadian ones in the blue packaging. Um, I'm not sure if there's any other colors or not. I've never, I've never really delved too deeply into into the jigsaw puzzles. 
Yeah, because he, uh, you know, just like all things, it seems like the Americans had 20 different jigsaw puzzles. Looked amazing. And in, in the UK, we had like four. <laughs> yeah, it, it's quite an interesting. Once you delve down that rabbit hole and, and some of the different countries that produced uh, jigsaw puzzles and books and stationery and stuff, it's quite a deep rabbit hole you can get into there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I was collecting the poster magazines and I believe we have like four or five for Star Wars in the UK and then I looked at the Americans and they had 18. I was like, yeah. oh. <laughs> oh great, that's going to take a while. Um, yeah, I, honestly, I don't remember the poster magazines other than I actually have had a couple Empire ones and the Return of the Jedi ones, but I don't remember the Star Wars ones, so I don't know if they were available here to Canada or they were just strictly a U.S. item. Yeah, I've seen the uh, the French versions of the poster magazine. So, it, you know, I would consider, like, wouldn't it not be easy just to ship the French ones in and the American ones in and then you'd have both versions? Yeah, you would think so. I've, I've actually been watching uh, on eBay, there's, there's a Japanese Star Wars version one. Yeah. When I was researching Canadian collectibles, I wasn't finding as much stuff, but I was finding a lot of French stuff. Sort of like the, the picture viewer that Meccano released, which is basically, you know, the same one as Canada in the States. So I was wondering, would, would any Meccano products be brought over? I'm not sure. I, I, again, I'm not the, the most knowledgeable collector, but uh, I think a lot of the Meccano stuff came uh, after the, the Canadian stuff, so I'm not sure. Moving on to probably the most sought-after, most unique uh, Canadian items, I would say so anyway. The ones that I would think of as uh, probably the most famous Grail items. You've got things like the um, the utility belts that I remember from, I think it's Steve Sansweet's Concept to Screen to Collectible book, or his Tomart Guide, where he discussed one of the very first toy releases for Star Wars, which is sort of like a... A plastic sucker gun and a and a belt for Princess Leia, Darth Vader, Luke, I think, maybe a stormtrooper. I yeah. think there was just three of them, yeah. Just three of them. Um, what 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 was the story behind them? Because those are incredibly rare to find. I again, I think Kenner Canada, and from what I've read, um, uh, one of the best, uh, besides Scott Bradley's website, uh, uh, is a is a book by James McCowan. And it's Irwin Toys, uh, Canadian Star Wars, the the Canadian Star Wars uh, connection, and he he very nicely uh, outlines some of the the toys and the collectibles. And I think when I read in there, uh, Kenner Canada produced those utility belts uh, again by themselves and released them, and they were very quickly pulled off the shelves because uh, I guess George Lucas didn't like them very much. Yeah, it was a quality issue, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they're, they're very cheap, very uh, low-quality, great stuff, and, and I guess the rumor is that George didn't like them and, and had them pulled off the shelves, so that's probably why they're so hard to find. For something, I mean, it looks like they've just repackaged something that they've already got out there. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they had them for another toy line or, or what. I just, they're, they're, they're. I've never come across one out in the wild yet, so um, it'd be interesting to see how poorly made they are. And yeah, and, and it's, and it's right to state that these are incredibly rare. Yeah, yeah. They, even here in Canada, I don't, I've never come across them. Right. 
<laughs> the attraction is that they're really rare, and I quite like the packaging on them, but the, the toy inside is junk. Yeah. One of the other unique toys to Canada, well, it wasn't just to Canada, it it was also released in Japan as well, is the Takara Wind-Up R2-D2. Yeah, from what I understand is Irwin Toys had a very good relationship with with, um, Takara, um, Takara in Japan, and they would quite often um, import some of the Japanese toys here. Right. And I think besides the wind-up R2, I think what's I've read somewhere is we actually had some of the um, Japanese rocket-firing R2s on the shelves here as well. Oh, wow, okay. Wow, I've never seen that. The, um, the, the wind-up R2-D2, I mean, I've seen the Takara ones for sale in sort of like baggies in a, in a countertop display, uh, but the, the Canadian one is carded. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a carded one, and I actually use the carded one as my as my um, icon on the forum. Right, and the, these are also. I mean, I never see these come up for sale either. These seem incredibly difficult to find on the card. They are, and actually, you see them probably uh, mint on card ones come up more often than the card backs themselves. Wow. <laughs> and and it's 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 kind of a weird card back because it's it's just a plain black front with the walking R2 kind of walking across the front of it. Um, and the back, they, they say it's a 20 back card back. Right. But yet there's only 18 figures on the on the back of the card. You just made me think. I've never actually seen the back of it. I, I should... Because um, it's an unusual shape as well, isn't it? It's long. Uh, the card is just slightly bigger than than the standard... Um, uh, the, rest, the rest of the cards. Like, it's pretty much the same size... Maybe three or four millimeters bigger each way, height and width. All right, it's, okay. Yeah, it's. I think I have a picture of it here somewhere. Um, I'll I'll find it and I'll send that to you. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll put that on the uh, on the social media because. Um, what do you say the winder bar? I mean, the loose versions of the winder bar to D two seem to pop up every now and then. That's not a very difficult toy to find, but to find it in its original packaging just seems incredibly difficult. Yeah, I, I see them pop up every once in a while, and they they go for ridiculous prices as everything else does. And but to find a loose card back, that's that's probably the harder harder one to find. Wow. Okay. Um. The uh, the other holy grail sort of Canadian items that I can think of is the stuff that was released by Regal. Now. Yeah. I I don't know a whole lot about Regal. I know it's a it was a. a, a Company out of Toronto that produced the, um, I guess the famous ones would be the Chewbacca one, um, stuffed toy, and I think it's about two feet tall if I if I remember correctly. And the uh, Regal Jawa, I think there's a few other uh, toys to that line, but I, I I don't know a whole lot about them, and they, again they're hard to to find even here in Ontario. Yeah, I mean I've. I don't think I've ever seen seen one come up for sale. The Regal uh, the Regal Chewbacca I thought was a shop display, but it's actually that was marketed to buy. I think so. Wow. I, again, I don't know too much about it, but uh, yeah. And and that's outside of the that's outside of the Kenner range. Regal is a different company; it's not a subsidiary yeah. or anything. No, it's it's a it's a it's another completely different company. And the Jawa as well. I mean, 
who doesn't like Jawas? But I think for me, that's got to be my most, the most favorite of all the Canadian collectibles. It's got to be that Jawa. That's awesome. Yeah, I did. I did have a chance on on two of them. The the seller was was uh, is a seller I know down further south southwest of uh, where I am, and he had two of them up for sale uh, about two years ago, and I just didn't uh, get a hold of them quick enough. Really, what what kind of price tag would we would we? Uh, you know at? what? They were. Re- I think I think he was only asking a hundred dollars a piece at the oh, time. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't a large amount of money, and I, I don't know if they had the tags still on them, which I think is the yeah. big selling point for for those Regal Jawas to have the the uh, tags and stuff still attached. For for a hundred dollars each, you could probably fill a sand crawler. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I I I love that piece. That's amazing. Well, Clint, I think. We've had a really good overview of looking at Canadian collectibles. Would you have any advice to anyone who's thinking about sort of specializing or focusing on Canadian collectibles? Uh, not really. Like, I mean, for for me, it's because it's local and it's rel- readily available. And you can still find stuff today, even, even in today's market where it's getting harder and harder to find. I can still go out to some of the local toy shows that are happening there's there's a toy show here in Ontario pretty near every weekend in that's within an hour's drive and I could still find some of the stuff readily available wow uh, what about sort of eBay in Canada there's a lot of collectibles appear on that would that be a place uh, for collectors to go to eBay's pretty good I, I find some of the local classified ads like um, classified sites like Kijiji uh, stuff pops up there uh, more often than uh, eBay. Again, eBay, you're looking at probably 10% of of uh, what was available in the U.S. So again, it comes up 10% of the time. I remember when I first got into uh, collecting again, I always heard warnings of buying stuff from Canada because it seems to be you pay more for the postage. Am I correct in thinking that to the U.K.? It is because our postal system is is government run, so it's based off of uh, the package you send. Is the the price is based off of the weight plus the size of the package. So there's kind of a dual. You got to try and put everything in the smallest package possible, but you also have to make it as light as possible. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's why it's much more expensive because I know it's buying a carded figure from. Canada to the, compared to the states is a bit of a jump there. Yeah, yeah. See, U.S. is their postal system is. I guess they they uh, lobby their postal system, and I'm not sure why their prices are so low. I've I've heard rumors that their postal system is is constantly on the verge of bankruptcy. So I'm not sure what happened in the U.S. and why it's so so much more. Uh, expensive here in Canada. Um, but I do know the woman that raised the rates for Canada Post, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago now, she runs, is now working for the Royal Mail over in England. Right. Great. That's great news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I think you have that to look forward to shortly. Yeah. Well, our our pound is in the in the sewer right now, so <laughs> I'm not sure if you well, can I, do much about it. 
you, you know what? Uh, I have a hard time buying stuff from England because our dollar is in the, as you said, in the sewer as well. Right. But it's still, it's still almost at one point there when you're, uh, it was almost costing me two dollars for every British pound. Yeah. So the 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 currency exchange was killing me to to buy stuff from from the UK. Yeah, it's definitely hitting us now. It's uh, it's just pretty hard to buy stuff from the states, and we've got celebration coming up as well. So we're getting kicked in the teeth in all directions. But mind you, we we had it good for for quite quite a while there. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's all gone downhill since. You briefly mentioned a a, a book that you use as reference. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that book? Uh, it was probably one of the earliest. Books, I think, that came out. I'm just trying to look quick, look to see if I can find a, a date here on when it did come out. Uh, 2000. So it came out in the right of the millennium, and it was uh, James McCowan, and it's it's uh, Irwin Toys, the Canadian Star Wars connection, and it's it uh, it briefly touches on just about every aspect that uh, of the toys, the packaging. Uh, that Kenner Canada uh, put out. Um, oh, there's the disc throwing uh, R2D2 that I was I was mentioning the Takara one from the from Japan. It was actually available here in Canada on wow. the shelves. Wow. Um, okay, I'll have to I'll have to see if I can find that book. That'll be uh, an interesting read. Um, you also mentioned some websites as well. Is it uh, Steve Bradley's website? Uh, Scott Bradley. Yeah, Scott Bradley's website. Yeah, he's got a wonderful website. Um, there was another collector out of Toronto. Uh, he goes by the, the uh, forum names um, Womprat. So Womprat.ca is another great website. He has a pretty nice matrix for a lot of the Canadian card backs and, and uh, some of the toys. Oh, is that um, is that Kenner Canada, the Star Wars Canada cardback archive? Let me just see if I can pull it up here. There's one I've been using recently, which is sort of like a cardback archive, which has got like a, a matrix in it of figures found and figures that haven't been found. Yeah, I think there's there's that one. Uh, the Canadian Star Wars gal- gallery. Um, I'll send you the web address here. This one's Scott Bradley's. Um, oh yeah, I can see, yeah, oneprat.com. Zwapprat.com. Yeah, uh, that's the one I've been using recently. Yeah, it's. I've met him once or twice at some of the toy shows. I haven't seen him around for a while, and I can't remember his name. Um, but that was a, a great website for 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 the card back matrixes. Yeah, and I think he worked with Scott too on on uh, creating some of the matrixes and finding out what card backs were available and what weren't. Yeah, it's a uh, fascinating, fascinating guy, definitely. Yeah, so th- those between the book and and those two websites, you have a pretty good idea of what was available here in Canada, and and Scott's particularly has has a lot of the so-called oddball items. He's he's got a fantastic, a uh, lot of fantastic pictures and write-ups on some of the some of the odd items that were available here as well. Amazing. We'll have to give uh, Scott a call see if he wants to come on. Um, well, Clint, listen, thank you so much for coming on the Vintage Rebellion. Hopefully, our discussion will get you know listeners inspired to just to check out some of the amazing stuff that was released in Canada. Um, 
personally, I think you know, I love it. I especially love the uh, the French logos. I think it just looks amazing in the collection when you have a variety of logos. I mean, you're so used to seeing the Star Wars logo and the Empire logo, and to see them in a different language just it really sticks out and looks awesome. Well, that's it, and and even some of the early twelve backs that had the pyramidal tri logo. Uh, or the Star Wars logo in French at the bottom of the cards. That's that's something unique. Yeah, it looks great. And and I actually have, I actually had my Stormtrooper card as a kid. I still have it with my initials scribbled across it. And... <laughs> yeah, no, they're fantastic. They're out of my price range, but I'd love love to love to own them. And to see a set of them is just fantastic. Yes, especially a, a mint on card set. That would be a fantastic thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Clint, thank you, thank you for coming on the show, buddy, and um, we hope to. First of all, thank you for all the uh, help that you've done supporting us on the Vintage Rebellion. I do notice that you do a lot of posts for us and and, and push a kind of um, and push our podcast each month, and all five of us are extremely grateful for that. You know, I grant it's it's my pleasure. It's a fantastic podcast to listen to, and it's very entertaining and and uh, informative at the same time, and and uh, I just really enjoy listening to you guys thank you man thank you it means a lot okay uh, Clint uh, till the next time uh, see you soon buddy thank you very much have a good day ladies and Germans place your handbags on the couch start up your cigars place a comfortable coat around your pet shrew it's the last market watch of 2016. house far at the A1, our associates at Vectis Auctions bought to the table yet another delicious platter of over 350 Star Wars delights. I say long time ago, but it was the end of November. The main feature of this auction were the 61 Meccano lots, which me and the lads touch upon a bit later. Overall, the Meccanos made over £40,000 despite several being withdrawn due to authenticity questions. Amongst the square cards, the Star Wars Empire and Jedi carded figures, there was a Scout Walker empty shipping box that fetched £240, a Lear Bouche sealed baggie for £80, and a mail away card that pulled in £1,400. In other lots worth mentioning were a few items endorsed by Kim Simmons, aka the man who took those original photos we see on many of our beloved vehicle boxes. Lot 5158 is a double print of the first 12, which you see on the back of 12 back carded figures, and the concept original 12 alongside it, which was art painted over the blueprints of the figures drawn by the original engineer. Apparently the concept illustration was submitted to George Lucas, but he rejected the illustration as being too detailed. It's a cracking piece, and surprisingly, with only five such sets existing, it went for only £480. Vinyl Cape Jowers are settling in at £750 to £800. Beta Mocks, anything up to £50. Yak Face is at £160. And a host of interesting revenge mini-rig proofs range from under £1,000 to over £1,000. 
In previous auctions, we've touched upon catalogues. Complete ones appear to be averaging out to the £300 mark, and this auction brought us, amongst others, a 1981 PBP Spanish trade catalogue. The spine was coming away from the cover, it was listed as good, but it still went on to fetch a staggering £1,100. And finally, how many of us have had a grumble at the new 5p carrybag charge in the UK, especially if you're a northern type with a soft spot for quacking waterfowl? Well, a vintage carrier bag from the Palatoy staff shop in Colville went under the hammer and sold for £240. The design was a Palatoy We Care branding and carried logos from various Palatoy products, including the Empire Strikes Back and Chad Valley. Guys, let's talk about that Meccano auction, especially the Empire Strikes Back square carded Lando. The actual description itself says, within good, yellowed and totally away from the car, that's a bubble, still attached along right hand edge. Um, and there was also a tear to the litho where a bubble had been pulled away from card, also creased edgeware. Now, they put an estimate on there of 200 to 300 pounds, and as we know, um, Vectis uh, estimates can be uh, quite low. Now, this went for a staggering 5,000 pounds for what is essentially it's a loose cart with a loose figure with a bubble still attached. Now, I know I'm no expert on any of this stuff, but I think that's quite a lot of money. Um, I believe it's rare. I know what you guys think. Um, anyone, anyone have a kind of an idea of just how rare this is? Well, if you give us one minute, I'll find Stefan's book and I'll tell you. Yeah, come on. Right, let's have a look. Lando Calvertian on her Empire Strikes Back gets a, a three out of five star rating. Oh my goodness. The um, that doesn't suggest it's... I mean, it'll be rare. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very rare, but not one of the rarest square cards to get. Anyone else want to chip in to think why someone had paid £5,000 for a loose card with a figure? Should I say coming near an end of a run? It only takes two people to bid something up, doesn't it? But that's, that's an incredible amount of money. I mean, it wasn't the only one either. There was, there was plenty of other... Meccano figures which weren't exactly uh, the mintiest or sealed. I mean, do you, guys, do you think that this this is this is a sign of things coming? I mean, I can't remember when we first sort of started covering this stuff, and I again no expert, but um, didn't see a particularly a lot of Meccano stuff. But we have had more than usual. I think we're going to get a lot of this getting unearthed now and coming to auction because, I mean, let's face it, after that Bubba Fett smashed the world record in, in carded figures on auction sites in the UK. Um, and what was it in the twenty thousand? Was it twenty-eight thousand pounds in the end? That's going to get people's tails up, and these mm -hmm. things are going to going to come forward. I mean, I mean, this this is a you know a decent collection. You know, sixty-one items came up. There was a there was a hand solo in there. Went for two thousand seven hundred and sixty, which is actually half decent, graded and and nice. But there was a Boba Fett as well, um, a Turner Jedi Boba Fett, which had um, a cracked bubble uh, with a bit of surface wear and plenty of creases, and that went for two thousand five hundred and twenty pounds. So come on, guys, give me give me an insight into what what's what's going to happen with Meccano. You, you, uh, Stu and Rich, you've got Meccano book. You're Meccano experts. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. What I think's happened here, and for some of the items at this last Vegas auction, I think a, few, a lot of people knew it was coming, but nobody really knew what was there. And once the photographs started appearing, I think a few people who may have saved up or kept money aside might have been slightly disappointed with the offerings after. You know, it was certainly nowhere near as nice as the one before it, or indeed the one before that again. So I'm wondering if we've got somebody who's perhaps had a bit of cash set aside, who's determined to get something at Vectis and has went, you know, trigger happy on this item. Just have interest, guys. Does anyone actually own a Meccano card of any any sort? I think, of course. Stu, Stu, you've got a, 
I thought you had a, you had a Jawa once, didn't you? I have still got the Jawa, yeah. But that's yeah, that's, quite, that's that's the most common thing going, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that comes you, up all the time. You know, if you put the ten most common cards, Jawa Makara's probably on it. So, <laughs> didn't uh, I think uh, I think um, our our friend Dan Burgess was was parading around a, a, a very nice cheap Makano Jawa to father's from recently. Uh, Rich, does it, is an R5 on a on a Makano card of any type? I've seen a couple for sale. According to Stefan's book, they get a four out of five star rating. Okay, and when you take into account that some of them are getting like five star ratings and, and going for fairly, you know, sensible money, I saw the R5 for sale for four thousand euros. There's no way on earth I'm paying four thousand euros for one of those. Um, I will get one one day, but I'm more than happy waiting another ten years to pick one up at a Rich, decent price. Rich, to be fair, you you what dropped quite a lot of money this weekend. If you if that combined with duck related items you could afford one it's not that i know i could afford it but it's the principle of the thing it's not worth four thousand you know i'm not going to throw me money away it's just utterly ridiculous you know four thousand stupid says the man with duck items now jez you you probably sold your uh your meccano luke x-wing didn't you recently i'm sure of it <laughs> well i've got my meccano jawa which I absolutely love, and there's no way that's getting sold, and that's uh, that's still in my collection. Um, there are a couple of Luke X-Wings. There's the Star Wars card with the Meccano logo. They just don't come up. Just don't come up. I mean, you'd be lucky to get a resealed one of those, so I've got no idea how much those would be. But there's the uh, often on eBay, Lulu Baloo, the uh, shop in Paris, because um, they got them very, very cheap. I don't know, maybe, what, two, three years ago? And they're not selling on eBay, but they're just slowly putting the price up. They're just constantly putting the price up. Now, I think it was Stefan who just said to me, it's not a square card. It's just a Return of a Jedi Meccano card. There's nothing massively special about it. And this was when it was back at about 1,300 euros. It wasn't a huge amount. It's now doubled. Still not selling. I think I've got no chance of getting one of those. And Grant, <laughs> and Grant you must have Meccanos coming out of your ears. Do you know what, Pete? I don't actually know that much about them because they're so beyond my wallet that anything past, say, a Jawa, a Ben Kenobi, maybe a Tuscan Raider and a Princess Leia, it's it's all well too beyond for me. Mate, I, if you wanted to collect these, you should have been picking them up 20 years ago. Craig's huge Boba Fett sale suddenly sparked a lot of big collections in the appearing effectors yeah, during, during that year. I, I've got. I, I'm going to speculate that we might see a lot of Meccanos coming to to auction. I wouldn't be surprised if the price does get pushed down a bit. Although, having said that, <laughs> to see to see basically a loose car back go for five grand, I think is incredible, and it might just be another headline act. Because, and the reason I say that is because when that went to to kind of press as such, a friend of mine who had a Meccano loose car back, so he said, "Oh, I've got a Meccano loose car back. I wonder if it's worth something similar," and that and that's when. You know, he contacted me and said, "Oh, can, can you can you check this through the groups?" It was a, a Lando Calrissian Return of the Jedi card. And I think if if someone like him who's not really you know that involved in the whole Star Wars collecting world will suddenly pop their head out and go, "Oh, I've got something like that," I, I'm pretty sure we're going to see you know in the next year a lot of stuff coming up. I think, I think we are going to get a surge. Uh, to be honest with you, mate, I don't actually think that these exist in any great number, so I wouldn't say that there would be a surge or anything. I think these are maybe surge is the wrong word. We always think that we know everyone who's got stuff lying around now just because we're all part of communities doesn't mean that there are people out there who've got stuff there might be 10 more that come up for example but who knows nowadays because stuff is cropping up all the time isn't it i think i think you're right you're not gonna there's not gonna be a glut of them there's lots out there small-headed hand just rocked up on a 32 back 
Who knows what's going to happen with these mechanics. Exactly. And now, the top five priced micro-collection items in 2016 from StarWarsTracker.com. It's cold out here and there's no kind of atmosphere, especially hanging out with these tauntauns who keep falling over dead. Who the heck brought them to the party? It's a Hothworld mini-sealed box, £181. At four, watch out for those Dianogas. They apparently gather and hide in large man-made moon-sized planet-killing machines. It's a mint and sealed box Death Star World for 204 UK sterlings. At three, don't mention parsecs to this scruffy-looking nerve herder. They'll get all defensive and chuck you out into space. It's an open but complete Lion Falcon for 241 quid. Surprisingly held number two, it's shaped like a wagon wheel confectionery item with a bit cut out. It's another open, complete Falcon for 300 smackaroonies. And hurling in, dropping its cargo left, right and centre, having failed yet another hyperspace jump due to Chewbacca leaving a furball in the exhaust manifold. It's a mini-sealed box Falcon for a whopping 520 UK pounds! Don't forget to join us next time on the StarWarsTracker.com Top 5. This month, in the second of the Market Watch feature, where we discuss items that don't get talked about much on the podcast, I thought it a good time to have a chinwag with a micro-collection collector, Mr. Andrew Norton. Andrew, you have a couple of minutes to convince me it's a worthwhile vintage item to collect. The micro-collection <laughs> is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's a, an area where you can get sets that most people wish had been made for the, uh, the larger figures, they link together. You got the the Hoff Wamper Cave. Oh. You got the the Hoff Base. You can't can't get those for the for the bigger figures. A Death Star is kind of um, similar to the the larger produced um, items, but more more to scale. And you get Han and Luke in Stormtrooper outfits. They are they're just they're just great pieces, and they're absolute bargains to buy for the for the cost of a loose figure. You can pretty much well. Couple, a couple of loose figures, you can pretty much buy a boxed micro-collection set. And also, don't forget, we've, we've got the uh, those sort of, sort of combination box sets. Yeah, each line had uh, at least two sets in it, most of them three or four, and you and you could get a box with all those sets in, so you've got entire Bespin World, Hoth World, or the Death Star in, in a box with all the figures ready-made. You've got an instant collection, they're um, they're small, so you don't need a lot of space to display them, and they're actually really good fun. I think one of the best features in any Star Wars toy is the carbon freeze chamber, making Han get frozen and uh, and carted away by Boba Fett. Introducing Bespin World, new from Star Wars Micro Collection line. Sixteen diecast figures and action poses included. It's three play sets in one. On a Star Wars tracker, prices are ridiculously low. There seems to be a kind of rule of thumb for loose. Uh, of any of the sets, it seems to be sort of um, averaging anything between sort of 10, well, less than 10 to about 25, depending on which set. And then it sort of doubles up if it comes in a box or has a box with it, 
depending on condition, obviously. And then if it's sealed, anything between £200 and over it. I mean, is that kind of the price you've been paying for this stuff? It is pretty much. I can't, I've only got one um, one sealed set, and that was actually uh, a gift from Secret Santa on uh, Star Wars Forum UK <laughs> many years ago. So thank you, Santa, whoever you were that year. And I assume was was less than you're saying because you know the budget then I think was twenty five pounds or something. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, most I mean I've been buying these very slowly over the last eight years or so, and I get them with the box inserts and the leaflets, and it's a good way of getting the old um, Revenge of the Jedi leaflets. They quite okay. often come in sets as well. And I've not paid more than thirty quid for a box set, so um, you know, any, yeah, anywhere between. 20 and 30 and i've got a i've got a complete set of the loose figures and play sets not all the sh- not all the ships all the all the play sets which i i bought probably that's what got me into them um a guy called baldy locks used to be on rebel scum long long since disappeared he was selling a whole lot for a hundred dollars yeah and my kids love the micro machines again they're a bit bit uh a bit young for them first time round, but we we picked them up at flea markets and whatever, and they love them. And they and the micro collection goes really well with them. So I thought, well, I'll get them, get a set of these, and they absolutely love them. And actually, it was through doing that that I appreciated them so much more. And so yeah, that was, you know, it was fifty quid for pretty much everything back then. Yeah, a few bits and bobs missing, but so I, I don't think there's been a, a huge change in price by the sounds of it. Uh, there are there are a couple of items that are a, a lot more expensive than that, but, but for the most of the play sets, yeah, that sounds about right to me. But you think what you, what you even pay for a sealed, you know, or even uh, yeah, the whole thing complete in in, in good condition, um, you think that on display would look so good to have all that, that those sets together, you know, the Hoth set, the best but, yeah. set. <laughs> I mean, that's gonna look amazing when I mean, if you if you go the whole hog and do the whole thing, and you and, and I'm assuming you're you're going after them opened, I'm assuming. Yeah, open. I think, although, although once you know, I get them, take them out of the box. It's fantastic. It does great stuff. A lot of the bags are still sealed with the figures in, but then I, they put them back in the box. So, in all honesty, I might as well buy them sealed. But I, I, I like to buy them open, so I know I could, I can take them out if I want to. Uh, but yeah, all on display, that would look look fantastic actually with the box boxes in the background. Um, you see, you see, I'm here to help you display your collection. Yeah. Because at the moment, mine are sort of stacked. Uh, not the best displayed ever, by a long way. So, uh, yeah, I'm inspired now. That's the world from Star Wars Micro Collection line. Playsets are also sold separately, figures included. New from Keller. When I was a kid, I had loads of toy soldiers. Mates came round, you got all your toy soldiers out, and you had epic wars. And then, of course, you're thinking, well, surely Star Wars would have fallen into that. Yeah, it's the same. I had uh, loads of toy soldiers. In fact, it's one of the few toy lines I've still got from my childhood is my... Britain's detail. Got my uh, my Germans and my, uh, my my British soldiers uh, still still with me, which I'm very pleased about. And yeah, they would I would have loved these as uh, as a kid, but I guess the um, the imagine you know the, the imagination was something was was got with the uh, the bigger figures and the ships you could get for them. And if that's what if you're a kid and all your mates have got the bigger figures, that's what you want. I mean, it's a little bit like the 12 inch line as well, isn't it? So, They've got yeah. the three scales of Star Wars figures, and really only that three and three quarter inch toy caught the imagination. The rest were, um, you know, just didn't quite make the grade. I mean, maybe if they hadn't been interested to see, actually, if they hadn't done the three and three quarter inch, which would have prevailed the uh, the larger figures of the micro collection. 
Imperial TIE Fighter, attack! X-Wing fighter to base! I'm in for a dogfight! Imperial TIE Fighter and X-Wing Fighter from Star Wars Micro Collection line, sold separately. He's in my sight! So what's the hardest Micro Collection piece to get? It's got to be the um, the Millennium Falcon. Okay. Which, which I don't I don't have. And it's not hard to find, but it's it's expensive compared to the rest of them. Uh, the one, ones I've seen around have been at least two, three hundred quid, um, if if not a little bit more. And I've got I've got, got a few of the figures from it, um, which just picked up in in job lots over the years, but never actually had a Falcon. Yeah, because it seems that the uh, the tracker sort of dictates that that an average for I mean anything from a loose one with everything in it to a loose one with you know very few pieces remaining. Um, it actually averages out about £100, which is, you know, for in terms of micro-collecting, is actually a lot. I mean, yeah, so everything yeah. else is, you know, you know, 10, 15, you know, 20 sort of at a stretch, but the Falcon, as you say, a lot. But um, boxed and sealed, it seems to be anything from £300 upwards. It's a, that's a, yeah, it's a lot of money for micro. The, the, other, yeah. the other ships fetch more than their um, playset counterparts. You've got the Snowspeeder and the X-Wing and the TIE Fighter as well. But the X-wing seems, well, in my, my experience, the X-wing seems to be the the priciest of those in in good conditions. I think other people will say the Snowspeeder, but just uh, I mean, if you compare what I I paid for them, a Snowspeeder was about twenty quid, mint in box, all its inserts, and my X-wing was about sixty. I might just might have just overpaid for that. It seems it seems about, about the average, depending on which um, variant of packaging you you actually get. Um, I mean, I mean that seems like quite a normal price in in terms of what the the trackers dictating for the last year or so. Um, so I think I think you did all right there, to be fair. Yeah, the X Wing's probably about a year old, actually, maybe a little bit more. So it's one of my more recent acquisitions. Um, I remember the tires. I mean, the tires in a bit of a battered box, but that cost me seven pounds. What? Um, bargain. <laughs> back in the day. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a bargain then. <laughs> it was a bargain at the time, I'd imagine. Slightly battered box, but yeah, it's, uh, it's good. I've got a couple of loose ones of those as well. I can't peanuts. <laughs> oh, indeed. Got me. I've been hit. I'm crashing. They're built for heavy battle action. They go right back together again. And each ship comes with a die-cast figure. The sky is where we belong. Imperial TIE Fighter and X-Wing Fighter from Star Wars Micro Collection line. Each sold separately. Figures included from Kenner. Are there any Grail pieces that you can realistically get? Because I was reading a, a really good piece on Star Wars website by our friend Tim Vickhoven. A few images of uh, sets that they were kind of planning, like uh, I think there was a Dagobah set, and I think there was talk of a Jabba the Hutt set, which would have been awesome. The Jabba Palace does exist. It must have been so late in the day when they, they were thinking about that, because if you think that they... They pulled the torture chamber, the torture chamber set, yeah. which you know, end of the end of the Empire Strikes Back line, and the Baptist tank that was pulled as well. So they were they were at production level, and they said, right, let's scrap this. So they must have been thinking about Return of the Jedi sets at that time. So just they're not quite as far along in the um, in the process. I expect that they're not really achievable uh, for most people to buy anything from those those yeah. Return of the Jedi sets. But I mean, as as we see, the the Chewbacca from the um, torture set was thirty quid. And admittedly, I, I I don't know why the oh, I guess it's rarity, but some of the figures as a um, an, an FX set from the um, the back to tank set 
that's on on eBay at the moment for about 300 quid, uh, and sold by you know same sellers selling Chewbacca's and C3PO's uh, for a lot less. So clearly that's that's more desirable. I, I don't know in terms of unproduced figures. They're all unproduced figures, so I'm not quite sure sure why. But certainly unpainted figures from those sets are achievable to most people. The, there's also sort of test paint samples. I'm, I'm kicking myself now. Years ago, someone offered me a, a, a Han Hoth figure with an alternative paint scheme. You know, it, was, it was a test. And it was about £35, and I, I think I nickel and dimed him. So, you know, he accepted that <laughs> and he sold it to someone else, fair enough. <laughs> yes, yeah, lesson there. Lessons learned, don't nickel and dime people. That's, uh, Indeed. Um, but, it's, you know, that's, they, they were cheap. I don't know what that would, that would cost today. I, I would guess still not a huge amount more, somewhere in the... somewhere in the hundreds low hundreds i would have thought you look at the cost of a a loose pop-up r2 at the moment there's pre-production items in the in the micro collection that are going to be within within that price range that's for sure i mean there are going to be harder ones to find i don't know what the um the back to tank play set would set you back because there's there's some of those actually made or in um and uh, and the the box box art used to be able to get the the proofs and chromalins for some of the micro sets for a few hundred. Like anything, they would have uh, increased in value now, but I would still think mid to high hundreds rather than thousands. Yeah. Because they're just, you know, they're just the popularity is not there. It's almost the value in them is because people wanting to own something pre-production rather than wanting to own something micro collection. That's... Do you think that something might kick off a popularity in the, in the micro collection? The reason I ask yeah. is because think of our immediate collecting kind of friends there's a lot of movement towards non-figured items not not everybody but a lot of people are going you know what i can't afford to spend a thousand pound on a card of figure whereas i can own you know 200 small items everyone seems to have another little side focus these days i mean i, I mean i'm thinking will at some stage people go you know what that micro collection looks pretty good i've seen spoons's collection on uh, on uh, star wars forum I, I might try and repeat it I'm seeing more people buying it now than were. I mean, that's that's for sure. People are seeing it as an uh, affordable collectible. But I, I also think that the stuff that's that's really sort of getting people's interest is, is probably the lesser known, obscure things. And and again, I mean, I'm only, I can only speak as someone from Britain, but these are quite obscure because they weren't there when we when we were kids. But to the Americans, you know, they must be fairly. Um, familiar with them and, and and it's still you know that these are mass produced you compare them to what's sort of popular now the the helix pencil cases which are fetching good money these exist in far greater numbers than um than stuff like that does so although the the popularity of of, of stationery and other other sort of uh, previously less popular collectibles is increasing i just don't see kenner items that haven't already kind of got that interest, um, getting more popular. And again, you can I suppose you can look at that as, as the two packs. I think the two packs are another line which um, massively underappreciated. Not the not the greatest stuff to look at, but some really unique pieces there, and they don't seem to change much in price over the last ten years or so either. So, um, who knows? Maybe you know, 10, 20 years time, something will will make the micro collection massively popular, but I, I don't see it. What's the most you've spent on anything micro collection? Can you tell us? 
I can, yeah. And I, I think I mentioned um, both pieces already. So the, the X-Wing um, in a box with its inserts and, and leaflets, that was, it was with, with postage. I've got, I've got a record of it here. £59.73p. You what? That's the, that's the most I've ever spent on, on Micro Collection. And we'll leave it there. So thanks so much for your time on the Micro Collection. Thanks very much, Pete. Big thanks there to Andrew Norton, a.k.a. Spoons. Andrew smashed his biggest micro-collection purchase at the recent Farthest From event in Fordingbridge when he actually picked up a boxed Millennium Falcon. Right, now I want to welcome back Matt Fox for this month's Rapid Fire. Are you ready, Matt? Let's go. (laughs) Your favourite Star Wars movie? I'm going to say the Empire Strikes Back revisited version, which is imminently about to be released by Adiwan, which looks like it's going to make a fantastic movie even better. So Empire Strikes Back revisited. Your favourite Star Wars scene? My favourite Star Wars scene is the um, chase through the asteroids field, because I just love that it's a symphony of music and visuals. Not not a great deal of dialogue in there. Um, they just marry so well together, John Williams' score with the visuals in that sequence. Beautiful. Nice. Favourite on-screen character? I'm going to go for something kind of recent. I'm actually going to say BB-8. I thought he was a really fun little guy. Who would you most like to see a standalone movie of? I'd like to see the Ben Kenobi one with Ewan McGregor coming back in and doing it like a Wild West version of uh, Kenobi out in the jungle and wastes kicking ass. Favourite part of the prequels? I thought the pod race was excellent. I think that was something that Lucas himself cared deeply about and that made the pod race sequence stand out. But it has to be the Darth Maul uh, three-way fight at the end of Phantom Menace. Which actor or crew member would you most like to meet? I'm not really that fussed about meeting any of them, to tell the truth. Oh, go on, let's, let's say Harrison Ford, just because he's, he's, he's probably the biggest star out of the bunch. Your favourite lightsaber jewel? I'm going to, again, I'm going to go with the recent one of The Force Awakens. I really like that big sort of broadswords in the forest. It had that Excalibur vibe. They were really just kind of swinging them around. The choreography wasn't overdone, you know, and the stakes felt real. And um, it was a really good sequence, that Ray versus Kylo Ren. Favourite figure as a child? Favourite figure as a child, it has to be Darth Vader. And what's your favourite figure now? Takara C-3PO. I like that figure. It's got a really cool start. It's really gold and he's got kind of like starey eyes. Which character do you wish they'd made a figure of? Slave Leia. Has to be. The Jabba place that was all set up for Slave Leia to be there on the choke chain and they never created her. This is sad. What one change would you make to one figure to improve it? Let's, um, let's say Chewbacca's head swiveling your favorite toy vehicle or playset i'm gonna have to say palatoy death star was my favorite playset because i got a lot of play out of that but i'm, I'm tempted close runner up imperial attack base a vehicle or playset you wish they'd made i would love to have seen the death star returned as it did in the movie return of the jedi we needed a death star with the uh, with the throne room um so you could have had that sort of climactic fight and a bit of a chasm chuck the emperor down at, at the end of it your favorite card back image I rather like the R2-D2 cardback, I have to say, especially with the Palatoy logo with it. Something um, something a bit magic about that one. What was the last vintage Star Wars toy you purchased? I think it might have been something a little bit boring, like a Lily Leddy catalogue. And finally, what is your Holy Grail item? My Holy Grail item would be um, that awesome Canadian set, which is like uh, a box set with all the 12 carded figures in it. Amazing thing. Very expensive, I'm sure, if one ever came up. Wonderful. Well, Matt, some great answers there. Thank you ever so much for taking your time with us.
our rapid fire question then, gents. And we're going to go down a little mini rig theme for the next Ooh. three shows, okay? So this month, what is your favourite mini rig and why? Let's keep it brief, but I would like a bit of an explanation rather than just a load of letters and numbers. <laughs> and we're going to start with the Forgotten Man, Jez. MLC3. It's Ace, and it's as well as Star Wars, it looks like the little thing which uh, Sean Connery has. We've all seen that apart from Rich. Okay, fair enough. And we're going to go with Pete. It's got to be the little mini skiff thing, because there wasn't a, a skiff, and that was the only thing that could play the whole skiff thing. I do like a mini skiff too. It is, it's a proper skiff, and it's the only thing yeah. I could have possibly afforded because I never knew about the Power of the Force once, so I wouldn't have had it. Let's go to Grant. Uh, I'd have to go MLC3, and the reason is it was something I never had as a child, and I remember when I first got back into collecting, I saw it on the ATAP poster that you get on the, the Paddy Toy ATAP poster. It made me incredibly nostalgic, and it was one of the hooks that got me straight into it. And, um... Who will I ask? Richard, I think. <laughs> well... I went with the ISP6 purely because because it fits in the app that lovely. I think that's a great, neat idea. It looks like a Viper from Battlestar Galactica from certain points of view. It's the only one that you actually see is a Star Wars ship. And also because I've now got two this year and only real dedicated guys actually go out and smash their Christmas list was not one but two. Uh, oh, 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 uh, no. oh, oh, Rich, Rich, stop yeah, there. Yeah, you go first, Pete. I think there were I... some little, little tiny kind of, all right, not exactly the same, but there were a few little mini skiff type things Broken around. That's not a ship, though, is it? Wow. The skiff is the ship. It's a vehicle. Well, well it's, uh, not sure about that. Well, yeah, the skiffs go flying through space, don't they? How do you know? You wear a spacesuit, you could. The skiff got helmet. See, this is what happens when you put your eggs down. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I think there's going to be millions of people crying out in terror when he said ISP6, because that fits nicely in the ATAT. Because obviously the mini rig, which was designed to go in the ATAT and advertised as going in the ATAT, is the INT4, not the ISP6. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you could shoehorn it in. Good no call, Jez. Good call, Jez. However, come on, Rich, buck your ideas up. Can I ask a question before I answer for mine? Is the um, vehicle maintenance energizer a mini rig? I would yes. say absolutely yes, sir. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to go with the MTV7. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. That spring-loaded dual-leg motion mm-hmm. thing. Ooh. It's just a very, very playable toy. And, I used um, to use it as a tractor, and you have all the creatures as farm animals. Rich, a quick test. No looking it up. Tell me, what does the AST5 stand for? No cheating. Oh, can I go? Oh, I oh, know we did this before, We've didn't we? Um, before. Something... Oh, scout transport? Nope. Um, oh, <laughs> rubbish. Rubbish. Scout transport. <laughs> What was that? Bully, bullseye. Anyone else? Armored, Armored Sentinel Transport. Feedback. Episode 30 was a long one, so I'm not sure anyone's finished it yet. Rich? We don't have a lot of feedback online, but we've got tons and tons of father's forms, so I'm just going to start off with some online feedback first. I'm just going to read this out from Chipsteak, because I think this is brilliant. This is Chipsteak on the Star Wars Forum UK. If any other podcast I listened to on any subject was this size... I'd internally tell them to get, and then he leaves an expletive in there. I think they were mad with ego, possibly a bit psychotic. But as it happens, I'm all for this lunacy. <laughs> I think that's absolutely brilliant. And because, as Stu said right at the start of the show, we were really, really worried about a six-and-a-half-hour podcast. You know, we didn't even know if it was going to be six-and-a-half. I thought it could have been seven or longer. So th- thanks for that one, Chip Steak. Just giving through the other feedback there, we've got lots and lots of positive feedback on the Lily Leddy interview. That definitely was the winner from last month. So many people on Facebook, on the forums, and um, especially the Tantive 11 forum, which uh, is where Marco is based, also bumping in it with Father's Forum, said that learns 
so much of that interview and lots and lots of people now are starting to hunt down leady figures so if you've only got two or three left to go before you complete your collection i suggest you get them now because there's going to be a, an influx of leady collectors coming your way a couple of guys have asked about the the book and how do you get them because it appears though it's out of stock at amazon grant i think you mentioned they may be stocked or getting stock soon at forbidden planet is that correct no no right <laughs> and a couple, <laughs> a couple of people have said you know it's 150 pounds i don't really want to drop that amount of money without seeing the book to hand i've had a look at a few waterstones i haven't seen any um, but if anybody does see any in a physical store if you can let me know then we'll pass that information on to those who've said that they, they might be interested the l street interview lots and lots and lots of feedback about that a lot of people said it was really interesting kind of like how i was feeling in that they didn't expect it to be the video or the dvd that it ended up being and they thought that's fantastic and i know easily double figures people after we've started pushing it have went and ordered that dvd so so that's absolutely brilliant because you know that, that that's what it's about it's about going beyond star wars film and finding out uh, behind the scenes and getting more stuff out that so that was great jumping over at the tent of 11 Commander Clint, who's one of our interview guests for this month, he posts these fantastic reviews and linked different parts and images which we've covered before. He loves Pete's use of the word gimcrack, and he thinks that should be the, the word for 2016. So he, he loves that. But um, he posts a lot of them for uh, information about some of the items that were talked about, such as the cast and crew book and various other things. And he, he made some comments on the, the Jason Smith Palatoy cardback interview. A lot of people said that they thought that was really interesting and informative and very very difficult to do that to make it to get it across to people without actually visually seeing the card backs but jason did a good job on that the henrik interview was a nice little one to drop in to break up the the very very educational stuff that we had surrounding it because henrik's interview which was much more personal and it was much more homely and you know some great stuff in there but it was much more of a, a relaxed kind of interview so that so that was great on TIG, I was a little bit surprised on this because I thought Walkie um, had listened to a couple of our earlier shows, but Walkie's managed to um, drag himself into the 21st century and he started listening to some podcasts now. He's downloaded a couple, so he's going to start going back and checking some out. And Fathers From, I mean, it was absolutely brilliant, Stu. I think all of us had this, but I think there was twice when me and Stu were talking and people just come over and said, oh, we recognise those voices. These were people who we've never met and this is the first time this has happened to us who've just come up to us and said, are you the guys from the Vintage Rebellion? And it, it was absolutely brilliant um there's one guy guy called was it ian stew do you remember his name? that's what i was gonna say he was me and you were just at a, at a stall and this bloke just comes up i didn't recognize him he was just like thank you ever so much for doing the podcast you've got my passion in inflamed again you know it was kind of it's kind of given him that community sense again so it was a really nice touch just to hear that from someone you know there was also um were you there as well just when a gentleman by the name of lee came up and had a chat to us and there was another guy called Ricky Hill. And Rick, yeah. Ricky Hill came along. He, he stayed a bit, quite a bit, um, and he was he was having a, a chat as well about a, a few items and a few stories that were talked about. So there was more than three, but those were the three that I can you know, vividly remember. And and that was fantastic. That was that was brilliant. And if we even inspired people to come to Father's Farm, which hopefully was inspired them further to welcome more people in the community, it's it's got to be for the greater good, isn't it? Absolutely. It was great to meet Lee and Ricky. Uh, Ricky had been messaging me before Father's Farm to say know what's it like is it worth it is it just cash etc etc and for them to take the plunge and come down yeah yeah cracking so uh good on you ricky uh lee and uh the more the merrier we'll see you all again next time uh rich if i may there's just one other thanks uh which i wanted to do 
And obviously, every time we produce a podcast, you know, we want, we want people to listen to it. We want to have some uh, new listeners and just to maybe, you know, in, enhance the amount of listeners who we, which we have. And we don't want to go OTT with regards to, to push in the podcast. We don't want it to be the same people really, really pushing it all the time on Facebook groups. So to have people who are up until that point strangers to us who we'd never conversed with, never met before, suddenly post on some of the Facebook groups, such as Neil Donnelly posting a link just saying, hey guys, check this out, give these guys a chance. Thanks very much, Neil, and to everyone else who's been doing that onto the Facebook groups. It really is appreciated, and uh, it's certainly better coming from the listeners rather than coming from us. So um, thanks once again. And if anybody is even dreaming of coming to Father's Farm the next time it's announced, get yourself down there, even if you're travelling alone. I mean, um, I mean, we had to take Stu under our wing and give him a good petting and, you know, everything before he would come to Father's Farm for the first time. You know, just come along to Father's Farm and, you know, just start talking to anybody at all and you'll be integrated, you'll be introduced to many people. You know, and, and I was talking, I think it was Ricky in particular, I was saying, yeah, you know, oh, Jason, yep, that's that guy over there. And, oh, yeah, Gary Smith, yep, that's him over there. And it, I must have pointed out a dozen people, you know, for him to, you know, put names to faces and then you could go over and say, you know, hi, Jason, you know, thanks for your, your callback, guy there was lots and lots of good stuff in there and Stu if anybody's going to be able to leave us any feedback how would they do that well you can find us on Facebook by searching The Vintage Rebellion and if you don't follow our page on there on Facebook be sure to like it as we do post up pictures and links of the items we have discussed on the show you can email us on show at vintagerebellion.co.uk find us on Twitter at SWTVR podcast or contact us on the forums if you want to go back and listen to the back catalogue then you can find them all still on iTunes or directly at SWTVR wtvrpodcast.podbean.com huge thank yous to all our guests this month as always you are what make the show unique so thanks to matt fox yehuda kleinman clint Carnis, andrew norton lawrence dyer and simon mccohen lads i'm sure you'd all agree it's been a superb year for all of us at the vintage rebellion but i can confirm you haven't heard the last of us for 2016 before the festivities begin we will also be launching our christmas special where we will talk to a few previous guests have an interview with chris botkins and the five of us will dissect 2016 and look forward to what 2017 has in store no panto no pantos no pantos. Do you know what? With a panto, okay, I have had probably, I would say, a good 20 people talk to the panto with me. It is a real marmite, isn't it? It's like yeah, it some is. of them are gutted it's not in there, and yeah. others are just like, please, no panto. Yeah, I had, I, really... I had three or four people who said, oh, you're not doing a panto? I really wanted to come on. Do it. Well, there is no panto this year, so if it is something that puts you off, don't be put off. Are there uh, going to be any ducks? Oh, yeah, there won't. Oh, yes, there is. We can have some Christmas quackers. So, for this show and for 2016 in the general shows, it is goodbye from Richard. Later, guys. Goodbye from Grant. Hi, Rebel. Goodbye from Jezebel. See you later, guys. That was really camp. It was like this. See you later. I, I didn't know what to say. Goodbye from Petey. Oh, we're off to Button Moon and we followed Mr. Spoon. Button Moon. Button Moon. And, and it is good night from me. And remember, only you can decide with Star Wars toys. This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. 
All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual property rights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough. Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear? Teddy bear!